Good midday, Mr. and Mrs. Cincinnati. This is Les Nessman with Showbeat. Our guest today, the actress Colleen Kemp. Oh, hello. <laughs> Ms. Kemp, you're here in the Queen City for the opening of the new... Bogdanovich film, are you not? Bogdanovich. Yes, well, whatever. They all laughed. Excuse me? That's the name of the picture. It opens here in Cincinnati on Friday. And what about all the sex and violence? Excuse me? What's Hollywood out to prove? This is a comedy. It's a family picture. Well, I am one American who is sick and tired of slow-motion death. This is PG. So there is some cursing. Well, not that I remember. Oh, well, maybe a little. Maybe a little. Well, I mean, hell. Hell? Hell? What I mean is that... I think it's about time that Hollywood made films we decent Americans could watch. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. Do you remember the movie Gigi? Well, yes. Funny little fascinating Gigi? Yes. Well, they don't make films like that anymore. I guess not. Where's Chevalier now? Dead, I believe. Yes, that's right. But I believe I have made my point, haven't I? I guess so, I mean... So you're here in Cincinnati trying to promote this film when in actual fact, you'd much rather be lounging around on a beach somewhere in the South Pacific. Doesn't that just about sum things up? Well, I suppose you could say that. It's called Showbeat. I'm Les Nessman, and you're an informed Cincinnati. Oh, that was great, Colleen. Good luck on that film. I hear it's quite good. Oh, Colleen, I am so sorry. No, no, it was fun. Come with me, Liz. One minute, Andy. Uh, Colleen, I was wondering if I could have an autograph. It's not for me. It's for my brother. His name is Les, too. Uh, just write to Les with all my love and respect. Now, Les. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff. Wittellis is being broadcast live and recorded live at 9.43 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, January 8th, 2022, our second show already in 2022, even though the year has just begun. Mickey Maz, we had a three-hour segment about him on Christmas, and now, as my late Christmas present to you, we're going to have an interview with him tonight for almost two hours, except that is pre-recorded. So that was the only way I could do it. I'll explain when we get to that segment, which is our first segment. And then after the segment, I will come back live and give you my impression a few days later. Anyway, we have a free roll tonight. It begins in three minutes, actually two minutes, 9.45 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. It is $50, which is not the 730 we gave away last week, but it's still something. 25 for first, 15 for second, 10 for third. 25 for first, 15 for second, 10 for third on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. You can find it near the top of the screen. To understand the rules for qualification, go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash FreeRoll. PokerFraudAlert.com slash FreeRoll, exactly as it sounds, all lowercase, so you can understand all of that. And we will pay you in many, many ways. Many ways you can get that money. You can get it by Zelle, by Cash App by bank transfer, by several cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum, and some other methods, if you can think of them, of ways people send money to each other online. Just PM me, Dan Space Druff, on the forum, or text me, 775-372-8355, or email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com, to claim your prize. 
I prefer the claims by PM, by the way, then I'm less likely to forget because that's where most of them come in. But 25, 15, and 10 are being given away this week. The money was donated by Tiger Piper, who gave it in honor of the sports betting thread poster who gave him the overbets for UAB and SC, which ended up winning, and he was very happy, so he gave $50 in honor of whoever posted that. He said he thinks it was daily. I was too lazy to look it up. But whoever gave that, this is in honor of them. And thank you to them, because it ended up with $50 for our free roll right here. By the way, if I owe you money, please get to me soon. And I'm not talking about last week. The last week's winners, I'd also like if you claim your prize, but I'll be paying those out very shortly. However, I did a massive payout about a week before that to everybody that's owed money for the past few months. And there are some people that I couldn't reach or that hadn't claimed their prizes. So if you are owed money from past free rolls, please get a hold of me in the ways I mentioned. I prefer PM on the forum and give me a way to pay you, identify who you are, and then I'll pay you. Otherwise, the money will be rolled back into the pool very soon. So keep that in mind if you are owed money. If you want to call the show, the call-in number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can also text that same number before, during, or after the show. Anytime you can text me, I will usually respond to you. Keep in mind, if you text me while we're on the air live, I may read your text on the air unless you ask at the beginning of the text for me not to do so. If you want to listen to the show, you can do so also through the call-to-listen line. The call to listen line is a phone number you just call up and listen. You can't interact with me on that line, but it is a way to listen to the show. It does not require a smartphone, a data plan, a computer, an app. No, 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 none of that stuff. All you need is a phone that can dial, and as long as you can dial a number in the U.S. for free, then it is totally free, unless you have T-Mobile. Then it will cost one cent a minute, which I do not get. The number to the call to listen line is 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736, and the alternate call to listen line is 641-741-1095. It never buffers and it never freezes. That is my guarantee to you. It just works. It just plays. It's great. And when we're not live on the air, it will run one of our more than 400 shows in our library of almost 10 years of Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Pick one at random run it as if it's live, and then pick another and another till we come back live on the air. You can also find the same thing on the radio tab of PokerFraudAlert.com. Speaking of that radio tab, you can listen to the show through that tab. It works on any device now. You also can scroll down to the archives section, and you'll see all the different ways you can listen in podcast form in the archives. That includes iTunes, Google Podcasts, Tune in, which you can use to listen live or the archives. Spotify, iHeartMedia, Stitcher, Bullhorn. Bullhorn, by the way, has its own call to listen line for the archives, if you want to use that. It's pretty cool. And we even have an MP3 we post each week of the show, which you can just click on and listen. That'll work with any device without any app or player necessary. And you can download the MP3 and keep it if you like. So a lot of different ways to listen to the show in the archives, even Amazon Alexa. You just have to say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio Podcast. You have to say that slowly and clearly. Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio Podcast. And it will play the last episode. And to go to the one before that, just say next. And keep saying next, and it'll keep going back. 
A lot of listening options. In fact, I think we give you the most listening options of any poker or gambling podcast in existence. If you know of one with more ways to listen, you can tell me, and then I will beat them. I will find more ways to listen. But I want to give you options because I know that the app I prefer may mean, may not be what you prefer. We have a chat room. If you're listening live, you can go into the chat room. You need a forum account in good standing to chat with other listeners. I don't really chat in there, but I do read it every so often and will answer your comments, though I prefer you text me. It's mainly to talk to other listeners if you're listening live. I'll give you the agenda, and then we will get going. We will do the Mickey Maz pre-recorded interview. It was recorded on January 4th in the early evening, so it was about four days ago. Then afterwards, I will come on and give you my present comments. Uh, there's been some things that have come out since that interview that I wish I could have asked about at the time, but of course, there was no way to do that. Doug Polk, Andrew Neem, and Brad Owen have become partners in an Austin-area poker room. So we will discuss that. I'll play you Doug Polk's announcement that he made on YouTube about it. Then I'm going to tell you a little personal story. I won't quite call it Druffy Time Theater, but I will tell you a little story about some intense secret admirer emails that I got in 2001, which after a few of those emails, I was pretty convinced that one of my close friends was gay and was in love with me. And that was very uncomfortable. So what ended up being the case? Did I really have a gay secret admirer who was a close friend of mine? Or was it not what it appeared to be? I'll tell you what it ended up being. I did solve the mystery. The person wouldn't say who they were or anything about themselves, but they were implying that it was another guy. I'll tell you what I found out about it. PayPal, Venmo, and other apps have been ordered by the federal government to report all transactions over $600 to the IRS. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. It's not good news for poker players and gamblers, that's for sure. I will tell you about that. Then we will do another flashback, but this one not to my personal life or not to my life at all. This has nothing to do with me. But in 2006, there was a civil forfeiture case against two poker players. Actually, they were combination poker and advantage players, but they were both in the poker community at the time in 2006. And this civil forfeiture case made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Not the state Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court. And there was a ruling which had a major effect on e-commerce law going forward. Surprisingly, a lot of people didn't know about this. In fact, even I didn't know about this until December when someone told me about it. And I said, how could I have missed this back in 06? But yeah, somehow I missed this back in 06. But sure enough, it happened. And I even had a little bit of a discussion on Twitter with one of the people involved. So I will tell you about this very interesting civil forfeiture case and how it made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which is not easy to do, as you might guess. If you've been to Las Vegas and you're a dude, especially an older dude, and if you've been there late at night in casinos, especially if you've been by yourself, you have probably been approached or at least looked at in a way to where they want you to come over and talk to them by hookers. 
It's happened to me a bunch of times. I have not engaged them. Occasionally they've engaged me, but then I quickly try to get out of the conversation and continue on my way. However, it is hard to avoid if you are walking around in Vegas, especially in a casino late at night, and especially if you look like you have money on you at the time. However, some of these hookers are not just looking to make a sale. Some of them are looking to rob you. And this happened at Caesars, but there's more of an angle to the whole thing than usual, including that when the two women were caught, they had some of this guy's stuff in their vagina. (laughs) MGM M Life and Caesars Rewards are majorly degrading tier credit earnings from on-property spending this year in 2022. So if that's the way you've been earning tier credits, then you may want to rethink it because you're going to be getting much less. One of the property groups has already done it. One of them is going to do it February 1st. I will tell you the details when we get to that segment. Speaking of credits, not tier credits, but reward credits, I lost $400 worth of reward credits at Caesars, and I can't get answers about it. The only thing I can figure out is it appears that they were not stolen. We did have a story on this show from about a year ago where Eric Sonstegard had $700 worth of RC stolen and wasn't getting good answers from Caesars, and it was confirmed it was stolen, and it wasn't his fault but he was having a hard time getting them back. With mine, it appears to be a different situation. Mine do not appear to be stolen. They just appear to be missing. And I cannot get answers from Caesars. I know you're probably shocked about this because Caesars is known for their operational competence. But what can I say? Caesars has failed. I know it's absolutely shocking to you guys. Caesars has failed. And my 400 NRCs are still missing. And I'm going crazy. So I'll, t- I'll tell you what's going on there. It's a ridiculous situation. Four online sports books have launched. They launched today in New York State. And one of the online sports books was Caesars. And of those four sports books, which one would you guess had fail on the day of launch? <laughs> I'll let you guess. Then we have two coronavirus topics, and that's it. I think it's going to be a pretty long show because the Mickey interview itself is almost two hours. But the other thing I want to tell you is about our opening little scene I played, which you'll probably recognize was from WKRP in Cincinnati. But why did I play that? Why did I open with that scene? Well... This was a weird scene that was at the beginning of a fourth season episode of WKRP in Cincinnati. In fact, that was its final season. It only lasted four seasons. And it was a backdoor promotion for a movie called They All Laughed, which was a 1981 movie. People kind of wondered, what was that doing here? That was a strange segment. In fact, uh, you may not know this if you didn't watch WKRP that much, but there never was a showbiz segment on WKRP. Les Nesman did the news, not showbiz. This is a one-time thing. So why was Les Nesman doing this showbiz segment promoting a movie on this show? I mean, it was a pretty humorous segment, and a lot of fans really liked that segment. But 
where did it come from and why was it there and why am I playing it now about 40 years later? Well, there was a reason for this and it ties into something that just happened. Director Peter Bogdanovich died this week at the age of 82. Now, he was the one who directed They All Laughed. And that was put into WKRP as a backdoor promotion for They All Laughed. And you may say, okay, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal was what led to that occurring, because this wasn't your typical backdoor promotion. It was basically put there out of sympathy. How often do you see a backdoor promotion of a movie put there out of sympathy? How often do you see Frank Sinatra licensing his songs for almost no money out of sympathy? But that was done for this movie. So here's what happened. Some of you may remember this if you're one of our older listeners. I'm going to talk about something that happened in 1980. If you were a kid in 1980, you may not have heard about it. But if you're a little bit older or if you follow the career of Peter Bogdanovich, then you probably know about this. But there's more detail that was given on Poker Fraud Alert than you're going to find anywhere on the web thanks to a member we have here. And in fact, I'm going to tell you about this member and I'm going to encourage you to go read this guy's posts because this guy brings some very interesting stuff here which you wouldn't expect on a site about poker and gambling. Anyway, Peter Bogdanovich, as I said, was a director. He's best known in the film world for 1971's The Last Picture Show, which he made when he was young. He was just a little bit over 30 when he made The Last Picture Show back in 71. However, his career was derailed by a murder, not his murder. He just died this week of natural causes at 82. But a murder took place, not one he committed, not one that he had any part in. But this murder derailed his career. So in 1980, there was an actress and model named Dorothy Stratton who was murdered at the age of 20. But she did a lot in her life before 20. She got a very early start to things, so to speak. She was a little bit on the wild side, and that allowed her to kind of live as an adult even when she was a teenager. At age 17, Dorothy Stratton met a shady Canadian guy named Paul Snyder. He was older than she was. He was 26. She was 17. This guy was a pimp and also a club promoter, but just kind of this very shady guy, as you might imagine, with him being a pimp. And he was also unstable. So she was very smitten with him, maybe partially because she was young and wild and this was appealing to her. But uh, they fell in love and they got married. However, as you might imagine, with this guy, Snyder, who had a lot of issues, uh, he wasn't easy to live with or deal with, and they had a lot of fights. So the marriage started to deteriorate pretty quickly. Now, she got a great role in Peter Bogdanovich's film, They All Laughed, that they were filming in 1980. And remember, she was just uh, 20 years old. She and Bogdanovich fell in love. She had a bad marriage, and he liked younger women. And I guess it was a match made in heaven. So anyway, uh, they both really fell for each other, and... She, of course, was a little bit worried about uh, Snyder because he was an unstable guy. And eventually that led to her murder. Paul Snyder, when he was informed about this and when she told him that she's in love with Bogdanovich and not coming back to him, he was furious and uh, he was trying to get a gun to kill 
both Stratton and Bogdanovich. He finally was able to borrow one. He couldn't buy one because he was Canadian and they wouldn't let him buy a gun in the U.S. So he finally borrowed one from a friend who said, you can have it for a week. So he took the gun that was borrowed. The friend didn't realize he was borrowing it to commit murder. I don't know what he said he wanted it for, but it wasn't, it wasn't to murder people. It was, but he didn't tell the friend that. And he went to Bogdanovich's house and had Bogdanovich come home that night, we would have heard about his death over 40 years ago, back in 1980. However, for whatever reason, Bogdanovich and Stratton did not come back to his place that night. Nobody came back to the house. So Snyder sat and sat and sat and nobody was coming back, and he got really frustrated and annoyed that he's, he's waiting there. He's kind of like hiding in the bushes, waiting to pop out as soon as they pull up and shoot them both, and they never came home. So he's waiting for hours and hours and hours, and it gets to the middle of the night, and he is really frustrated. And he got up and drove into the hills of L.A., looked down upon the lights of the city, and was about to turn the gun on himself, which would have been great because that would have stopped the murder of Stratton that was to happen a little bit later. But at the last minute, he resisted, thinking that maybe he could talk Stratton into getting back together with him. So he tried that and uh, wasn't working. Then he was trying to get a gun again because he had to return it back to his friend. The week was up and uh, he couldn't get it for any longer. So it took him a few weeks, but he was able to finally uh, get another gun, this time a shotgun. And he went over to Stratton's house. She willingly let him in. I don't know how he hid the gun because it was a shotgun. I don't know how you hide that, but whatever, she let him in. They went into her room and talked, and at some point he murdered her, stripped her, stripped her naked after murdering her, stripped naked himself, and then shot himself dead. Very tragic. So uh, when Bogdanovich was told about this, now the movie had already finished filming, so that wasn't the problem. She was in the movie. They were done filming her scenes. They were done filming everybody's scenes. So that wasn't the problem. The problem was what to do about this. Now, first of all, he was absolutely devastated by this because he was in love with Stratton. And he felt a little responsible because it was the affair he was having with her which sent Snyder over the edge and caused this murder-suicide. So Bogdanovich actually collapsed and then had a mental breakdown and uh, ended up in the hospital for a while over this whole thing. When he got out, he was hoping at the very least that Dorothy Stratton would go down in history as a young, talented starlet who would have had an amazing career if only she wasn't cut down at the age of 20. He was hoping that this movie would be a hit and everyone would say, wow, what a talented, beautiful actress, if only she could have kept living. And then at least he would have found felt that uh, her final work was something she'd always be remembered for in a very positive light. Well, he wasn't very happy when the film failed to make wide release because it was completed, remember, but uh, it ended up not going into wide release and he ended up buying the rights to the film. Now, if you go read Bogdanovich's obituary, it'll mention that this led to financial ruin and you'll see something about that. However, the full story is not very well known. There's various versions of that story going around, but it really hasn't been told in correct detail or enough detail. However, we have a member of the Poker Fraud Alert Forum, and it's someone I know personally, someone I've known personally for quite some time. 
He goes by Harry Hollywood on the Poker Fraud Alert Forum. Now, some of you might think it's Vintage One, who sometimes co-hosts this show, who does work in Hollywood, but it is not. In fact, Harry Hollywood is a little bit older than Vintage One, and for that reason, he was working in Hollywood back around that time, around 1980. He still does. Obviously, he's an older guy, but this guy has a ton of information about stuff in Hollywood past and present. I mean, if you go read this guy's post, he was able to tell you release dates for things on Netflix long before it was made public, and you'll see he was right every time. Look at the dates of his posts. And he has a lot of inside information that was never made public. You won't find anywhere else on the web except on Poker Fraud Alert. So he's brought a lot of this stuff here, and every time more information comes out later, he's proven right. There's never been one time that Harry Hollywood turned out to have been wrong. Now, some of this is not verifiable, what he posts, but uh, this guy is a treasure trove of information. I've even offered to start a website with him, a separate website about Hollywood, and he won't do it. He said he doesn't want to do that. But he comes on Poker Fraud Alert every so often and posts about things. So he came and posted about the uh, Bogdanovich story. I I asked him some questions about it, and then he decided to come on and post. And he told the full story, which... You're not going to find this full story anywhere. You'll see, you'll find bits and pieces, but you're not going to find the full story of the situation with him buying the rights to They All Laughed, which is that final film that Stratton was in, except here. So I'm not going to read you the whole post. You can find it on the Poker Fraud Alert forum on the Flying Stupidity area. But basically what happened, according to Hollywood Harry, who was around then, he just was very young. He, would, he just started working, but he was around in Hollywood in 1980. And... The film distributor was 20th Century Fox, and they didn't know what to do with it after the murder because they didn't want to make it look like they were exploiting the murder for publicity. They didn't want it to look like, hey, come see this film because of this high-profile murder that occurred by the jealous ex-husband of uh, Dorothy Stratton. So they didn't know what to do with it. Also, they weren't that high on the film. They kind of thought the film was okay, but they didn't think it was going to be a big hit. They were afraid that releasing it too soon would be more trouble than the film was worth. So they decided not to do it for a while. They kind of sat on it thinking we've got to at least let some time pass. And they sat on it for about a full year. And they decided finally to dip their toes into distributing it in August of 1981, about a full year after that murder. Now, it wasn't just that she was murdered, because there have been other murders of people who were in films or TV shows, and they just end up replacing them and moving on and putting a little memorial somewhere in the credits. This happened with the miniseries V in 1982, when Dominique Dunn was murdered, and they replaced her with another actress, and they put a little memorial there in the credits, and they they went on because the murder had nothing to do with anybody else associated with the series. But here, in the situation with Bogdanovich, it was the director having an affair with her, and then the jealous husband killed her. So that made the whole film kind of toxic. So they, they sat on it for a year and then said, okay, what we'll do is we will put it in some test screenings and see how the audiences like it. And if this is a wildly popular film, then we'll release it anyway because it's worth it. If it looks like audiences aren't that into it, then the whole thing's not worth it and we're just going to scrap it. So they tested it in Phoenix, Providence, and Minneapolis in August of 81. 
and it had middling results. Audiences just kind of thought it was okay. They were kind of iffy on it. So 20th Century Fox said, you know what, this isn't worth it. It's just not worth all the trouble and controversy for a film that the audience just thinks is okay. So they pulled it from distribution, and that seemed to be that. However, it got a little bit of a revival because in September, just the following month, September 81, it also screened at the Venice Film Festival and the Deauville Film Festival, and audiences liked it there. So they started saying, well, you know what? Maybe these test screenings don't mean that much. If the film festivals are so into it, maybe we should end up distributing it. So ultimately what they did was they decided to go for a limited distribution in the fall of 81, and they would distribute it more if it was doing well, if it was getting good reaction from general audiences in in limited distribution. So that was the plan. And... Bogdanovich was very unhappy with that. Remember, he wanted this to be a huge film that was kind of like the going away party for Dorothy Stratton and have her remembered by that. And instead, hardly anyone was going to get to see it. So he was furious about this. And he decided that he was going to buy the rights to the film so he could distribute it. He'd buy the, the distribution rights, that is. But he had no experience in distribution and he didn't know what he was doing. And he lost everything, basically. Not only did he lose everything, but uh, the financer of the film, Time Life, had given $8.6 million in financing for the film. And he was responsible to pay that back and couldn't because the whole thing failed because he didn't know how to distribute it. And he ended up being sued for that in the mid-80s. By 1985, he was broke. And he uh, only had a little bit of a comeback thanks to the movie Mask. Not The Mask with Jim Carrey, but Mask. Remember that uh, with Eric Stoltz playing Rocky Dennis? That was his film as well. And uh, that was a fairly successful film. Not a supreme hit, but a fairly successful film and definitely made uh, money. So that gave him the ability to work again, but he never really had a hit after that. Anyway, regarding the WKRP thing you heard... And regarding uh, Frank Sinatra, which I quickly mentioned, there was a lot of sympathy for him at the time over the entire situation. People wanted him to succeed with his self-distribution, but everybody knew this was going to be an uphill battle. People knew that uh, this was going to be very hard for him to distribute it himself on his own dime, not knowing how to distribute films. He was a director, not a distributor, that this was going to be an uphill battle. So various people in Hollywood were trying to help him in whatever way they could. One of them was Frank Sinatra. So there were several Sinatra songs featured in They All Laughed that would have been very expensive to license at the time, and Sinatra gave it to him for almost nothing because he felt bad for him. And according to Harry, part of the reason Sinatra felt so bad for him was because Sinatra went through something that was tragic and almost had a, an ultimately very tragic result when his son, when his young son was kidnapped for ransom, he ultimately got his son back, but that stayed with him forever. You, you, if your son gets kidnapped, that stays with you forever, even if your son ends up coming back safely. So uh, Sinatra felt that loss, even though his son eventually came back and, and understood how that tragedy that Bogdanovich went through was affecting him. So he licensed his songs for almost nothing to appear in that film. And then Hugh Wilson, who was not close friends with Bogdanovich, but he was the one who uh, was in charge of WKRP. He was the creator and, and head writer, and he, he pretty much did a whole lot of things for WKRP. He pretty, much, he pretty much was WKRP, except for he wasn't one of the actors. So Hugh Wilson 
while not close friends with him, he knew Bogdanovich and he felt really bad for him. So in order to try to help the movie be successful, at the last minute they rewrote this scene at the beginning of that episode where Les Nessman interviews one of the stars of They All Laughed and has a confrontational interview with her. And uh, that that was uh, written hastily right before it was filmed by Hugh Wilson. They changed the script to put that in there. And they were hoping that this episode would air and would coincide with the wide release of They All Laughed. Unfortunately, it didn't. It came, this episode aired in January of 82. And uh, it was... It went into wide release in November of 81, so it had been like six weeks in between. And by that point, They All Laughed was out of a lot of theaters because Paramount, which had a lot more influence than Bogdanovich did as far as distribution, they were able to force it out and uh, put one of their own films during the holiday season. It was a film called Reds, which didn't end up doing that well, but they basically pushed it out so Reds could be in there because Paramount, as you can imagine, had a ton of influence over theaters. So that was one of the many reasons They All Laughed failed. At the time, critics didn't really like They All Laughed that much. They didn't hate it, but for the most part, it was critically panned. However, in the following years, as time passed, it became more and more appreciated. Today, They All Laughed is pretty well regarded as a film from that day. So critics today actually like it and feel that was one of his better works, and was one of the better pictures of 1981. So it's interesting how standards can change over time as well. So this information, I gave you kind of the cliff notes of what Harry posted, but uh, a lot of this is not anywhere on the web. And if you go read Harry's post, you'll see that you're not going to find this much detail of the story. And he's done this a lot. He's come to Poker Fraud Alert. He doesn't post every day or anything. He only comes every so often. But when he comes in, he puts out a lot of really interesting stuff about Hollywood past and present that you're not going to find anywhere else. So he is definitely an asset to Poker Fraud Alert. And I I wish he'd participate more. But, you know, he's a busy guy. It's a lot of hours in that industry. As you've heard from Vintage One when he's been on here, he has... When Vintage One isn't working. He, he actually comes on and co-hosts with us, but he's, he's so busy, he barely can do that himself. So that's the reason Hollywood Harry can't contribute as much as uh, he otherwise could. But when he does contribute, I suggest you read his stuff, especially if you have any uh, interest in Hollywood stories, past and present. Anyway, sorry for that little hijack there. So I want to start off with the Mickey segment, and I'm sure a lot of you are anticipating this. In fact, I'm sure we have some new listeners that are listening to the show for the very first time in order to hear the Mickey segment. So let me tell you something. This is a live show. We do very, very few pre-recorded segments. Almost everything you hear on the show is broadcasted live, and even if you catch the show later in podcast form, you're hearing the live show as it was. So... What I don't like to do is pre-record things. I'm a big fan of live radio. However, sometimes exceptions have to be made, and this was one of them. As you may have heard on the December 25th, 26th show that I did, where there was a three-hour segment about Mickey, where I introduced him to the audience, where everybody learned about him, where I played clips of him appearing on other shows, you got to know him real well, by the time 
I was done with that segment. And if you missed it, go to the show dated December 26th, 2021, and go to the one hour, 27 minute, 27 second mark, one twenty-seven twenty-seven on December 26th, 2021, and you will hear the long segment I did about Mickey. But what was missing from that segment was Mickey himself. I really wanted him on here. It was fine to talk about him, but I really wanted to talk to him and get his answers in his own words to my questions. But I wasn't sure if that was going to happen. I invited him on the show, and he was expressing some lukewarm interest, but he never committed to it. And to me, it kind of looked like he probably was never going to come on. So I wasn't that optimistic. However, that all changed on January 4th in the afternoon. I got a message from him that he wanted to talk to me. And apparently he had listened to that three-hour segment I had done about him in late December, and he wanted to come on and respond. However, he wanted to do it now. He wanted to respond right now. So yeah, I could have told him, no, wait till the next episode over the weekend, but he might lose interest by then. So I figured the proper play was to turn on the show immediately and do a segment with him that we would pre-record and play on the next episode. And he understood that. He understood that we were pre-recording a segment to appear on the next Poker Fraud Alert radio show. And he was fine with that. The only problem was I had no time to prepare. I hadn't written out any questions. I had some in mind when I was thinking about if we got him on, like what I'd like to ask him, but I had not formally written out anything. I hadn't prepared at all. I was really caught having to do this on the fly. And I tried to do the best I could. I tried to come up with the best questions I could as we were doing the interview. So the preparation for the interview was actually done during the interview, which wasn't ideal. And I probably could have done a better job preparing if I had time, but I didn't have time. So I did my best. So keep that in mind if you're listening and there is a question that you would have liked to see asked that I didn't end up asking. However, I do feel I covered a lot. And also, I gave him a number of follow-up questions when he would answer the questions I did ask. So there was a good back and forth there, and there was a lot of information given. In fact, we stayed on for almost two hours. So you're going to hear a lot of him. And in fact, he talked a lot more than I did. So you're going to get some very detailed answers from Mickey about a lot of things. Now, I promised on the episode where I talked about him, that if he ever came on here, I was going to treat him respectfully. And I kept that promise. And that's a promise I will make and keep to everybody who comes on this show, that this is not an interrogation, that this is not an attack. When people come on here, they're doing it voluntarily. They don't have to come on. They don't have to give me their time. So anyone who does that, I appreciate that. And I will always treat them respectfully. I'm not going to do a softball interview. And here you will listen and notice that I'm not doing a softball interview. I definitely will never do that. However, I will be respectful when I'm asking the questions that I'm asking. That's what I did here. And I tried to be fair the entire way. At the same time, I tried to get answers to as many questions as I could, including follow-ups. So I hope you enjoy the segment. And again, it is pre-recorded. Don't bother trying to call in during the segment. Don't bother trying to suggest questions to ask them in the chat room. This was already recorded on January 4th. After this interview is done playing, which I think is about an hour, 47 minutes, I will come back on live and uh, we'll comment on it some at that point. So here it comes. Hey, 
day, Todd. Yeah, hey, Mickey. Glad to have you on here. How you doing? Yep. Okay, so uh, let's get right into this. As I explained to everybody here, this is uh, pre-recorded, so it's not live, but uh, Mickey wanted to talk now, and I wanted to give him the opportunity to talk to me, ask him a few questions, and uh, we will see where this goes, and I appreciate you coming on here. Well, it's live for me. It's live for me. Yeah, it's, it's live for me at the it's moment, but by the time they all hear it, it'll be yeah. no longer live. So anyway, Mickey, I have seen everything I've seen the other things you've been on and and your Instagram and all of that and uh you know I'm I've been a gambler for decades and I've been around the poker scene for a very long time. I've uh, been part of the casino advantage scene for a very long time. So the reason I have an interest in you and in all of this is just because I've never seen anything like this before and I've never seen anything like this where it turns out that the person is what they seem to be. So this is any skepticism I have is not uh, against you personally. It is just for my decades of experience that I've never seen one of these before where somebody comes out with uh, what seems to be a, a way to beat the casinos that doesn't add up with everything I know about the way one would beat a casino. So that's where I'm coming from here. I have no agenda and I don't care if this show blows up or not. I've been doing the same thing for 10 years. I've never promoted this show. We don't run ads. So I'm really just someone in the gambling community who has people listening in the gambling community that just has some curiosities. That's honestly where I'm coming from. So uh, do you mind if I just start off with some questions here and we can go from there? Sure, whatever you want. Okay. My first question to you is, where did you get the initial bankroll to start playing at the casino? I know you've talked about the pharmacy situation before, and uh, we've discussed that on a previous episode, and I played some clips of you, but did you get the seed money to sit at the games with money you made before gambling, or did you come into gambling with not very much and run it back up? Well, I've been gambling my whole life since I was a little kid. Um... But I guess, relatively speaking, it wasn't like a lot. Um, I have gone on some really large runs in Vegas. One time, I took uh, two hundred dollars into to quite a large number. Um, but I was in business before, like my major Vegas gaming. So, like, yeah. So it's it's safe to say that the big limit gaming you've been doing for for all this mm-hmm. big money, which is way above anything I've ever played. You didn't run it up in Vegas. What happened was you uh, you made money beforehand and then brought it to Vegas and then ran it up from there. Well, I had money outside of gambling. Yeah. And I was using that to play for pure entertainment. I didn't like wake up one day and I was like, I'm going to be a professional gambler or anything of the sort. I just like, I love to gamble. And I got extra time and extra funds. Let me just go gamble. And that money that I had from business and jobs and I was always a really good saver of money. Um, helped me. So if I ever took a loss, it was like, you know, it was like, like I went to Vegas knowing that if I brought 20000 I can leave 20000 because I got more in the bank or what have you. Eventually what happened, it happened actually pretty quickly, was I was just winning, like a lot. Uh, like often, often. I was winning often. And the amount that I was winning was not a few hundred or a few thousand. You know, in the beginning it was tens of thousands, then it was hundreds of thousands, then it went to millions. And because I was winning more than I was losing by 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 quite a by quite a margin, I really didn't have to worry about where you know do I have other money in, in my reserves? I mean, although I did, I was essentially free rolling. 
So I didn't just like wake up one day, say to myself, I'm going to fly to Vegas. And I'm just going to put $3 million and play quarter million a hand. And then you know, hopefully I win, you know, five or 10 million. That's not how it happened. I played small, like a normal guy who just had some extra money. You know, it's a regular business guy would go to Vegas. The only difference between them and I is that I have tattoos and they don't. So I was always perceived as, well, how does this guy have this kind of cash to gamble? But that's irrelevant and that's a judgment-based uh, decision. So I had some extra funds and I was just playing. And then I won. So let's say I took 20000 the first time I went to Vegas and I took 50. Then I come back next week with 50 and I leave with 100. Come back the next week with 100, leave with 300. Come back the next week with 300, leave with 800. Come back with 800, leave with 2 million. Come back with 2 million, leave with 4 million. And roughly, that was what my journey looked like. Although, yeah, I had money from business. Okay, so my, I guess my question is here, how was this happening? Because I'm sure you know just about everybody else's Vegas experience when they just go and play normally is sometimes they'll get lucky and win. But if they don't have uh, a positive expectation way that uh, is shown mathematically to be positive expectation, what happens is if you go in and just play normally is you'll have some winning sessions but you will have more losing sessions or the losing sessions will be bigger than the winning ones and you will get ground down to zero you won't have a a big run of consecutive wins and if you do eventually the bottom falls out so um I, i guess my first question is how long have you been consistently winning in the casinos um i'd say about three years uh how long well uh i think three years is really the answer you're looking for. There's, there's a slightly more slightly more complex answer, but for some, I think really the answer you're looking for is three years. That's how long ago I moved to L.A. and Vegas. I moved to L.A. and Vegas, essentially, simultaneously. Yeah. That was three years ago. Okay. That's the answer you're looking for. So that, so the, right. So that's kind of my, my follow-up question comes from that, where mm-hmm. I don't know anybody who could win anywhere close to three years consistently, unless they barely play, but it seems like you do more than play every so often. So anyone mm-hmm. who plays even semi-regularly could not win for three years unless they have a mathematically proven way to beat the casinos. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you can't just be getting lucky for three years. It's not possible. So uh, my mm-hmm. question, I know you don't want to give out exactly how you're doing it, but how did you come up with a way to keep winning for three years where everybody else uh, can't do it and the few that can, the casino catches very on and boots them? Well, I think, I think the appropriate response for this is that nobody, nobody believes anything new can be done until it's done. Nobody believed that Phil Ivey could win the way he did until he did. Uh, people didn't believe um, that rocket could be uh, furthered in engineering until Elon Musk came and proved that it could. They hadn't had an improvement in their engineering since 1979 until Elon Musk. Nobody believed it'd be true until he did it. And I think everything happens that way. Same with Nikolai Tesla, uh, uh, Thomas Edison. Nobody believes these things are real until they're proven to be real. So I, I, I'm, I, I don't fault everybody, including you, for meeting me with doubt. I do think it's a little unfair, to be quite honest with you. I'm still a human being. I still have feelings, and I don't owe you anything. Uh, you offered me zero incentive to be on your show. You offered me zero incentive to even see your DM. It was by total chance that I did. And I didn't realize that you even had a show when you DM me. I was trying to be you know, respectful to my DMs and respond. Um, I think that it's slightly unfair and unjust that most of what I'm approached with is doubt. 
um, it's none of your business, to be quite frank with you. Um, I only did social media out of pure boredom. I've been living a certain lifestyle for 30 years. Um, I'm, I've been me this whole time with or without the existence of Instagram and TikTok and what have you. Um, you know, there's an entire uh, secret world of gamblers that most of the world is unfamiliar with. Um, I happen to be in that world. The thing is that it was, for no real reason was it kept secret. There are some reasons, politically speaking. Some of the members that are in this group network of gamblers like to keep their private life private. Uh, they prefer not to have some of their finance, finances relevant, and that's up to them. And I respect them, and they know that. We're all friends, and, you know, they'll tell me, hey, man, it's not a place to, to film or post. And I say, yeah, of course, though, you know, it's not personal time. So this world existed well before me, and there are people that are pretty long-time winners, um, even if most of you guys don't know about it. I'm not the only one that exists. Um, I just happen to be young, and I think that I offer a lot of drama in the sense of, Unfortunately, I, I, I have to look at the facts, and the facts are that if there's drama surrounding my online existence, then it's something I'm doing to welcome that in my life, despite me thinking maybe I'm drama-free or uh, humble or respectful or a nice guy. Well, uh, I can't deny the fact that if there's drama, it's something I'm doing to welcome that. And I understand it's because I'm one of the only people from this world of gambling that posts about the gambling. So it is unheard of to many people, even yourself, who is a long-time gambler. Well, yes, yes, and and so I wanted to respond a little to that. Uh, first of all, I do appreciate your coming on here. You do owe me nothing. That's totally true, and I, I even said that on my show when I talked about you, that I don't feel you owe me an interview. I don't feel like you owe me an explanation because I'm not someone who, who who can demand this of you. I'm just uh, another person, and uh, and that's it, and so I, I appreciate you coming on here, and I say that sincerely. I'm not just saying this uh, to kiss your ass or anything or to get you to say more. Uh, so... That's the first thing. Second, the reason people are approaching you with doubt, I think we even said it, is because you have been public on social media and you've been showing these huge wins and you've been showing a lot of things about yourself that are pretty extraordinary. And so, of course, when people see this, because it's so uncommon and because it's so hard for a lot of people to believe, uh, the reaction is doubt until they see something that convinces them. Now, I will say, I'm not going to go into the whole story again, but there was a gambler who was reported to be winning tons of money. His name was Don Johnson. You've probably heard of him. And uh, at, at first, when I heard about Don Johnson, I thought, okay, this guy's a phony. The, the casino, he just got lucky once, and the casinos are promoting him as a big winner. This, this is all BS. Well, I later found out it wasn't BS. He really was winning, and he really was doing something smart that uh, other gamblers hadn't done before. So I do have an open mind because I initially thought Don Johnson was BS, and he wasn't. However, I will say the difference was that Don Johnson, uh, he wasn't promoting himself. He only did these uh, articles with uh, these publications after he was basically done with the whole thing. So um, mm -hmm. uh, you're promoting it in the middle, which leads me to my next question. Since you're still... Mm -hmm playing and still uh, winning, as you say, what would be the reason to even make this public? Wouldn't it be better to keep this private and just keep destroying the casinos for millions of dollars every week? Well, I think you're misinformed. I'm not in the middle. I am at the end. Um, I'm banned from nearly the entire city of Vegas. I have three casinos here I'm allowed to play at. One will probably never ban me because I, I won't play there. One of them, we have this... Um, a really casual agreement 
they don't give me extended limits. I can only bet 20000 a hand in Bach and 10000 in Blackjack. They don't really, they offer one version of double deck, which I prefer anyway, and it's in the low limits and it's just a hassle. So we have an understanding. I don't bother them. They don't bother me. I come and go as I please. They don't give me extended limits. I can't hurt them. They can't hurt me. We just hang out. That's it. The only other one that's relevant, um, we also have some terms. I can't, I, I, I cannot, I will not say which ones they are because that we do have this understanding. We made an agreement that we're going to do the least we can to hassle each other. Um, I can't get rooms or anything like that, but they do allow me to play. And this one particular casino does allow me to get extended limits. But if, outside of that, I'm, I'm done playing. Um, there's very little opportunity. So what happened was um, I was really bored. Uh, some of the casino executives that, I'm, that I've been friendly with encouraged me. They said, why don't you just try social media, man? Don't you think the world would find it so fascinating, the life that you've lived that nobody knows about? I said, I don't know, man. I've never been on social media. I made like an Instagram one time when I was a kind of a kid and, I didn't really, you know, do anything with it. Anyway, so I said, screw it. Let me try it out of boredom. So I made these things, uh, the, the, the Instagram and the posts and whatever, and I learned how Instagram works. And I learned how TikTok works kind of recently. And it's been really fun for me. That's the whole thing. You know, when you called me a scammer and other people called me a scammer, I literally had to say to myself, I said, how stupid could you be? I need to ask you a question. Yeah. What am I scamming? What am I scamming? What am I possibly gaining from this? I heard your six things. What's, re- what's the relevance in those six things to my life? Please well, okay, I, I, I'll answer you that. Uh, first of all, I was very clear in, in uh, my segment about that with the six possible reasons someone could be claiming to be winning a lot of money. I specifically said I'm speaking about a generic gambler, not you. And I wasn't just saying this to protect myself legally or anything. I was saying this because I don't know what the story is with you. And that's what I've been trying to figure out. I've never said Mickey is a scammer because I don't know what I've actually trying to do both in my uh, postings and in my radio show. And, and right now on this call with you is just figure out what the deal is. And I've never said you are a scammer. And I have said that about other people. I've said that about a lot of people in poker where I've seen pretty convincing evidence or hundred percent convincing evidence that they're scamming. And I know what they're doing and how they're doing it with you. I don't know yet. So that's why I'm asking you. And that's why I have not made any conclusions like this. I have said that I don't believe certain things, but I haven't said you've scammed anybody if you've noticed. And I haven't said that, uh, I've come to any conclusion of what's exactly going on. I find it very fascinating. I find it kind of a mystery in some ways, but I've not gotten to the point where I'm uh, saying that you're a scammer because I like to know, and that's part of the reason I wanted you on here, so we could hear from you instead of me just uh, watching you talk to other people and take guesses. So uh, that's that's my answer to you. And then I, I have a, f- a follow-up question here to what you just said, though, about the casinos. Yeah. So are you saying that, that you're done with very high-stakes Vegas casino gambling at this point. Vegas casino gambling. Yes, except there are a few exceptions to the rule. And that's basically where my social media comes in. So I can't do that much. I don't have the freedom to maneuver how I once did throughout Vegas casino high stakes gambling. I don't have that ability much anymore. What I am allowed to do sometimes is make a deal with the casino. I call them and I say, hey, my friend is so-and-so. That friend would like to come in and gamble. They're only comfortable doing it if I can sit with them to help them be keen and aware to certain facets of certain games. Either you allow us both to come in together or neither of us at all will come in. The choice is yours. And I had made that comment in different words in another interview. I think it was Spencer's. I can't recall. And you also bit into that one. 
uh, you clearly use the word false. I don't know where you think that's false. Uh, you use the Ben Affleck uh, analogy. First of all, uh, Ben, uh, who's a nice guy, and kindly enough, uh, I have been invited to the game. Uh, you know what? I got to be careful. Uh, there's only so much uh, that I think is appropriate to say on public platforms. Uh, how do I say? Ben and I have different types of followings. Ben Affleck is a beautiful, beautifully huge name with great pieces of art behind it. And I'm some guy that the public thinks came out of nowhere and just started claiming winning gambling. Well, Ben Affleck, um, his biggest uh, draw would be the fact that he's Ben Affleck. Sure, people would want to meet Ben, get a picture, an autograph, or stay in the same hotel that he once stayed in. For me, because, I mean, I have proven quite a bit, and, it, uh, and we'll get into that in a second, but um, I am quite uh, closely watched by the gambling community that they want to know, where do I feel you can win and lose and such like that? So the casino is really weighing in on that. They're not so much saying, oh, I'm, a, I'm some type of celebrity-esque person, and I'm going to have this huge following of fans who's going to want to come and buy food and take photos with me. No, they want everybody wants to know what casinos do I sign off on. So if the casino says, well, I know you're going to post, and you're going to post with these other Ben Affleck's of the world in this casino, <laughs> that would do a lot in the gambling community to get us new players. Well, I actually agree with that. See, that, I don't, I don't doubt that some casinos let you film there for that reason because they think it'll be good promotion. And if you show you're winning there, then your viewers will see it and say, "Hey, I see this Mickey guy's winning a lot there. I want to go there and win a lot too." And then they'll go in, and the casinos love that. So I don't doubt that that's a reason they let you film. Um, and that's interesting, but that's yeah. not. Uh, you doubted it. You doubted it in your original uh, taping where you spoke about me. I, I think you like, misunderstood. Like, like, I, I never yeah. even discussed why they let you film there. I, I, I don't even think that came up. So it may be a misunderstood. You, you, said, you said false. Why would they take a loss on me, but they wouldn't take a loss on Ben Affleck, who's a bigger name? Oh, okay. So that's a different story. So that's, that's a different okay. story. So as far as letting you film versus letting you play, and let's get back to what you first said, that there's some casinos that will let you bring somebody else in and, and help them play, but they won't let you play. And so the... Follow-up question to that would be, if you're basically coaching someone on the proper strategy to beat them, why does it matter if it's you placing the bets or a buddy sitting next to you placing the bets in the way you say to place them? Well, generally speaking, when I have, and by the way, it's a case-by-case. Case. Every time I want to go in, I have to call and say, hey, guys, I'm coming in. And the times that I don't, which uh, some of the public figures I was with asked not to make public, some of them encouraged and didn't care. And we're talking about some of the biggest names. I, I can say three names, but I don't think I'm allowed to say some of the others, which include Roddy Rich, Tusi, and Little Baby. On separate occasions, they've witnessed me being removed, thrown out, uh, harassed by security, pit bosses, executives. I mean, they've watched it happen with their own eyes because we were there together. We pulled in together. We were sitting down together. And those guys obviously don't have any reason in the world to lie, uh, especially out on my behalf about gambling. These guys are, are musicians, not gamblers. What, you know, what do they care about uh, putting their, their career and reputation on the line, pretending or lying for some guy like me, right? But they wouldn't see things happen. So I have to call ahead of time and I have to say, hey, these are the terms I'd like to come in on. Can we do it? Sometimes they say no, but if you do it this way, you do that way, then we'll let you come in. 
So I make a lot of one-off deals. Um, I, I may have got a little sidetracked in your immediate question. If I did, feel, feel free to repeat it. I'm not trying to dodge any of the details of, your, of the responses you're looking for. Okay, that's, that's good. Uh, what I was asking is uh, why they allow you to bring anybody in uh, if, you're, if you're banned mm-hmm. there from playing yourself because you can beat them. Oh. Why, why would they let you bring a person who you're going to show how to play exactly like you and sit next to them as they're playing? Isn't that just like you playing? Well, so some of these guys will win a few hundred thousand, and uh, I imagine I'm going to make up. An, I'm totally going to make this up. I'm going to lie to you for a second and make up an answer. When some of these guys win a few hundred thousand, but they're posting a video standing with me saying, look what Nikki just helped me do, right? The business that it brings in is worth spending a couple hundred thousand on. So if you were to contact one of these guys and say, how much would I have to pay you to shout out a video of you standing in my casino winning, they would probably charge way more than a few hundred thousand I just helped them win. So you're saying the people they will let you do this with are ones that uh, are well-known enough to where they'd prefer to have them on uh, in an Instagram post or somewhere on camera uh, playing in the casino and winning as opposed to just some average Joe that people wouldn't know. They're saying, they like, if you just brought in, let's say you called in and said you're going to bring me in. You're banned from there, but well, you're going to bring me in. They wouldn't let you do it because I'm not a well-known person, right? I would say that's probably usually and mostly accurate. I don't want to say definitively because I'm sure there's times I've finessed situations where I came in with, uh, you know, John Doe's and they just were like, do what you want, you know, be in and out of here in three hours. And I said, no problem. But what, I will be honest with you, when it comes to guys, let's just call it that, are, whose names are irrelevant in media, let's say like that, right? Humbly and respectfully, because everybody matters and everybody's equal. But when it comes, you know, media, certain names are recognizable. When I come in with a guy whose name is not recognizable, to be honest with you, I try to avoid all that because in my head, I'm running a tally and I say, I probably have only so many more chances to do something like this at a property I'm 86 from. So I try to stick to one of the three that I'm allowed in. You know, most of those guys don't have crazy money they're bringing where it takes negotiated limits anyway. So if a guy gave me, I'm going to make this up and say 50,000 or 100,000 and he's, you know, not a famous person, I probably, and he asked me where I want to play, I'll probably just name. One of the three, but honestly, it's one of the two places I'm allowed to walk in on. So I've got a question regarding the 86th part since you brought it up. Um, Sure. So what I keep hearing from people is that, yes, you really are banned from a lot of casinos, but that it's not for the reasons you say. I'm hearing that the reasons is because of uh, misbehavior, and I've seen people, and I know people who've gotten banned from casinos who are big-time losing gamblers uh, because they're they're such – a hassle there and cause so much havoc that uh, the casino just doesn't want them. And I, I even mentioned yeah. on my broadcast about you, the biggest loser of all time, to my knowledge, Terrence Watanabe, mm-hmm. was actually banned from yeah, the win. Right. So but just yeah, being I, banned doesn't mean you're winning. So is it true that you've been banned from s- some places uh, because of behavior rather than winning? And what percentage of those are like that rather than for winning? Uh... So for behavior, I, I I don't want to misspeak, but I believe it's only one uh, casino group, and it's uh, uh, Fatucci's, it's uh, Red Rock and Red Rock uh, Sister Casinos. That one was behavior. That one I can get lifted, and I've, I've been able to get that one lifted for some time. I just haven't really cared to because I, I just don't really care. Um, other than that, I can give you a rough breakdown of what every casino will tell you is the reason they banned me, and I can tell you a, a little bit more about the reality of it. So the win, uh, including the Encore, is actually the only casino that kept it 100 with me. I played there two times in my life. That's not true. 
I played there a third time once when I was with uh, Logan Paul, Ryan Garcia, and Mike Maylas. Um, but that one, I think, was a special situation. And I'm not really sure how I got away with it, to be honest with you. Uh, we had, like, it's on camera, too. We didn't post about it, but we filmed it. And, like, we spent, like, a lot of time. Like, that's where Mike wanted to stay that trip. So we went up to his room, and I said, guys, I definitely can't be here. Um, I mean, I couldn't have had a clear conversation with the executives that I can't be here. And um, we were just like, wonder what would happen if I tried to buy in here. We were just like, I wonder, because I haven't been inside the wind since. But wait, I'm a little confused. Why, not- why were you banned from the wind in the first place? For winning too much. So the win is the only place that kept it 100% with me. Now, let me, let me rephrase exactly what response I just gave you. It was not for winning too much. Let me be a little bit, let me be quite more specific. It was in the fashion in which I won the amount that I won. So when I played at the win, I played two times in my life, minus like that one random time where I played very small with, with Logan, Mike, and Ryan, right? And that came way later down the road. So realistically speaking, I played two times in my life at the win. The first time I showed up, I forget, um, two million or three million in cash. I forgot I forget exactly the amount. And I had uh, lost and I said, Okay, no problem. It's the first time I've ever been here. I'm not quite familiar with uh, your guys' format, your system. I'm just learning, no problem. It cost me a couple dollars to learn, but I'll figure it out. And then I went next door to I think it was MGM Grand. And I think I split between MGM Grand and the Palazzo, I think, and I won like four and a half million. So I think I left either two and a half or one and a half million dollar winner after that week. I forget exactly the details, but roughly that's it. Okay, no problem. So that I come back a couple weeks later with a million dollars in cash, and I won in incredibly aggress- aggressive fashion. You guys be back in a bit? There you go. See you in a bit. And then I won an incredibly uh, aggressive fashion uh, in one shoe. So I played, uh, what's really, I think it was maybe two-thirds of a shoe. I think I played two-thirds of one shoe. And when I finished playing that shoe, I was told to never come back again. And when I asked why, and I had so many people were standing around me, especially from this secret world of high-stakes elite gambling, because we're all meeting up to go to dinner. All of these people were standing around me and all of these suits approached me and they said, please don't come back. What happened was there was a note attached to my account from, I think his name is Johnson. Who's the guy that took over after Steve? Johnson, I think. I'm forgetting the name. Yeah, I think his name is Johnson, the new CEO, but I forget his name exactly. He personally had attached the note. Hey, listen, you're, you're in the gambling world. You're going to do it anyway, so I encourage you to call the win and ask him about this. You got me on recording, too. They can't I, I don't think they'll answer. I'd love to, but they'll say we can't discuss other players. No problem. We can call together. I don't. We listen. If you're ever in Vegas and I'm in Vegas, let's just drive up and talk to them. I'd, I'd be glad to. But yeah. Anyway, uh, go on. Nope. Anyway, yeah. So I, I uh, saw these suits approach me, and they said that uh, I think his name is Johnson. The C. Anyway, the guy, this new CEO or CFO or whatever it is, the guy to go for Steve has uh, personally put a note on my account that says to contact him, whether it be night, day, holiday, or indifferent, uh, if, uh, when I'm on property. So uh, uh, they call him. It was like 11 o'clock at night or something like that at this point. And they call him. Uh, it took a long time to get a hold of him. I stood in the lobby like an idiot with all these people, like a moron, for like two hours or something. And finally the suits come to me and they say, uh, Mr. So-and-so, we need to ask you to leave. And I said, uh, what do you mean? 
They said, oh, we cannot take your action in, in this company. And we went on and we joked for a little bit. And I said, can you just tell me the words? You know what I want to hear. Can you say it? Tell me why you're asking me to leave and I can't play here anymore. And in front of all of us, like 15 of us, including all these other staff executives, they said, you're too good. And I made a joke. And my buddy, who I call my coach, was sitting on a chair. And I actually climbed on him upside down because sometimes I act a fool because I can. And I climbed on him and I said, you heard that, everybody? And everybody was laughing. The execs were laughing. So what happened was to really break down how I played that last time, I was playing, first of all, I slapped it. Now, when I post a million dollars, they only let me bet 75000 a hand. So that was the most I was allowed to bet. Now, what game was this at? What game was this? Baccarat. 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 I could even tell you which table I was at. When you walk into the high limit, the Baccarat side, when you're walking from the hallway, the pit, and you're facing the wall, which would put the roulette table halfway down and on your right, there's a box table to your left and your right when you walk in through the threshold. And then there's a second... uh, and uh, no, sorry, there's a third and a fourth box table sitting uh, um, immediately opposing them, right? So I was sitting on the second table on the right, which would be the closest one to the roulette table. That's the exact table this took place on. So they only let me bet 75000 a hand. And for the first five hands, I'm going to slightly make this up and say I bet 25 k and 50 k you know, just teetering a little bit for the first five or so hands. And roughly around the sixth hand, I'm betting table max, which they let me at 75 k and I played the rest of the two-thirds of the shoe, again, roughly two-thirds of the shoe, playing 75K a hand every hand. I was very focused, and I won nearly all the hands, and in such aggressive fashion that I actually would bet three hands before the cards came out. So if you, and you got to say, listen, there's going to be executives from the win that are listening to this, so they can fact-check me. They're going to tell you. They'll, I'm sure that executives from the win and the encore that have the ability to pull the tapes will, and they're going to send you an email. I'm sure they will. And they're going to tell you if this is not true, I'm sure they're going to do it. So I'm happy to put this on recording. So I played where I had all three 75 K bets. So as a, uh, 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 for the current hand I'm playing, I'd make the bet sitting at the actual seat I was in. I'm going to make this up and say seat three, right? I'll put, I'm going to, again, I'll make this example up, but I, this is really what I did. I put 75 K on player. And then to the right of that, it's 75K on bank, let's say, and then another 75K on bank on the hand. So I'm playing three in a row, but I'm only betting uh, what's on front of me and one to the right and one to the right. I was, so when they review the tapes, and they, they, by the way, they watch me when I play. They sit, uh, they have some staff, pit boss and four people, stand around me with a notepad, uh, uh, with a clipboard, many pieces of paper attached to the clipboard and a pen. And they have to surround me when I play. And this is at all the properties, by the way. And they make notes on every single thing I'm doing. So they have one, somebody literally standing over my shoulder with pen and paper. There's somebody watching them, somebody watching that person, and every eye in the sky is watching in the office. This is like not, this is like not pretend. This is real. It couldn't be more real. I mean, I can't, how many executives are going to listen to this and tell you that I'm lying if I'm lying? So I don't mind putting this on the air. So I'm playing and I'm betting three hands at a time. Uh, uh, I'm foreshadowing. I'm sorry. I'm foreshadowing three hands of Baccarat at a time and I'm winning nearly all of them and I dominated them in such aggressive fashion not only flat betting but I'm projecting three hands into the future every time the dealers could not keep up and they had to tell me they had to say look we get that you've already determined your future bets we need you to stop doing that because obviously you know for logistical reasons if you lose one that has your money on bank, but you the other and the other hand is player. You could theoretically claim no, no, you're betting your player bet, which obviously makes sense. Right, let me stop you. What do you mean by, by projecting uh, three bets into the future? 
So let's say I'm going to make this up that we are on hand number 56 of the shoe, right? And I'm going to place my bet on bank, for example. So for hand 56, I've already made a decision. I'm putting $75,000 on bank. But while looking at the board, I say to myself, I'm already foreshadowing that hand 57 will be player and hand 58 will also be player. So you announce this out, out are you announcing this out loud? I put my money on the table and I told the dealer. I did this for like roughly a third of the shoe before they told me for obvious reasons I can't do that anymore. So for like, uh, I don't know, like a third of the shoe, whatever it may have been, I literally am placing 75K on seat number three, 75K on seat number four, and 75K on seat number five, telling the dealer, this is for this hand. Seat four is for the next hand. And oh, I see. So they, it, that was that seems more like a uh, regulatory situation where any money that's placed, you can't just project for future hands that they they have to do it for this hand. That's probably why they told you to stop. Of course, of course, which makes sense. But for a little while, they let me do it, and I think they saw that. I mean, I'm how can they probably think to themselves, how would this guy possibly correctly guess what the third hand for now is going to be? But then do that for twenty hands in a row. Yeah, well, um, I, I wonder that too, actually. <laughs> so, um, yeah, of course you do, and so does the rest of the world. But to, to tell me I'm a scammer, a liar, and a fraud is not really fair to me. Well, okay, but I, again, I didn't say that. See, I didn't say you were a scammer, a liar, and a fraud. But any time someone makes uh, a claim like this, which is a pretty extraordinary claim, you can't just say, yes, like I, I could tell you uh, I'm going to walk out my front door and, and I'm going to fly right now by flapping my arms. And you could say you're a liar. You can't do that. And I'll say, well, you know, you don't know. I really can't. Can, but uh, of course, you'd walk away believing I can't really fly by flapping my arms. So whenever you see something you haven't seen before that's pretty extraordinary, until you see an example of it, uh, even them telling a story of what occurred uh, isn't enough. Now, I realize uh, there's no way to put myself back in time at the win and, and watch you, but uh, that kind of leads me to my next question here. Well, actually, before I get to the next question, uh, you, you talked about the win. What, what are some other places that have banned you for uh, winning too much or being too good? Because I, I actually have been banned from casinos, like for playing blackjack, for, quote, being too good, even some places where I lost and they just didn't want to wait for me to come back and beat them. So they saw the way I was uh, playing and, and kicked me, and, and that's exactly the language they used. They said, you're too good, and told me I can't continue playing there. So that I know it's not just sure. always about winning. It's also about uh, what they perceive to be your ability, but uh, what other places besides the win have done this? So nearly all in Vegas. Again, I only have three that I'm uh, free to, well, I only have three that I can play with, with no exceptions. You know, like I could just go in and play like uh, no hassle. Uh, there is other hassle, you know, within those three even, I will say that, but they're different. They're more mild and we all have like an agreement like, hey, I don't bother you. Don't bother me, but I can do anything crazy. And if I'm going to do anything crazy, I'll call ahead so we can all be prepared. Um, I don't want to necessarily rattle the list because again, I did agree to, I do have an understanding with these, those three casinos that I'm not going to stir their feathers. I'm not going to stir mine. So obviously by process of elimination, you can figure it out. Uh, I will say this. Um, I have, uh, how do I say this? I'm not sure that I'm even supposed to be in possession of something. There was a casino that I did incredibly well at actually my best one. Um, and uh, I had won a million dollars for some really famous people there. And it was actually not that long ago. They had um, on and off prevented me from coming in. We're going to call it for like, I don't know, nine months, maybe nine months. And without warning, they would just uh, 
tell me lies. I mean, like obvious lies and BS. But at the end of the day, like I can't. I would be. I would say to them, "You're lying," you know. And they'd be like, well, "What do you want to do about it?" You know. And that's the end of it. I can't come in. So, uh, but there was this one casino. After I won this million dollars for these really, really with this group of very famous people, uh, and they had they had made posts about it on their their own channel. That starting the next day, they called me and I didn't answer the phone. For, it was the vice president of the company, and I didn't answer the phone for him because it's not my job to answer his calls. I can care less. I have anything to say. A couple weeks go, uh, two weeks go by after him calling me every day. I finally answer the phone, and I was with somebody and I was in LA. I was in the Beverly Center, and I answered the phone. And they say, uh, Mickey, and I says, yeah. And they says, uh, don't ever come back. And I said, why? And the vice president said, I'm not permitted to tell you why. I'm only permitted to tell you that you are never to return to our property. And I sat for like four or five minutes on the phone. Why, why, why? I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand. Can you repeat it? Can you tell me this? Can you make sense of this for me? And he just refused. So if you were to call this company, I have no idea because I haven't contacted them since because it wasn't that long ago. Uh, I don't know what they would say. I can tell you uh, there's another company, which I think is the, they own the most, I think this is a fact, they own the most uh, casinos in Las Vegas. Uh, obviously, you know which one I'm talking about. I'm not going to confirm or deny. It's the number one, the biggest one, <clears throat> and they own the most uh, land, the most, most, the most casinos. <clears throat> but I, but I don't want to call them out individually. I don't want to do that. But, uh, <clears throat> so what happened with them was in one of their properties, uh, a friend of mine was over there. And my friend said to me, would you mind bringing some action over here? And I said, I don't mind. I know, and they know we've talked about it a million times that they will not give me negotiated limits at this particular property because as an individual entity, God forbid I hit them the way I have hit some of their sister companies. They may not be able to afford it, especially if it's a, a, a new post COVID, right? So I said, uh, I don't mind. Uh, it's not going to be a lot of money because I can only bet 20K a hand. But sure, you know, I love you. You, you love me and no problem. So I go and they changed all their systems in Baccarat. They changed their screens. They changed their shuffling machines. They changed, uh, they changed the plastic shoe itself. They changed everything. And I sit down without warning. I'm looking and I go, what the heck is this? I can't make any sense of the screen. I says, to the, I says to the dealer, I says, what does uh, this data on the screen mean? There's a whole new section I'm unfamiliar with. The dealer says, I don't know. I asked the dealer next door, sitting next to the next table. I said, do you know what this means? The dealer says, I have no idea. None of us could figure it out. I said, excuse me, pit, pit boss, do you know what this means? Pit boss says, I have no idea what it means. I said, okay, I'm going to do trial by fire. It's not a lot of money. I'll figure it out. So I play uh, a hand, the first hand of the shoe, don't recall the details. The second hand of the shoe, I bet, I believe it was bank, and player won with a seven-deuce natural nine. No big deal. I lost the hand. It happens all the time. Except that as I'm looking on the monitor to prepare my bet for the third hand, because by the way, I play from the very first hand to the very last hand. I don't do like five free hands. I rarely take a free hand mid-shoe. I really don't do that. I play almost every hand. Anyway. So as I'm looking at the monitor to make a decision where I'm betting on my third hand, it says player one with a six, three. And I said, wait a second. Then the cards are still out. I said, nobody touch anything. I said, can somebody explain to me why I'm looking at a seven deuce on the felt, but a six, three on the monitor? How can this happen? Somebody explain this. Obviously, nobody knew an answer. Obviously. I said, I know you guys don't know the answer. Don't touch the cards. 
please bring one of the suits down here. They brought a suit down, they called, and somebody came down, and I said, excuse me, I need you to explain why seven deuce on the felt and six three on the monitor. And the suit looked at me and said, oh, I don't know, it must be a glitch in the system. I said, hold on. I live and die by the data on this monitor. What do you mean a glitch in the system? You're telling me that this monitor can make up any data it wants to equate any information it wants and then relay that to all of the people placing wagers now blindly, ignorantly, and misinformed because your system has a glitch which may or may not be manipulated behind the scenes by you? And they go, uh, yeah, basically. And I says, how does that work? How is that correct? How, how can that be uh, fair? How is that fair? And I said, you're cheating. And they said, oh, we're cheating? I said, look, man, the, the cards are on the table and the monitor's still up. You're cheating. They said, we need you to pack your stuff and get out in 30 minutes. I said, okay, fine. What do you think was happening there? Why would, why would they put down 6-3 on the monitor if you had 7-2? What would be the advantage to them? Well, it's not a secret that these monitors can be manipulated, adjust, change. They can even be done in real time. Now, if you play Baccarat, sometimes a dealer makes an honest mistake. Sometimes it happens. We're all human. So sometimes a dealer will pull an extra card or they'll push the button on the shoe not realizing that bank needs to draw a third card. Things will happen. So then you have to call a floor person over and say, excuse me, a mistake was made. We need you to erase this hand, right? And there's, there's, I don't know if you ever noticed, there's a keypad under the monitor with buttons on it. Well, a pit boss will pick up that keypad, plug in some things, and it can erase as many hands as they want, and they can also add as many hands as they want. No, I, I believe you. I'm just, to, I'm actually, I'm yeah. asking something different, but what would be the purpose of them doing this? What would they gain from, from doing what you're accusing them of doing? So let's give a hypothetical, because I'm not going to tell you exactly what it is that I look for when I play. But let's pretend that I only play the blue slashes. You know what I'm talking about? The, blue, the hash marks? Um, red and blue hash marks on them. That's one of the keys they give, one of the, the, the pieces of information. No, I'm not familiar with that. I, I don't play Baccarat that much. I've played it some, but okay. I'm not a big Baccarat player. Okay, so quick explanation. There's a key, and the key changes every single hand. And three things are representing the bank, and three things representing the player. And it goes by red and blue. But red does not equate bank, and blue does not equate player. It just is what it is. One is red, one is blue. And every hand it switches, which are representing which hand. So let's pretend that I'm only willing to bet when the blue hash mark is dropping past four. Because like, it'll run in a, in a pattern, let's say hypothetically. So that means four times in a row, the key that said blue hash, that's what I bet. Sometimes it's player, sometimes it's bank. But let's say I'm only following the blue hash. Let's pretend. But they've decided, because they're watching me, and they study my gaming. I mean, they, they have like a whole team that's sitting there taking notes on me every hand I bet. And they decided, wow, Mickey will only bet uh, wherever the blue hashes are determined to go in a, in a streak. I'm making that up. That's not what I do. But let's say that's, for example, what I do do, and they've determined that, right? Well, now they must say to themselves, he's obviously going to bet where the blue hash is when it comes for the fifth time. But what if we manipulate it? What if we know that he knows the algorithm that determines where the blue hash goes? What if we know that he knows that? We already know that he's predetermined to bet that fifth blue hash, which he also, just like us, know will be bank or player, whichever one it's going to be. But what if they changed it 
behind the scenes where it was supposed to be player on the fifth hand, but they changed the information. So it's actually going to be bank on the fifth hand. So now when I'm looking at it, I'm looking for the blue hash, even though I've already determined it's going to be player because I know the algorithm, but all of a sudden come for the fifth hand when I'm double checking my own math. And I say, Oh, wait a second. I must've made a mistake. Blue is not player. Blue is bank. Oh, let me switch my bet and bet bank. But they've manipulated it because they know. And I know that it was supposed to be player that fifth hand. They've now tricked me by via cheating into betting bank. I see. So they're, they're throwing you off then what, the way you're going to be betting. That's that's the purpose that you feel what they were pulling there. Completely accurate, yes. Okay. So let me move on to something else here. I noticed in uh, some of your videos you mentioned a coach that would come with you sometimes. Uh, since it seems like that you have a winning strategy down from what you're saying and you're, you're really beating the casinos very hard and the wind banned you for that reason because they believe you're skillful. Where would a coach come into this? Shouldn't you be the coach? Why would you have a coach? So there's two answers to this. The first is it really came from a joke. Coach Ian is my best friend. You know, and it was as simple as that. We met both in business together. I was based on the East coast and he was based in uh, California and uh, I was um, doing business with a company based in California, but because I couldn't be present, they appointed someone to, to be my point of contact. So me and him were on the phone 24 hours a day doing uh, logistics, and he was help facilitating m- my operations because he was, he was my hands on the ground. And we became, realized that we were just similar people and became best friends. And then when I moved to California, we remained best friends. He's also a complete degenerate gambler, and he has been his whole life, and he's much older than I am, uh, even though he looks young. So the truth is it was a joke because he, had, he was my road dog. That's it. He was my best friend. Every week we drive from L.A. to Vegas together. We stay in Vegas indefinitely. Neither of us had a technical job anymore. We didn't have to sign in anywhere. We didn't have a nine to five. And that's it. We just rode out. And as I'm learning and perfecting my craft, he just sat with me the whole way along. He was with me the whole journey. So he saw the transformation. He saw us, me and him both go from degenerate gamblers for fun into – uh, sharks and then whales. And then, you know, he, he was there with me the whole way. So what happened was as my best friend, he would hold me accountable. He would say, bro, you didn't sleep for 36 hours and now you're losing money. Why do, I'm, I'm taking your chips off the table and because we're best friends. You're not going to fight me. And he would be like, bro, I'm taking your chip. Get off the table. You need to go to bed. Or he'd be like, Hey man, we haven't ate since breakfast. It's 11 PM. We're going to get some food or, Hey man, you're, you're worked up right now. Let's go get your dicks up. Let's call, let hit your DM, call one of these girls in town. That's been, you know, nonstop texting you. Let's get you laid. That's really what it is. So you're saying he's like a, a like a life coach. He's not a gambling coach and he's also your friend. He's a life, he's a life coach, but only in the context of my gambling. Right. I'll tell you in real life, um, he and I both have a running joke that if he was running my life, we'd both be in the dirt. You know what I mean? It's just a joke. He doesn't give me advice that's so relevant in the rest of my life. He's just my friend in the rest of real life. When it comes to gambling, he's the only one in the world that's been with me from day one till now. So you're so saying he, he, he sits with you during the gambling and kind of makes sure you, you don't go off track. That's it. As simple as that. He holds okay. me accountable. He goes, bro. He goes, how much are you trying to win today? I'll say $2 million. So, so he'll, he'll keep an eye on how much commission I owe. He'll keep an eye on my chips. He'll pocket some of my chips. So I don't, you know what I mean? Like, like you know how like sometimes a wife will take a husband's winnings so he doesn't lose everything back? You know? He'll do those things for me. It's as simple as that. Okay. Moving on here. 
this uh, Mike V guy who appeared in uh, the video that's been very well shared with him and that uh, Kendall uh, Dodgers minor league player. He has come on Reddit, as I'm sure you know, and uh, and claimed that $150,000 he gave you on the third attempt to gamble for him disappeared, and he's not getting a good explanation for it. Now, I will say I have not spoken to him. I have had no direct contact with him either online or on the phone or text or anything. I've never had any communication with him. I've only read what he has posted on Reddit. Uh, it does seem like he set up some websites about you. It does seem like he's uh, gearing up to say a bunch of stuff and he has already said a bunch of stuff so how do you respond to his claim that $150,000 disappeared and quote isn't recoverable uh friggin Mike V man yeah I talked to Mike I talked to him yesterday Mike V was a really close friend of mine he had uh everything accessible in my life to him he had joined my friend circle you know he's even like in our inner circle group chat text threads and I've let him stay at my house in LA and I've let him stay at my house in Vegas. My friend, my other, our other friends let him stay. He's partied with us. He's been all types of stuff. You know, he's been around for a lot of the sex capades. He's been involved in so many things with us and I had so much love for him. Um, but you know, like a lot of rappers talk about some of your closest enemies or your closest friends, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't, I underestimated his motive, I suppose. I, I, the truth is, I don't want to speak too much on Mike. I think he's done a few really beautiful, wonderful things that were beneficial to both of us. He's offered me some things in life. I've offered things to him and his brother. His brother has a great position with a company. He actually now owns a company, which was uh, I didn't realize was directly because of me. I didn't realize that, but I will say his brother earned it on his own. I didn't do anything in that fashion to hand it to him. I don't want to speak too much on Mike. Uh, he and I talk every day. Um, I, I think that the, the correct response to what he's saying online is that he's sort of grasping uh, or reaching, reaching is the word. I think he's sort of reaching for things that are just not fair, uh, or accurate. Uh, Mike V is a winner for life, by the way, with me, that's no question. He is super open about that. Um, there's some other things, uh, between he and I that, he doesn't necessarily discuss. I don't necessarily discuss, and I don't think we should. I think Mike and I are going to keep that between ourselves. Overall, Mike um, was a great friend. Um, uh, he, if you ask him, um, you can reach out. To, I don't care. Reach out to the guy. I'm sure you will. That's fine. I don't care. Um, but he'll tell you. You know. I mean, yeah, I made him a lot of money. I made him. I made him a life changing amount of money. And he's also done things for me that were really nice and considerate and thoughtful. But I think he's reaching. I think he maybe had ulterior motives. And the closer to my inner circle he got, I think possibly he saw an opportunity to take advantage of me or certain situations. Um, I don't think everything that he's displaying is truth. But I don't, I will not, and I am not accusing him of telling dishonesties either. I do not. He is not, and I don't think he intends to tell lies. I think he's just misguided and he's reaching. Okay, well, like you don't have to explain all the issues between you and him. Obviously, if you, especially if you were friends before this, there there can be a lot of things that aren't really anybody's business. The only thing I'm really uh, concerned about was he said that the first two times he gambled with you that he won, and then the third time he's suspicious because the 150k he gave you got played without telling him beforehand that you guys just did it so he never even got to see if it really was played and then he was told it's quote not recoverable so it's it's pretty simple either you had an agreement 
to tell him you're going to play before you played or you didn't, and then if you did have that agreement... Mike, Mike this is the last I'm going to say on this. What happened really was Mike V was upset. He had asked me... Uh, he's been present for a lot of the celebrities that I'm um, friends with when they want to gamble, and he always asked me to be involved with the celebrities, and sometimes I don't think that's appropriate. He wanted me to gamble at 150 for him. He asked if it could be done in a certain timeline, and he knew I was meeting with some very recognizable celebrity figures. I told him, no, you cannot be present, and it had nothing to do with him or his money. It was the fact that my schedule was bombarded with some very, very famous people, and it was not an appropriate setting. That was what upset Mike the most and initiated this entire chain of events that is leading to manipulating facts. Okay, but did you really uh, gamble the 150 and lose it, or what, what happened with that? I don't want to speak on uh, finances directly with Mike. That, that's uh, personally for Mike, and uh, he and I have discussions. But this uh, concept he led that I took this 150 and ran off was not accurate. He was just upset that he wasn't involved with certain of my scheduling and certain of the people around me. That's how it all started. So this is the first text he sent me out of, out of his uh, emotional uh, uh, mindset. He said, you told me you weren't going to be with such and such person at this hour, but I see you posting stories on Instagram. Why wasn't I invited? That's how it all started. It seems like he has yeah, more to say. I don't, I, I, don't, I don't know if he's going to I, say more, but... Yeah, no, Mike and I talk every day. Like I said, we went from being almost like brothers. We were so close. It happened in a short amount of time, I will say that, but really fast, we got really close. So he and I talk every day. I don't want to put all of his finances out there. Anytime I ever posted him was with his full consent, and right now we are, our friendship is not doing well, and I don't want to discuss his personal finances. Whether he won $10 billion, gajillion dollars, or he or I lost him every penny he had to his name, regardless without his full consent and a discussion between he and I, I don't think it's the right appropriate thing to do. He did give me permission to say that he's uh, up for life one way or another. However you want to interpret that, feel free. I can care less. Uh, but he's happy with the world knowing that he is up for life and that he made smart, sound decisions with me. Uh, but, but our personal friendship, he and I, is slightly on the rocks right now, and neither he nor I know how it's going to continue. Um, but about the Reddit thing, just so you know, Reddit can suck my dick. I don't care. Um, I think all you guys can sort of suck my dick. Uh, I want to say it's with respect and with love. I just don't really appreciate some of you guys coming at me like that. You don't know. Man, we're going to continue the interview. Don't worry. Like, I'm, you know, we're going to continue. I'm going to answer all your questions. I don't mind. But again, the fame and the cloud and the celebrity aspect that I'm bringing your stream is wonders for you. I have no incentive. All I'm doing here is offering a liability against myself. I'm offering more information for more people to pick apart. I'm exposing more of my inner self and my heart and my truth and my experiences that I've bled for, I've died for, I've gone to war for, for you guys to bust my balls and give me a hard time. I really don't care. But at the end of the day, I am a human being. I have feelings and I've worked so hard for the life that I have that for all of you idiots who have never been even close to witnessing this firsthand to tell me it's not real, I said it kind of hurts my feelings. Why don't I just set the record straight? Yeah, I understand that. It's just this is the internet, and when you broadcast your life out there, that's the way people get. That's the way people are. So anyway, going on here, this is something uh, you may or may not know about. I'm just curious since we talked about Mike. Kendall, I'm a big Dodgers fan. I have been since the 70s. Oh, Kendall's my boy. Yeah, Kendall's so, my dog. 
He, he seems, I'm looking at his Twitter, and I haven't had any communication with him either, but he seems like a little on edge, which is unusual for a baseball player. Usually the stressful times in a minor league baseball player's life is, is during the season if they have bad outings or they're afraid they may not make the majors and all that. But usually in December, January, uh, their life doesn't change very much because they're not playing. But it seems like he's kind of on edge on his Twitter. He's selling his what, truck. He, he says he's talking. Because he posted he wants to sell his truck. Let me just tell you the truth. Because the, the, the assumption you made is so erroneous. The man bought another truck. He's a single guy who lives in, who lives in a high-rise in downtown San Diego. What's he going to do with two trucks? Oh, yeah, the truck blew up. The man's got another vehicle. Which he doesn't need two. He's a 21-year-old single man who lives in a high-rise in downtown San Diego. The building probably only offered him one parking spot. I mean, okay, no, it's, that's very possible. I was, I, no, I was just asking you. Hey, he also seems like he's talking about adversity. He seems like he's stressed at the moment, and I was, uh, I was just kind of curious. The man is twenty. Let me tell you something. The man is twenty-one years old. He is trying out to be the uh, a pitcher for the L.A. Dodgers uh, MLB starting team. Are you kidding me? The stress that man. He's twenty-one years old. Can you imagine the stress he's under? No, I can, and that's what I was saying. That I would expect that in the, in the summer when maybe he has a bad outing, he gives up eight runs, and he's like, "Shit, no, this is going to no, ruin my chances." Let me slow you down. Let me slow you down because Kendall's a very good friend of mine, so I, he talks to me almost every day. Do you understand that if they're playing during the summer, that they're doing all the work during the winter? I mean, that has to make sense to you, right? Oh no, I know a lot about it. I'm just saying the stressful part of the job when you're a minor league player comes from uh, any kind of bad outing you might have during the minor league season, which might affect your chances of making the majors. Because if you have enough bad outings and they give up on you, then you're screwed, and you say, "Okay, what do I do now?" If you make the majors, then then you could be uh, on easy street. You can end up with a big money. So obviously, every that's deal, every deal that has to be made, negotiated, contract signed, <coughs> training, tryouts, learning the pitches. That's done now. That man is slaving every day to be a starter for the L.A. Dodgers, to come from the minors to the majors. That man is slaving every day right now. He's 21 years old. Nobody trained him on how to handle these contracts. So what? He wants to make a tweet about being under stress. Are you kidding me? I would probably fold in half. Okay. I'm, I'm just curious. I, I mean, uh, I I hope he makes it. He seems like a nice kid, and uh, I actually read some about him. He seems like uh, he's one of their better prospects, so uh, hopefully he, he... He's a beautiful human being. He's such a great person. He's so cool, man. And because of him, I got to meet so many other athletes in similar positions as him, and now a lot of us are friends, but Kendall and I are very good friends. Um, he's a great person, but this is dumb. I mean, just think about it. The man is 21. He's a kid. He's 21 years old, and he wants... He, he, and he's trying to be a pitcher for the L.A. Dodgers in, in the majors. I mean, the, the stress? Come on, brother. Come on, man. You're, you're running a radio here for free for, to give away free roll. The man's trying to become a pitcher, make $100 million a year at 21 years old. Stress? Cut the kid a break. No, I am cutting him a break. I, I like the kid. I hope he succeeds. I'm being serious about that. And I'm a Dodgers fan, too. I'll be happy to see him in a Dodgers uniform and uh, pitching for the big club there. Anyway, um, let, let's get to something a little lighter here. On the Spencer follow-up video, you showed him some girls texting you. Uh, one th- I lived in Vegas for a number of years. One thing I'm very familiar with is that there's a lot of hookers there, and if they see an opportunity, they jump on it. As I mentioned, even when I'd be walking through the Bellagio at 3 a.m., I'd have hookers by the slot machines that would keep approaching me. Hey, you need some fun tonight? Hey, you need yeah. some fun tonight? And I'd just keep walking by. I remember that in the other radio you did, you made a comment about, do I ever consider that girls are only after me for my money? Well, hold on one second. Hey, yo, Dad, you over there? 
Hey, this guy's surprised that girls like rich guys instead of poor guys. Can you believe it? No, I didn't say that. What? You said all women generally prefer, prefer guys with money and a luxury lifestyle where they can provide the finer things in life that other men can't? You're telling me that men slave every day of their life to make the most money they can so they can get the best, most beautiful women on this planet and do fun things? Oh, oh, my dad says that's almost every man in the world. Is no, I, that's 100% true. And and I actually said that. I said these could just be women who see all the money and, and figure that you'll buy them things or that they'll get to have nice dinners or go do fun things with all money, the money. I will take pussy for being rich every day. What are you talking okay, about? Okay, I guess my question for you here, obviously it has something to do with the money, but my question here is, are these actually hookers who are being paid uh, like no, for the time to come? Well, I, this is... This, on a very, very humble and heart-to-heart uh, answer, I'll tell you the real truth. Uh, six years ago, I made a lot of changes in my life. I quit cursing. I quit cigarettes. I quit uh, weed and drugs and alcohol and, uh, and many, many other things. And one of the things I did, this, this is real. Uh, there's really no way for you to fact check this, but I, you're either going to believe me or not. It is what it is. But I made a deal with God. And I am a man of God, and I, and I, and I am close with God, uh, that I would no longer uh, make transactions for sex. Now, at the end of the day, there's an easy theory that says every woman has a price and every man's always paying in one way or another. Fine, those things are true. But I made a very specific agreement with the God of my understanding as to what is an acceptable way to engage with women that may be after me for the finer things that I can offer them and what's not acceptable. So do I bang girls that do on their own accept money for sex? A thousand percent, and I'm going to keep doing it. Now... Do I pay these girls for sex? I do not, and I will continue not doing that. Okay, so that would lead me to the question, if these girls are hookers for other guys except you, or some of them are. The thing is, I think so many girls that it would be impossible for for some of them not to be hookers. Okay, but what what would be the if you're they're not getting money out of it? What would be the motivation? I guess unless you're you're taking them out to do other things that cost money. I so. Uh, one thing is that I do offer a really fun life. I'm constantly traveling and doing really cool things that most people on the whole planet, including yourself, have never even came close to reaching. So the fact that these girls only have to throw their pussy or their mouth near my dick, and I'm like, hey, why don't you join me for this? That's an incredible, that's an incredibly low price they're paying for what I'm doing for them, right? I'm also a really cool dude, generally speaking. I also have a really great dick and work that out pretty quickly. Okay. All right, let, let's get to something a little more serious here. As I'm sure you heard me comment on that segment I did about you, when you showed Spencer the record from one casino and you, you were up a ton of money, which, by the way, unlike some of the haters that say it was faked or you made a fake website, yeah. I, be, I believe is real. I think you showed him a real thing. So <laughs> I, I did I did say see you multiple times state that you believe what I showed him was real. Obviously, what you're about to follow up with the rest of the sentence is, why didn't you show him the rest? Why didn't you show him the couple of casinos that have live updates? Why didn't you show him all of the casinos? Correct. That's that in- good. That, okay. That's good. You you predicted my question yeah, in easy, advance. Easy so answer. so what's super the answer? Easy answer. Super, super easy. I offered to do all of that. I still can do all of that. I was so willing to do all of that. He and I spent an entire day together, and he condensed it into a 25-minute video. He says in his video, hey, guys, Mickey and I spoke a ton of stuff that I'm not putting in this video. We only have 25 minutes. If you feel that I did not insert in any, something into the video that you felt should have been inserted, let me know. This conversation, I tell him, bro. I said, how many casinos do you want to sell? I'll get all of them. Well, I'm letting you know, I'm a massive winner in Vegas. This is like a fact. I literally told that man. 
take my phone and look at anything you want. I told him he didn't put the rest of the clip in. I said, how many casinos do you want me to log into? And now we're in 2021. So when we did this, it was at the very, very end of the year. They didn't have 2021. And to be honest, I think I didn't check yet, but I think it takes a little bit of time to update their systems. I don't know if this quickly, today's like January 3rd or something. I don't know. Um, I don't know if this quickly is even updated, but at any time I can do that for him. And I like Spencer and, uh, uh, and I would always do that for him. And he knows that, uh, he and I are in communication now. I offered, so to answer your question in short, I offered it to him. He literally throughout the day, he's watching my life and he goes, there's no way this is baloney. There's no way that he cherry picked the one casino that he won a ton of money at in 2020. It just, and it's that's reality. And I told him, which ones do you want to see? I'll show you all of them. And he goes, nah, fam, this is straight. There's nothing I can do about that. The man didn't want to see more. I offered. Okay, no, okay, that might be true. I have a follow-up question, though. Sometime in the near future, especially as the 2021 results generate everywhere on these websites, since we're in early 2022, uh, would you be okay with showing me or somebody uh, representing me, either in LA or Vegas, would you meet with me or, as I said, somebody else who I trust to tell me the way it is uh, and, and show things like uh, where we could say, okay, show me this casino, show me that casino where basically we pick and you don't. And then you just show it. Uh, so my initial answer that I was thinking in my brain just now was no, because all of you guys can piss off. I don't owe none of you nothing. Who are you guys? Honestly, right? No, you don't have to. That's why I'm brain. asking, would you, I'm not saying you have to, you're not required to show me anything. But, but then I thought about it as you kept talking and I said to myself, the truth is, I'm like, I have a pretty soft spine. I'm a pretty nice guy. And to be honest with you, sometimes the only reason I even took this thing is because I'm like, yeah, it's hurting my feelings. And I work so hard to live this lifestyle that's real. And you guys are tearing it apart. I said, that's kind of not fair. It's not nice. And uh, so the truth is, if you harass me enough, probably I'll just show it all to you just you stop calling me. Well, I'm not going to harass you. you I just, I sent you some Instagram messages and you agreed to come on here. I'm not going to harass you for anything. No, 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 of course. I'm saying if you were to call me and harass me, probably I'd be like, you know what? If it makes this guy stop calling me, let me just show him anything he wants. So in reality, in real life, I probably will show you. Um, Do I have a desire to? I go out of my way to? And do I have any passion in my heart to do so? Not really. I don't care. Well, you don't need to have passion. I'm just asking if you'd be willing to. Like, I could even, I or somebody representing me could come to you, provided it's not too difficult. <laughs> Something like that, where you don't have to go through a lot of additional trouble. And the reason I'm saying this is not yeah, because you owe yeah, it. The answer is, yeah, I don't even care. All right, you've already, you've already beat me down enough. Okay, the answer is, yeah, I'll show you what you want to do. <laughs> I don't think I've beaten down, but okay. I, like, I definitely like to do it just because... You saw the reaction that people had to Spencer's video, and that especially that segment is uh, people are like, "Oh, come on, you let him off too easy. Why didn't you look at the other ones?" Like, it wasn't just me saying this; a lot of people were saying this. So, a response to that on your part could obviously be, "Well, okay, I'll, I'll show somebody that people would trust wouldn't bullshit." Not, th- not that I think Spencer's bullshitting. I think Spencer really did show what you showed him. I, th- I think Spencer's a nice guy. I've communicated with him some myself. He seems like a decent guy, so I'm not saying that he's a bullshitter at all. I'm just saying that if someone were to see more of these who they think wouldn't make this up, then... Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll show you. No, no problem, buddy. I'll show you. I don't care. I'll show you. I'll be in L.A. this week. Okay. Uh, I don't know if the website should be updated by then. If they are, sure. I also live in L.A. So <laughs> technically, technically, I'm L.A.-based. No okay. problem, buddy. You, you got it. All right. Good. Let me go to the next thing here. The pharmacies... Um, I, I watched that, and I will admit I don't know that much about the 
pharmacy industry. I even learned some things just before doing that segment I did. I'm sure you know way, way more. I own compounds. I don't want to, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to wait to hear your questions. I have to be honest with you, I'm saying I'm going to pass on quite a bit only on this topic. Uh, but in Spencer's video, <clears throat> the quote is, I did not find compound pharmacies to be just. Meaning, I did not own compound pharmacies. Okay. I also did not own retail pharmacies, which gives me 10 other pharmacies to pick from, just so you know. So I think this was probably an honest mistake, but I think you misheard the quote that you were quoting me on from from Spencer's. I might have. But yeah, go on. Okay, so, right. Um, I As I said in the segment I did about you, I think there's something there with the pharmacies. I don't think you're you're making up pharmacies when you really didn't own anything and had nothing to do with the industry. Obviously, you had you, you, you know a lot about the industry. You had some strong involvement with the industry, and you know way, way, way more than the average person does about the industry, including me. So, uh, obviously, there's something there. I believe you. If, if you say it wasn't compound pharmacies and I misheard the Spencer video, that's very possible. So, uh, you say you don't want to say what kind of pharmacies you had, but uh, what, what can you tell us I, then? I know what's going to happen now. Because, because of, the, because of what, how you just worded it, this is not your fault. What's going to happen, which is one of the reasons I'm taking this call with you is a liability, which is something, the, the real, and the reason that I, that I even was willing to do this with you is because I was like, how can, no matter what doubt is disproven about me, no matter what, and 100% of them have been disproven so far, Every time, it just opens another door for someone to give more doubt. Like, it's like crazy. It's like literally you, you personally, as well as so many other people online, their only objective is to find a place of doubt or question. So like, for, for example, just now you said uh, you, that I don't want to say what kind of pharmacy I own. Let's just say, although that is a fairly true statement you made, what's going to happen, 100%, is that all of these haters, or what, and I think that's a weird word, but all these people who, who want to shed more doubt on me, what they're going to do 100% response is say, oh, he owned pain clinics. Oh, he peddled fentanyl. Oh, he, but none of that is what I did. I did not own pain clinics. I did not do pain management. None of that. None of that. None of that at all. But I know that that's what's going to happen. And there's going to be a lot of things in this interview that I'm overlooking as we're talking live now together in real time. Um, that people are going to pick apart, and that's definitely one. They're going to say, oh, you don't want to say it's probably because it was illegal or because that it was uh, about drugs and narcotics. None of that's the case. The real case is because there's a lot of people that want to keep themselves private, that I'm involved in uh, from all my old relationships and business. And I'm not here to put those people's business out there. Some of those people are, are, are very well-known in the medical field. And if they and I were doing business, and they say to me, hey, man, we prefer not to be in the public eye. We support you. We encourage you. We'll come hang out with you. We'll come to your New Year's Eve party and what have you. But we'd rather keep our personal finances or our investments, whatever it is, private. And that's just what I'm going to do. I don't, and again, not just you, but everybody. I don't know any of you guys anything. So if a lot of these people want to stay private, I'm just going to respect that. All of us are rich regardless of uh, how you feel about it. Okay. I didn't under. I still didn't understand it very well. Watch. I watched a few times what you said to Spencer. I still didn't understand very well what exactly was going on the, with the pharmacies. And the the main thing I came away with was that he has some connection to that industry and might have made some money there. I even said that on the on the show. And I still think that. I was just wondering if you'd like to clarify anything further uh, regarding yeah. the pharmacies. Yeah, yeah, I don't mind. I can tell more about it. So how it works is, uh, and I think you were the one that said it. Uh, is that you can, in theory, apply, right? If you meet certain criteria as a person and your personal history, as well as your uh, logistical, like, like your business platform, right? And you don't have to be like super special 
to uh, apply for a license, right? So when I get a license for a pharmacy, in the beginning what happened was I had these smaller businesses that came through my think tank. They're really simple ideas, like lead gen. So uh, coming from a place of sales and, and Wall Street and all of this, I was really familiar with the idea of sales and uh, consumer data, databases, right? Uh, lead gen, you know, uh, things like that, like Google's uh, um, pay-per-click and Google ads and AdWords and all, oh, whatever it is, all these things like this. Uh, <clears throat> call centers that use uh, billboards and commercials and internet ad space to drive to a generic site and then sell those calls based on certain vetting processes. So I'm super familiar with all this because it's how, you, it's how so many companies around the world generate business, super commonplace, one of the most commonplace. So <clears throat> coming from the think tank, one of the ideas I had, and there's, there's a few parts of my story that merge here, is I was already in the private healthcare space uh, in a whole different realm though, and I had this little think tank. It was a small office. That's what me and my two guys did, my two partners. And we said to ourselves one day, I came back from one of the meetings with other healthcare providers and somebody was talking about how can we get uh, more qualified um, consumers for some of our medical products. And uh, I just thought about it and I went to my two partners with Think Tank and I said, hey, you know, this was a problem that was brought up and these guys that are owning hospitals and owning other pharmacies and da 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 I said, these guys got so much money, we can probably charge them out to Wazoo if we can find the right solution. So we spent so much time thinking how we can do it. And I realized that I had this enormous database that I can include further data points on all the current pieces of consumer data. And in short, because I know you said that it's out, when I talk, it sounds like gibberish. So I'm going to put it in very layman's terms. Let's pretend <clears throat> that I have your phone number, your full name, your date of birth, and your zip code. Let's pretend. And let's pretend that you live in um, rural Nebraska. And I knew that because of your zip code which is an easy way to just Google, where is this zip code, right? And let's say I found out that you personally live in Nebraska and I wanted to sell you <clears throat> farm equipment, right? I would say to myself, this guy is probably a prime candidate because he lives in the rural Kansas where, or Nebraska, whatever it is, that only has a lot of farms. You're probably not interested in buying a Tesla because you live in the middle of nowhere, there's no Tesla charging ports, and nobody in that area really cares about having the main brand Tesla. But you guys love tractors and other farm equipment, right? So I'll now take that. I'll have one of my salespeople call you and say, hey, sir, are you interested in buying sales equipment? And if you say yes, great. I can sell that piece of data to a company that's actually selling the farm equipment. And hopefully they, they sell an item and they owe me some money for giving them the lease. So if you say, no, no, I'm not interested, because I, I, I live in an apartment complex and, um, and I don't need farm equipment, uh, you know, uh, whatever. I'll say, okay, and I'll, maybe my sales guy will ask you a question about your a, a complex. And you, maybe an answer you'll give hypothetically is, uh, I have really dirty carpets, right? I don't need farm equipment. I want less farmers in my town because it makes me track dirt onto my apartment carpet. Well, you didn't realize this, but what you really did was you just added a data point and you reclassified yourself from your piece of consumer data to be sold to a local carpet cleaner. So now I'll have my guys contact one of the carpet cleaners, for example, that are contracted in their area and say, hey, guys, why don't you call him and see if he needs a new carpet cleaner? And if you close the deal, you owe me a piece, a piece of the action for giving you this new lease. And that's, and that's sort of how it started, right? We were doing this. And then I said to myself, well, I find this big flaw that 
I'm getting so off track. I think the, it's not that I'm getting off track. I think that to an untrained, uneducated, inexperienced person in this area of business, I think they're not following the question to my current statement. Let me try to wind it in a little. In the beginning, I found that the medical providers had issues, and it turns out that me and my buddies, my two partners, had solutions for. So I did that. And as I did it, I said to myself, they're paying me a lot of money to, to find this little solution. That means that they're making even more money off the business that I'm giving them for them to afford to pay me what they are paying me. I said, well, what if I also own that business? Then I'll keep all of the money. So I tried it. And I said, let me start with a pharmacy. And I opened a pharmacy knowing that I had the ability to generate very qualified leads, right? And I was doing so. And I said, well, let me open my first pharmacy. And I did that. And I let, said, let me stop you for a second yes, there. Did, is yeah. this uh, leads to get customers for the pharmacy? Well, it started out with uh, uh, equipment first. Like, uh, let's say you wanted a band-aid, uh, special grade band-aids. It's a very niche market, by the way. Special grade band-aids or gauze pads or, or uh, you know, special razors. Like if you were going to have to make an incision, something like that. Like a hospital has to use certain razors, right? They don't just like go to Walgreens and buy uh, the, the, whatever the fanciest three blade that they saw in a commercial. So it started like that. And the thing is that it doesn't go direct to the hospitals. It has to go through. It's a slightly different version, but for layman's terms, we call it a dropship pharmacy, which means there's a third party. That, that's just how it works in the industry. That's just what it is. So I said, what if I open up one of these pharmacies? How hard could that be? I got a hold of a very good consultant from my other buddies, my affiliates that were in the industry that already owned some. I said, can you license me? And the person said, yes, and they licensed me. And the thing is that um, it is so much work. And I said, I'm really, really busy. I'm also kind of a dumb guy. I don't think I can keep up with this. I don't think I'm equipped. I said, why don't I just give this to another company, right? I said, what if we do? I, said, I went to another company. I said, guys, can we make a deal? I got this thing going here. Here's how much money we're generating about 200000 a month in gross revenue. Uh, you guys know what the margins are. Here's all my, you know, here's everything. Here's my, my paperwork. Here, here it is. Here's the receipt. Can we make a deal? I just want to hand it to you because I cannot operate this thing. I'm just not good enough. I'm not smart enough. They said, yeah, sure. We'll make a deal. I said, great. They said, actually, can you get us another one of these? And I said, yeah. I said, okay, fine. So I did that. They said, can you get another? Can you get another? And then I said, wow, I can make a whole business doing just this. So I go out to all of these uh, um, healthcare groups, these hospital networks, these pharmacy networks, all of them, and I say, hey, guys, are you looking to acquire more pharmacies? And 100% of them say, yeah, because everybody in America is, uh, is using private healthcare. Every single one of them needs medical assistance. You know, everybody in, a, in our country needs help with, with medical things. So every, there's no issue getting patients. It's not like a, a, a limit, right? There's not like they're, they're not enough, business, not enough uh, consumers. So everybody wanted to buy a pharmacy. So I just kept licensing and selling. But because I was doing these other things like lead generation, there's a couple other things in there. I said, guys, this is part of our, de our deal. You can acquire this. I'm license licensing and building it specifically for you and your network. We're going to have a deal on it. You're going to operate everything because I'm not equipped to. I'm not smart enough. I, I don't have enough hands on deck. I'm too busy. It's too, this is a full-time professional gig, and that's, I can't do it. So we're going to have a deal. You're going to acquire it special for you. But where I'm really interested is the things that are taking up all my time where I can't operate this pharmacy. Those are businesses I want you to uh, use to support this pharmacy, such as Legion and a couple others. And 100% of the time they said, yeah, 
Because regardless, when you own a pharmacy, you have to go hope that you have great patient acquisition. So they're already contracting to me. I literally handed them the perfect business model in a boat. And I don't know why it's so hard for the world to understand that. I do know most people are, are stupid. I do know that. And I do know that most people will never amount to much in life. I do know that as well. And I mean that with love and respect. But for them to not be able to grasp their mind, there's people that are successful in this world thinking outside the box in ways that they can never fathom and they want to take it out on me is offensive and it's just not nice. Okay, well, thanks for the explanation for the pharmacies. And uh, let me get did, to... Did it make sense? Um, yeah, mostly, but I, I don't want to make this too long of a pharmacy discussion. It'll bore the audience. So I, I just had that question about it. Anyway, about the staking thing, um, I know you explained some on Spencer's show that you were kind of pressured into it, but I, I'm still a little confused here regarding people giving you money to gamble for them. And I it, hate when they do it, but yeah, fine. Yeah, it's, it's understandable that people are going to want to if they believe you're a successful gambler and they think it's just as simple as, okay, here's money, turn it into more. And as I said, I've dealt with that too on a smaller scale. But it's, it seems like you're okay with doing this, it seems like even in your Instagram posts, uh, it's encouraged to do. You're even showing people talking about it, which would th- seem like if you don't want this happening, why would you even have guys like uh, Kendall and Mike V saying, oh, he just made this for me. You're going to have people say, hey, I want to be like Kendall and Mike V and make money. So if you have so much and you're making so much, why are you encouraging or at least semi-encouraging people to approach you to, to stake you here because I agree it is a hassle and it, it can bring on some guilt if you lose money for people that they can't really afford to lose like like you said on Spencer's show so why even advertise this at all why not just never mention it even if you have to privately do it for some people who pressure you enough that you know in your personal life well when I I, by the way, I took it out of my bio like a little time ago I forgot that I had it in there because we stopped uh, operating like the, the inbound like when like when Spencer asked, like, hey, I applied. Besides that, the truth is I never check it. I don't have anybody checking it. It's like inactive. I forgot that it's in my bio. Um, one thing I want to say is that I'm brand new to social media. So I don't really know what I'm doing. So when I just thought something was cool, like the, one of the LA Dodgers pitchers shoots me a random DM when I have like only 10,000 followers on Instagram at the time. I'm like, whoa, that's freaking awesome. You know, and I responded. I'm like, what's up, bro? And he was like, I'd love to, pl- love to have you play for me sometimes. I'm thinking in my head, like, well, is that my way to become friends with this guy? Like, is that, is that what I have, is my sweat equity, is my work, how I have to be so I can meet this guy and, and potentially become friends? And I had to consider that for a while. Because don't forget, I'm like, uh, you know, out of the public eye. I never otherwise would have met a guy like Kendall, right? And I'm new. I'm new here in social media. So uh, when I made that post, it was just such a cool thing, man, that I literally got to play with uh, the, one of the Dodgers pitchers' money, and we won, like, a whole grip of cash. And that was really cool. And I'm like, guys, can we post about this? And everybody was so hyped because we all won so much money, and it was so cool for them because they'd never been around gambling. I don't think any of them ever placed a bet before. And everybody was like, heck, yeah, man, let's take a post. And we did. And it was just cool, and it was fun. And that's the only reason I did social media at all. And as soon as it really, really stops becoming fun, like, when I have to weigh the fun versus not fun, once it outweighs itself, I'm probably going to delete everything, if that day ever comes. For now, it's really awesome for me, even though I get, like, a lot of this headache, like, guys like you give me, um, because I get to meet so many really, really cool people in this world that I probably would, only some of them I had known beforehand, and it was by just pure being in certain circles and in certain worlds that I'm in, but I got exposed that it's really beautiful gift of 
being recognized by certain people that I have only wished to previously. <clears throat> so it's still fun for me. And when it comes to like, why would I post that? Because it was just fun, man. I had a good time doing it. And then why would I encourage other people to fake me? It's because I just said to my, myself and my team, I was like, guys, should I just finally like let all these randos like have some of the action? And we just, we had said no for so long. And then like, I just kept getting harassed. And I'm like, I don't want to be harassed. Like, what will shut everybody up? I'm like, okay, like if I make some of these little guys some money, I let them go as low as $1,000, by the way. And uh, if you ever like follow through, you can, I think the website still exists, but it'll let you go as low as 1000 bucks, which is easily affordable, which is something you mentioned about 5000 So I went lower, I went 1000 And I encouraged it because I said, if I'm going to do it, I want the world to know, like I'm really trying to help everybody. I don't need their money. I don't need anything. I just don't really want to be harassed. And if, if not only do I stop getting harassed, but I can help all these strangers that have been begging for a chance to make money with me, then everybody wins. Okay, well, I've got a question about the the $1,000 thing. Uh, If somebody through this website, see, I I didn't even look at that website very much, but uh, if somebody were to have put $1,000 to stake you here to play for them, they they don't get to show up there and watch you play, do they? Uh, Sometimes, yeah, sometimes no. For 1000 bucks, like if it's like one of my homies and we're all in town, yeah. Um, But if it's it's like... um, like somebody through the website that I don't know or whatever, then nah, I can't. So this is the thing is they're probably going to lose a thousand bucks if they only give me a thousand bucks. There's a lot of times I've won with a thousand or a lot or under a thousand, but these people are talking. A lot of people have misconceptions. They're like, let me give you a hundred bucks and give me back a million. And I'm like, what? I'm like, you can't do, you can't do that. So when it comes to a thousand bucks and people are like calling me shots, like, Hey man, I'm gonna give you a thousand. Give me back ten or twenty. Don't forget, I want to make a little piece. What am I doing this for? If it's at least not to make some money, you know, like at least let me just feel justified doing it. It's a lot of work for me. I have to make a deal with the casino, as you know. I got to go through, jump through all these suits, and it's a lot of work. And it's so much pressure. If I lose somebody's money, I feel so bad that it's like it wasn't worth it for me. So. um well, that that also that also brings up a, a a problem though. Even if you're doing everything very legitimately, and even if you are a favorite to win, to where it would be a smart bet for them, and even if they can afford to lose it, the problem is if they can't be there to see it, and you just say, "Oh, well, you gave me a thousand, I played, I lost," and then they go, "Well, well how do I know I ever play?" Like that that's that's a problem that can happen even if you're doing everything hundred percent legit. So the truth is, uh, nobody has ever came at me that way. Like nobody has ever accused. <clears throat> like let's say like at the time that I had this like in my bio and like I was encouraging it. Let's let's talk that up to that date, right? To make the conversation easy. Nobody had ever moved forward under any circumstance or variation of stake me and then ever doubted or had a concern about what what's going on. I can't be there. It's never happened. But some people have questioned it before they gave the money. They're like, well, if I can't be there, you know, how do I track what's going on? And I say, listen, well, it's not usually me, but once in a while it was, <clears throat> the conversation basically was, listen, um, I can show you my place for the day. It's documented. It's like not a secret. Um, you can be in touch through like my management. Like you can even have like Ian's direct contact information who always sits next to me for the reasons we talked about earlier. And it is what it is. You're gambling. So if you want to call it a, a, a dual layer gamble, like, I don't care what you call it. If you're not comfortable doing it, just don't do it. I don't need your money, and you're a headache anyway. You know, if you're not comfortable taking that risk on me 
and then having me take that risk at the table, then it's just not for you, man. Well, are you, are you doing this anymore or is that done? I still do it. Um, I really try to avoid it. But no, I definitely still do it. Um, usually, like, if it's small amounts of money, I'm like, hey, do you mind if I lump it in with some of my other buddies that I've been pushing off for a while? This way, at least there's enough meat on the bone where, you know, it's like kind of a nice little juicy amount. Um, sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not. At the end of the day, like, if they're going to trust me to gamble their money, then they're going to trust me to be there doing it, you know? Yeah, I understand that there's some people who will trust it and some who won't. I just say it can bring up a problem. In fact, I have had to turn people down. They said, let me have a piece of this poker cash game you're going to. And I say, no, I don't want it because if I lose it and, and I say I lost, they could say, I, well, I wonder if he really played it. I wonder if he really broke even and just kept my money or he won and kept my money. So I'm like, you know, I don't even want that. The only time I'll sell pieces is when it's a tournament where they can see documented results of whether I won or lost. And this way there's uh, there can be no allegations and I it's not like I have a reputation for ripping anyone off it's the opposite but even with that I don't even want the hassle I'm just kind of surprised that you do most uh, the truth most I would say to be let me get closer to uh, uh, details for you most of the people whose money I play for like present day are people who can find a way to contact me directly you know so like a friend of a friend of a friend versus using that website. So like I said, I don't think that website is even, I don't have a guy taking inbound messages. It doesn't exist anymore. So now it's like a friend of a friend of a friend. You know, I get like 10 requests a day from people who do have my number or I answer on Instagram and I'll be like, nah, I don't, uh, I'm, I'm like, I'm not in town or I'm just busy. I'm on vacation or whatever it may be. And then one day it'll be like, Hey, that guy I told you about last month is going to be in Vegas. I know you're in Vegas this week can you meet up with him and like he'll buy you dinner and if he can convince you to play for him, will you do it? And I'm like, all right, go ahead. So, you know, they'll meet me and they're like, man, I really love for you to play with me. And I'm like, listen, this is how it works. These are the details. Do you want me to do it? You know, let's give it a shot. I'm like, all right. And then they'll ask me like, do you want me to go? Do you want me to stay? What time are you going to do it? And every time case by case. Okay. The final question I have for you here is of these casinos you're playing in Las Vegas, are there any where overall that you have taken a big loss? Of course, I've, I've, I have taken large losses, but it's all relative. So you have to say, you know, if I'm playing big, then I can lose big, but I can also win big. So, for example, uh, I, I, again, I, I don't want to, I don't want to in any way advertise plug or like direct traffic to certain casinos or away from certain. I know we mentioned the wind, you know, had banned me for being too good. So a lot of people might interpret that as, oh, the wind has a, a beatable uh, scenario, right? And I'm not saying that's true or false, but I just want to be a little careful that I don't get too close to that kind of conversation. Um, I don't want to, and I also definitely don't, I want to negate any uh, concept of thinking that I'm ever paid as a marketer for these casinos. Oh my God. I don't even know how somebody really can believe that. But uh, anyway, so there is a casino and I, I, I'll tell you privately, I, I don't mind. I'll tell you privately, but I don't want to put it out to the public. Um, I lost 8 million. Like that was like my biggest one session loss. I lost 8 million, but then I sat down uh, an hour later and I won 9 million. So I left a million dollar winner for that it was actually like in the wee hours of the morning. And there was like so many strangers that witnessed that, that had documented it because they just thought it was astounding. 
uh, guys and girls that I didn't know. But now, I, now that they recognize me online, they recontacted me. Uh, so yeah, of course I've taken losses, but an eight million dollar loss really isn't that big in the grand scheme of things because I'm playing so big. I'm so not even. I, win, I, I, I think. I think maybe you misunderstood the question. I wasn't asking were there any losing sessions. I'm saying are there any casinos where overall, from all the play at that particular casino or casino group, where you have a negative total? But, yeah. <laughs> yes, there are. Yes, the answer is yeah. I'm sorry for misunderstanding. Yes, there are two casinos in the whole world, including uh, something that I think people probably will never know exists. Is there's also a layer of private gaming, allegedly, we'll say, um, that is not done inside of a casino. Uh, and they're including any of those theoretical uh, private high-stakes gaming. Uh, we're talking about Baccarat and Blackjack. There are two casinos in the world that I'm a lifetime loser at. There's two. Uh, but they both have like reasons for that. One is because I was banned for many, many years at without the opportunity to play. So my, the, the, um, how do you say the, um, the sample sizing is really small and I haven't had an opportunity to correct that. Assuming that I was capable of winning, right? I haven't had the, the ability to do that at this one particular casino. And another one was a, was for, it was a, uh, an Indian reservation casino. And uh, <clears throat> I just never went back to that town in my whole life. I was there one time for like unrelated reasons. I punted off some cash and I was like, I literally can care less. Uh, and I just never returned to that city. But it does exist. It absolutely exists. There are two casinos on this planet that I'm a lifetime loser at. Yes. Okay. Sorry, I have one final thing here I forgot to ask. As many I, as you want. Yeah. Obviously, you have a uh, strategy that you're employing here to, to win here. You're not just showing up and getting lucky. So the big skepticism from the Casino Advantage Play community and even just people watching in general who aren't part of that community is a belief that you don't really have such a winning strategy. And of course, you've never demonstrated what that strategy is, which is understandable. You wouldn't want to advertise it and uh, and then have the casinos be able to stop it. But since you're at or near the end of your casino gambling, would you either be willing to put out what that strategy is at some point or show me even with some kind of non-disclosure agreement that uh, that could prove what you're doing is actually positive expectation. It'll definitely not be you, but will I do it in general? <laughs> so I've entertained this for about a year now. And the thing is that there's many angles to it. Um, and the first, which, which is, it should be super obvious when people are like, why don't you show the, the system? Well, there's two parts to it. First of all, I can sell the system theoretically, Right. Now, how I go about it is such a challenge and probably at least, if I had to guess, 18 months worth of diligent, stressful, intense work from start to finish, finding a buyer, finding the price, selling, teaching, understanding, et cetera. But the second thing is, if I were to ever make public the information that I have or that I use or that I know about that I'm not supposed to know about, they're just gonna, the casinos are just going to change it. If I made an Instagram post right now, you know, a million people might see it, but it only takes one of them to say, wait a second, guys, we got to change what we're doing here because he's not proven he knows he's not supposed to know. Well, right. That's what, that was my point here. Is if, if you're totally done, then you could because you're never going to use it again. But if you're still 
wouldn't want to put it out there maybe because you're going to start up again sometime in the future possibly or whatever or you maybe you just don't want to reveal it and you just want to give it to friends um that, that's why i was suggesting it doesn't have to be me i'm not saying you owe me anything but i'm saying someone who people would believe had analyzed it and even if they couldn't state what it was like through a non-disclosure agreement would at least be able to come out and say, I've analyzed this and it is positive expectation. I just can't say what it is because I have a non-disclosure agreement not to say. That's what I'm asking. It wouldn't have to be me. Like anybody like me, would you do this? Uh, I wouldn't do it to satisfy your request. I can care less about your request. What I would do it for is either to satisfy my own sensational feeling of uh, giving the middle finger to the casinos, uh, that's one reason I would do it. Another reason I would do it is because it benefits me somewhere on the back end because um, that number would be really immense. And I, I said it one time in another interview, and I think it still holds true. I think I put a, a $50 million evaluation on it. Uh, but there's so many details that have to go into that price. But anyway, I may never do that because I may, there, there's so many, I may do other things. There's so many things I can do with the, with, the, with the knowledge that I've acquired that I wasn't supposed to, uh, there's so many things I can do with that that benefit me as well as all the other gamblers around the world that if I, 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 I it would be, it'd be irresponsible uh, for me to really speak too heavily, hev- um, heavily on it so prematurely. Um, you know, I, I think that it's better left unsaid until I make a final decision on how to move forward, if at all. Okay. Well, obviously, that's up to you what you want to reveal and don't want to reveal. If you ever change your mind or if you'd ever like to show me and and I would sign a non-disclosure agreement and keep to it. Probably uh, won't. Okay. That's very possible. But I'm just putting it out there. You you can and the offer remains open. So, okay. Well, I'm pretty much done with my questions here. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, I would like uh, at some point to take you up on the thing of uh, looking at the records because I am very curious – we can definitely do that. That's fine. You know, we can even have an agreement to that. I, I won't necessarily come out there and, and post, you know, here's what he won here. Here's what he lost here. Like, I, it, it can just be something where we agree beforehand what I can and can't say. But uh, I would that, only want to. That, that is what we would do. And again, people have to keep this in mind. They're like, why don't you publicize your win-loss? Why don't you ask uh, Bill Gates to take a screenshot of his online banking? These are inappropriate questions, you know, to say how much money are you worth? How much money did you make today? Those are, uh, those are, there's three things that every, every grown man knows. You don't talk about politics, religion, and finances at a dinner, right? So for people to say that to me, they're obviously in the wrong lane in life for, to even ask me those types of questions. So I already know. I will show you these things. I don't mind showing you these things. There's certain things that I'm going to agree that you're allowed to talk about and not talk about. And it's basically probably in short, because I know that the viewers are going to twist that. They're going to say, I'm, you know, I'm going to make it so you can only talk about my wins. That's not what it is. I'm going to give you full freedom to make your own opinion and say anything you want. But there's probably going to be certain things, such as you cannot discuss a dollar amount. You can only say that it's greater or less than, you know, something along those lines. Yeah, that's fine. Um, but I'm, I'm going yeah. I mean, we, we'll, we can come up with, with whatever terms beforehand, and I, I will stick to them. I always keep my word to this sort of thing. This way, there's not too much private data being revealed that you don't want everybody knowing. I mean, that's understandable that the, you, you don't have to open your life as a complete open book to where everyone sees every little detail because it, some things aren't their business. And uh, you can prove some things, really semi-prove some things without having to have all of that disclosed to the general public. So I, I fully understand that. And I, I would be respectful of that, of course. So anyway, I thank you. I for, want to ask you one thing. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Can, 
can you please think right now about every single question you gave me and answer I gave where you feel I was either aloof, elusive, did not answer thoroughly, or possibly left holes in my story with misunderstanding? Can you please ask me now because I'd like to fill in any potential gap that you or any of your viewers may ever have. Well, I have been talking to you for an hour 45 minutes now, and, and we talked about a lot of things I'm, I'm trying to think th there were some things that you just said you, you don't want to give further information on or ones that you feel that you, you can't tell people right now so i will say that you did give detailed answers about a lot of things that i asked here there was nothing provided in this conversation that's actual proof it's not like people can listen and say oh okay well now i have 100 percent proof that uh, mickey's killing the casinos okay well that that solves it so that's no one's going to come away with that impression uh they will come away with the impression that you were willing to answer all the questions and that you uh, did give some very detailed answers to some of the questions that's what i can say at this point is there anything else that I can uh, say to you where, you're, where you have doubts, current doubts in your head that I can say to you to help you have the feeling of that I'm not hiding, I am uh, not being aloof, or I am not manipulating my answers? I just want to make sure that I'm as absolute transparent as I can uh, to anything that you or your viewers uh, may be questioning. Is there anything further I can do to help let you in on any of the questions you have about me as a person or my life. Well, unfortunately, I've already asked these things and you have uh, said you're not going to do them, like like show what the strategy is, even with an NDA. Then some things you said you'll do but haven't done yet because we haven't gotten to it, such as showing me the records. Like the thing that would be most convincing, 100% most convincing, even if I could never reveal it to anybody, would be to see and understand a positive expectation strategy that, that in my expert opinion, would be beating the casinos. That plus you actually having statements showing that you actually beat them, that would be very, very close to ironclad proof that that's what you're doing and you're crushing them. If you were to show me a strategy I believed was positive expectation, but I couldn't see whether it worked or not, that would still be pretty good. If you were to show me that you had wins, but couldn't show me the strategy, I would say, okay, well, it looks like he's a winner. But as I said on my previous episode about this, there are ways to manipulate win-losses. So those don't say everything, but oh, it, oh, oh. it is still helpful. I want to touch on that. Let me, t let me debunk you for okay. a I cannot do that. So first of all, so let's say I showed up with five million. The example you gave in the other, uh, the other, uh, inter the other thing you gave, the other, the other, the other episode you posted, you used five million dollars as the example. I gave my buddy two and a half, and I gave myself two and a half. First of all, as I explained, I sit with such a diligent team of casino employees documenting my every move. First of all, don't you think they would have saw that? Second of all, that means. I'm owing 5% commission on the bank side. That means I will always be a 5% loser. There's no variation of what you described that benefits my life. Unless this whole thing is fugazi, this whole thing's a fraud. And again, I don't know what I get from that. I don't need anything from people. I discourage people from gambling. I discourage people from harassing me to take their money. I literally am like the, like the anti-hero. I'm like literally like, like I, I, anyway, in short, your analogy of my buddy has two and a half of mine and I have two and a half of mine, that's not a reality. That, that doesn't really happen like that. Maybe if I played like a thousand a hand and we sat at a full table and I was under the radar, like, sure, we can do that, but I'm always losing 5% on the bank side. What benefit do I have other than I get enormous comp? And well, okay, I, I, I utilize my...
I, I wasn't accusing you of actually doing that. I was putting out a very simple hypothetical for the listener to understand of how sometimes the story is not completely told by the win-loss statements. Uh, that's not what I'm saying you did or that it would be that simple to do it. But I, I, I know for a fact that win-loss statements can sometimes be inaccurate, sometimes intentionally inaccurate, and sometimes because the casino just gets something wrong. But I've seen it personally where it is inaccurate. So as I said, that doesn't tell 100% of the story. However, I will say, despite that, if I were to, and that's why I'm interested in seeing it, if I were to ask you to show me win-loss statements and, and I were to see a lot of them and, and I could ask, can you show me this, can you show me that, and you showed me, and overall you're a big winner, then that would at least be some evidence that you are winning here. It, it wouldn't be ironclad because without knowing a strategy that is positive expectation, there could be other explanations how you could have that. Even some of it could just be dumb luck. I'm going to show you my win-loss. I'm going to show you year after year. I'm going to show you every casino. Whether you think that it's because I have a strategy or because I'm the luckiest person in the world every single time I gamble, regardless, they're both astronomically improbable, unique, enigma anomalies. And whichever one you want to credit me for, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, they both, either one, whether it's dumb luck or I have a strategy, they both yielded me uh, immense wealth, an incredible life, and uh, I can care less which one you want to uh, attribute it to. But I'm going to show you my win-losses. No, I, I appreciate that. I'm just saying that uh, you're asking me personally what my impression is and, and uh, about your answers and all that and I was explaining and I was explaining everybody has a threshold with things they believe things they think they might believe and things they don't believe and there's a big range of I'm 100% sure of this all the way down to I'm 100% sure this is a lie and a lot of stuff in between and this is with everything not, not just gambling of course you go through these analysis every day every human being does without even consciously thinking about it so I'm saying that as far as the situation with you, I have to do that process. And the, the more I see and the more that makes sense, that adds up, then the more transparent, the more I see, the more that is shown to me, the, the more I believe it, the, the less than I have questions. But at the same time, of course, who am I? You, you don't have to show me anything. You don't have to do anything for me. You don't have to prove anything to me. So uh, at any point, you can say, F you. I'm not, I'm not showing you. I don't want to show you anything. And you would have the right to do that because I'm not someone that you're required to show anything to. So I appreciate right. anything that's shown to me. Uh, at the same time, the, the more that I'm shown, the more I believe. All right, Jim, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me on actually, the show. Actually, my name is Todd, but uh, close enough. Oh, sorry, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, you know, thank you, and we'll, we'll be in touch about the win-loss thing, and I uh, thank you for coming and giving two hours of your time about this, and I'm sure the listeners will find this interesting. So uh, thank you for coming on. I, I do appreciate that you did so. All right. Thank you. Bye -bye. Okay. Goodbye. So, okay, we're back live now, and I'm sure you probably have some questions and comments after listening to that. Someone messaged me while they were listening here tonight. He's taking a lot of little pot shots at you. Yeah, he was. And the reason I didn't really respond much, I did a little bit, but I wasn't looking for this to be a pissing contest. I wasn't looking to get in the last word or to deliver sick burns on him. That wasn't the purpose here. The purpose was for him to speak in his own words and give answers to questions that I had. 
Again, I would have had more questions and more detailed questions if I had time to prepare, but I didn't, so I did the best I could with questions off the top of my head and also follow-up questions that came to my mind as he was speaking. But you see the tone I took there, and I really am still interested in meeting with him and having him show me these win-loss statements. And the way I would do it is I would say, okay, well, show me one for Caesars. Show me one for MGM. Show me one for Venetian. Show me one for the win. Show me one for you know every property I could think of. He mentioned uh, stations. I'd ask for that too. I'd come up with every property or property group I could think of with, in Vegas. Maybe some of these he hasn't played at, but I have to think at all the majors he has. And by now, I have to imagine that the 2021 numbers are in. And if they're not, they probably would be by the time he and I meet up. Like, we don't have anything scheduled yet, and I'm not even 100% sure this will really happen. I hope it does, but maybe it won't. You know, it's up to him whether he wants to go through with this. But I'll be glad to really meet with him or send somebody I trust to take a look on my behalf, maybe with me on the phone or whatever while it's happening. And I will have to agree beforehand not to disclose the exact numbers or uh, personal details. Like There'll be certain things that I'll have to agree not to disclose. But at the same time, I would not agree that I can't ask about certain properties or that I have to tell any lies or anything like that. So if he wants to show me that I'm going to honestly report what I saw even if I can't give exact numbers. And if he doesn't want to agree to that, then I won't even bother to do it. Is that going to happen? I don't know. He agreed to it. It's kind of a weird way he agreed to it. If he's, at first, he's like, well, anyone who harasses me enough could probably get it done. I'm like, no, I'm not going to harass you. <laughs> and he goes, well, okay, yeah, you've harassed me enough. Yeah, we can do it. <laughs> so, I don't know. I always like to give anybody who has extraordinary claims the chance to prove those extraordinary claims. That doesn't mean that I believe everything I say until it's disproven or until they absolutely refuse to show me anything. I have my opinion, which can change as I learn more. Or the refusal to show me more can also change my opinion. So I did the interview, as you can hear, with a very open mind. Did he prove or disprove anything in this interview? No, he didn't. And that's why when he asked me at the end if he's been completely transparent, I said, well, you didn't really give any facts. You didn't give anything verifiable. You've made claims. You've answered things in detail. But none of this can prove that you're killing Vegas. These are just stories on your part, which may or may not be true. Now, since then, in the four days since then, let me tell you what's happened. We have not really discussed or nailed down a date when we can meet and he can show me these things. So I probably should ask him pretty soon to get that going. But he did message me pretty much out of the blue, a long message privately on Instagram. And I'm not going to read it out here because it's a private message and I will respect his privacy here. Uh, If it was for the public to see, he would have posted it publicly. But He seemed uh, still a little bit on edge the same way he was in the interview that it didn't seem like I believed him. So it really looks like for whatever reason, he wants people to believe him. You could kind of understand it from listening to his interview here and even by reading my 
message I got from him, which again, I'm not going to show anybody or read anybody, but I can tell you that was the tone. Basically, why are so many people doubting me? Why are you doubting me? That was basically the tone of what he was writing to me and saying that there's just a lot of doubters and haters out there. And, you know, if he's telling the truth, what he's not getting is that when you put yourself out there on social media, making extraordinary claims, if you don't provide proof, then people are going to doubt you. I said that near the beginning of the interview. I'll say it again right now. You can't just say you're doing something that nobody else is able to do, not provide proof, and then get mad when people don't believe you. And then you can't respond by saying, well, there's been a lot of people in history that haven't been believed and it turned out they were telling the truth or they did something amazing no one thought they could. Well, yeah, that's true, but there's also been a lot of liars out there. So to separate yourself from the liars, you need to show proof of extraordinary claims and As of right now, he hasn't done that yet. I told him that if I could see that he is beating the casinos overall over a large sample size, then at least by win-loss statements, that will say something. Though, since those can be falsified or manipulated, falsified, I don't think he's doing. Like, I don't think he's going to show me fake ones, but they can be manipulated where you're getting the real win-loss statements, but that's not really what you won or lost. And I've seen it done before. I've seen it done by people intentionally before. Not me, but people have shown me when they have done it. I've seen demonstrations of it, okay? So when I say these can be manipulated, I know they can be manipulated. I've seen it firsthand. So that doesn't prove everything. However, that's a start. That at least is showing me this isn't someone who's just chunking off money big time at the casinos and claiming they're winning. So if he shows me that, I'll say, okay, it's a start, but it's, it's not ironclad proof or anything close to it. If he were to show me that plus a strategy, which I knew would probably win, then I would say, yeah, I probably believe it. I'd say it's a high chance that he's really winning if he could show me both those things. I did offer, of course, a non-disclosure agreement, so he wouldn't have to worry about me giving this information out and him having no recourse. If I signed a non-disclosure agreement, I would keep to it. But I don't think he's going to show that to me. You heard how he was saying, if he shows somebody, it's not going to be me. (laughs) Which, by the way, I think is because he's not going to want to show somebody who is knowledgeable enough to be able to tell if it's positive expectation or not positive expectation. If you show somebody who doesn't know as much about gambling, then they might be able to vouch for you whether or not it really is. That's just my guess, though. But I would love to be shown, and I would definitely keep it quiet, but I have a feeling he's not going to show me, and he's never agreed to show me. In fact, he said he's not going to show me. But I am looking forward to seeing those statements. I don't know if I ever will. If I do, I will report it out here. He says that Spencer didn't ask to see more than that, and maybe that's true. Maybe Spencer was impressed enough with that one he showed him, or Spencer didn't want to come off like he was being a dick by asking for more. So maybe that is all Spencer asked for. Maybe Spencer even turned down seeing other ones like he claims. I don't know. That's what he says about Spencer. But, you know, I'm a different person than Spencer. I'll definitely want to see as much as I can, and I want it to be statements I choose, not statements he chooses. So we shall see. One more thing I wanted to mention, and this came out after the interview. That's why I didn't bring it up there. He posted a picture of a big hand he hit 
on video poker, and he was playing $25 accredited video poker, which is fairly high stakes. It's not nosebleed stakes, but it's fairly high stakes. However, he was only playing one coin at a time. (laughs) The reason that's funny is because in video poker, if you don't max play credits, meaning five credits on most machines to where a $25 machine becomes 125 a hand because it's five credits, if you only play one credit, that's what I meant by one coin. I really meant one credit. If you only play one credit, then you get severely underpaid when you hit a royal flush. The only way you get the proper payout for the royal flush is if you play five credits. So it's a very large difference in EV playing one credit versus five credits. So if you really only want to play $25 a hand, then you should play at a $5 machine and play five credits. Same cost per hand, but this time you will get paid properly on a royal flush. So the fact that he did that and then took a picture of it, bragging about his video poker prowess, that is the mark of a novice gambler. To show you how much of a novice gambler that is, even as a 15-year-old playing video poker illegally in the Las Vegas Hilton in 1987, which I did, even I knew to max play. Even I was playing five coins. Now, I was playing 25-cent video poker, and I was playing $1.25 a hand because I was a 15-year-old. But even then, I knew to max bet, and I will tell you I wasn't playing a perfect video poker strategy. Not even close to it. I had the very basics down, which I kind of deduced in my own head. Remember, I couldn't go on the internet and look up the proper strategy, nor did I have any books about video poker. I kind of just went to the machine and winged it. But very quickly, looking at the pay tables, I realized that I should be max playing. Otherwise, I'm giving up expectation. I even knew that as a teenager. So even as a video poker novice, a 15-year-old, I knew to max play. So that doesn't make any sense. Why would he be betting one credit at $25 a credit, especially with all the money he has and and all the money he routinely bets. He's the last guy you'd think would be afraid to play 125 a hand. I mean, I know a lot of people who play 125 a hand that aren't rich. (laughs) So that makes no sense. So I don't think he was doing it because he was broke or couldn't afford it. I think he just didn't understand. And he actually posted these pictures believing this was showing him winning, believing this would be something that would further his reputation as a winning gambler when, in fact, he was posting pictures that just make him look like he doesn't know what he's doing. Now, I can already hear his response. If he is asked about this, I'm sure his response is going to be, video poker isn't my game. I never said I'm a winning video poker player. I was just doing this to fuck around. I didn't care about pay tables. I didn't care about EV. I just felt like fucking around at $25 a hand. This was the machine I was at, so I just ran one coin. I didn't care. And this is small money to me either way. He can say that, and there's no way to disprove that that was his attitude. But it still doesn't make sense. Like, everybody I know max plays. Everybody. You don't have to be a video poker expert to max play. That's a tremendous mistake. So it really calls into question everything else. Would someone who is a genius who is beating negative expectation games in a way that casinos don't understand and he's doing it at very high stakes, even though they're heavily watching him. Is he then making this rookie mistake at video poker? Now, I can think of one other excuse he can give. He could say, I'm doing things like that to throw him off. If I look like a ploppy at video poker, if I look like I'm 
the dumbest video poker player ever, then they're not going to suspect that I know what I'm doing when it comes to the other games. That's known as cover, by the way. That's actually a concept in blackjack card counting. There will be small negative expectation plays that some blackjack card counters would make on purpose in order to make it look like they don't know what they're doing. Now, if you give up too much expectation by making those intentionally wrong plays, then you're no longer a positive expectation player. So you can't do that. But they would make small mistakes on purpose that would be attempting to throw off the casino. Uh, A very simple example of that would be taking insurance when you see a dealer's ace, no matter what, every single time. The mathematically correct way to take insurance, if you're counting cards, is to take insurance when the count is high, meaning a lot of tens and aces left in the deck, and to not take it otherwise. But taking it all the time is a small mistake, but not a huge mistake, for reasons I won't bother getting into. So some players do that so it doesn't look funny why they're only taking insurance when they have a big bet out there with a high count. So that's an example of cover. So he can claim this is cover. So see, there can be excuses for everything. That's the problem here. If he won't give the strategy, if he won't say, this is what I'm doing, this is how it works, or at least if he's not telling someone you can trust to analyze it and give their honest opinion, then it's his word against yours, his word against the communities. So the community can say, we don't think you're winning. And he can say, I am, but I can't tell you because it would give away the strategy and the casinos would change it. And it becomes a stalemate. So yes, this becomes a problem. So at that point, either you have to prove it to somebody who's trusted, who promises not to say anything or even signs not to, or at the very least, prove you're winning in some way, or just accept the fact that people won't believe that you're actually winning. Now, on my other forum, Vegas Casino Talk, there is and was a regular poster named Rob Singer. Rob Singer has been around Vegas and the gambling world for a very long time dating back to the 70s. He's an older guy. I think he's around 70. And he was repeatedly claiming on the forum that by doing uh, betting progression strategies and things like this that would never change the expectation of winning in video poker, that he was winning a ton of money in video poker, that he's not playing anymore, but that he used to kill video poker just by uh, changing around limits, by... uh, betting on streaks and things like that had nothing to do with his mathematical expectation. And all the advantage players were going crazy there and fighting with him and calling him a fraud and calling him a liar. And some people really, really hated the guy, especially because in response, he would troll people and and say really nasty things to them. So a lot of people really got to hate Rob Singer. A lot of people were pressuring me to ban Rob Singer. And I said, you know, I'm not banning him because he's not harming anyone by doing this. I mean, yeah, the guy's being rude and a dick to people, but he's not scamming anyone. He's not asking anyone to buy his strategies. He's never taken a dollar from anyone here. So he's not doing anything to actually hurt anybody. He's just making claims, which I don't believe and you guys don't believe. Anyway, I mean, this argument raged on for years and years, and it was always the same thing. You guys just don't understand. You guys just don't know. I have a way to do it. I'm not disclosing everything, but... This is, these are the basics, and I am winning, and if you don't believe me, tough luck. And this went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth for years. So this sort of thing has played out in gambling forums and elsewhere on the internet long before social media, with gamblers claiming that they're killing something, whether it's sports or video poker or blackjack or baccarat, and most of the people who claim that they're killing it are lying. 
So I just go back to what I've been saying the whole way. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. Otherwise, anyone can claim anything. And if you get insulted that people are not believing your extraordinary claims when you're not providing extraordinary proof, then that's on you. You shouldn't be insulted because you have to understand that you need to back up these claims. But I will give Mickey a chance. So I would like to see his win-loss statements. And I would like to see anything else he's willing to show me. If he's not willing to show me, that's fine too, because he's not expected to or required to. But if he'd like my opinion to change, and he'd like me to say, yeah, I think Mickey's killing the casinos, then I would need to see these things. Okay, let's move on. If you have any comments yourself, you can text me 775-372-8355. Here are some texts from the 480. Don't know why, but Mickey seemed awfully defensive on some of his shit. From the 507, someone laughing at him saying it will definitely not be you regarding showing me his strategy. And from the 209, blue hash marks, referring to his Baccarat strategy he was talking about. What is Mickey talking about? Haha. Yeah, I felt like a fool when he was saying the blue hash marks thing. I haven't played a lot of Baccarat in my life because it's not a positive expectation game. So I've only played it for fun. I, I, and I'm not a big player of it. But when I have played, I didn't remember any blue hash marks. But I'm thinking, you know, maybe there are blue hash marks somewhere that someone who plays more would know what he's talking about. I didn't want to argue about that because I thought, well, maybe there are. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there really are blue hash marks. But I didn't know what he's talking about. And I guess this person doesn't either. If you know what blue hash marks are, please let me know. When the interview was over, I'm like, huh? What are blue hash marks? Oh, and one more thing in the chat room. Bobby Orr said, Todd is like the amazing Randy giving people the opportunity to prove their claims. All righty. I want to get on to a totally different topic. Doug Polk is in the news again. He really, really, really uh, keeps finding a way to keep his name relevant, even after he supposedly retired from poker. By the way, Doug Polk's never going to retire from poker. He always says that, but he always comes back. It always draws him back in. Why? Because poker is where he made a name for himself. And I don't believe that he will make a name for himself to the same extent anywhere else. And that's nothing against him. He seems like a bright guy. He seems like a hardworking guy. He's obviously a very successful guy. And to a lot of people, he's a very likable guy. And and I have nothing against him. I can see his appeal. But I will say that every time he goes to leave poker and get into other things, he gets bored very quickly and comes back to poker because that's where he's done best. And that's where people respect him the most. And I think that's the way it's always going to be. Anyway, there's no getting away from poker now because he has done something that will tie him to poker officially until at least he sells what he has just bought. On January 3rd, 2022, Doug Polk tweeted this. I'm now officially a partner of the Lodge Poker Club here in the Austin area, and then he posted a video. He went on to say, the Lodge is already the biggest room in Central Texas, and I'm excited to help them run bigger tournaments, more cash games, and more special events for poker players all around the country. The first event is the Monster Meetup Week at the end of January, details below, and then he posted about that Monster Meetup promotion. So Doug Polk 
jumping feet first into partial ownership of a poker room. Now, it's not just him. He is also partnering with Brad Owen and Andrew Neem, who are both vloggers, and they have their own following. They're not as big as Doug Polk, and they don't have the poker success that Polk has by any means, but they both have pretty good followings, and they are also part owners of the Lodge. Now, as Doug mentioned, the Lodge is not a new room, nor are they buying the Lodge from the previous ownership. They are entering into a partnership, and that's different than like what just happened with 88 Social, you know, Johnny Chan's room that crashed and burned, and then some totally unrelated guy came in and bought it, so it's under completely new ownership and management. That's not the case here. They came in and they bought a partnership with the Lodge, which is an existing room in Central Texas, in the Austin area, and Doug and Andrew and Brad are looking to improve it and use their following to draw people over there. He was saying it's already doing well, but we think we can make it even bigger. Now, let me again explain what's going on with Texas poker. I know I've said it for the last few shows, but we've had Texas topics, but just in case you didn't hear it, I'm going to quickly run down again what the situation is in Texas. Legalized poker does not exist in Texas. So is Doug breaking the law? No. See, home games are legal in Texas as they are in all 50 states to my knowledge. Home games meaning that just adults sit down and play real money poker for each other and nobody pays anything other than what goes into the pot. So there's no rake, there's no charge to play the game, there's no hourly charge for the game, that basically it's just a game where people are sitting there with money, it goes back and forth based upon who wins the hands, and then at the end uh, everybody gets up and leaves with their chips and they cash them out and that's it. Yeah, just like a home game. That's legal. That's legal in all 50 states, as I said, to my knowledge. What is not legal in Texas is to charge a rake, to have a time charge to be in the game, or anything along those lines where the service of providing the game has a charge to it in any way, shape, or form. There's also no regulatory body overseeing these poker games. It's just like if I were to hold a home poker game in my house, there would be no regulatory body to complain to if you didn't like something about the way the game went. So I could spread whatever game I wanted, there could be whatever stakes I wanted, and I could make whatever rules I wanted. And if you didn't like it, I guess you could sue me, but it's even hard to win those type of lawsuits. But there would be no regulatory body to complain to for my home poker game. So it's the same way with these Texas rooms. So what's going on in Texas is that these rooms open up, which are not technically poker rooms, even though they actually are. These are just clubs. They're private clubs where you pay some sort of fee to be a member of the club. It can sometimes be an hourly fee where you're paying by the hour to be in there, not to play poker, but to be in there, whether you play the poker or not, or it could be a weekly or daily or monthly membership fee, whatever the way they want to charge it. They just can't charge you for the poker. They can't say you start paying as soon as you sit down at the table. They can say as soon as you walk in the door, whether you play poker or not, it's, say, $10 an hour. That is legal. 
But what's not legal is to say you can walk in, but as soon as you get in the poker game, then it's this much per hour. So basically, these are private clubs where adults get together where home poker games just happen to go. But we all know what's really happening here. These are really poker rooms that are just operating the way they have to in order to be legal. However, these are only quasi-legal, and there has been regulatory pressure on both ends as far as what's going to happen with these type of rooms. There are some who want to see poker totally legalized in Texas, as it is in many other states, including California, where certain card rooms get the license to operate rake poker games. And then there are those who do not want these at all, and they want them abolished, and they feel that these are breaking the law, that these are going against the spirit of the ban on card rooms in Texas, because you're not allowed to have a card room in Texas, but yet there's all these card rooms that pretend they're private clubs. So there's some who say, this shouldn't be allowed, they need to clamp down on this, they need to change the law to where... They can't run these type of games. And one quick law change they could do that would put an end to this forever would be that these home poker games cannot run in a business setting. They can only run in a residential setting. And then they could put something additionally there that they could only run in a residential setting and there cannot be any charge for entering the residence. Well, that would would be the end of them. They couldn't run them anymore. So there's some who advocate a change in the law in Texas to something like that that would essentially be the end of these rooms. These people also say, not only don't we want these rooms, but there's no protection. So there can be all kinds of problems when there's no regulatory body that is overseeing these rooms. So I understand the argument on both sides. I think you know which side I come down on. Obviously, I feel that adults should be able to play poker and that card rooms should exist, and it should be up to the locality if it wants poker rooms in the locality. So certain cities can say, hey, we want a poker room. We like the revenue from it. Great. And other cities can say, hey, we don't want poker rooms in the element they bring in. We don't want them. I think it should be up to the locality, and the state should allow legalized poker, and that they should regulate it. In fact, I think there should be stronger regulation that protects the players rather than just collects money like the state of California does. So I'm not in love with the way California regulates it, and I've stated that many times before. And in fact, in the whole uh, Stone situation with Postle, I expressed my feelings about that and how I felt the state handled it, and I still have those feelings. But it is what it is in Texas. You know That's what it is right now. So Doug Polk is not in any kind of legal jeopardy operating one of these. At worst, what's going to happen is they're going to just shut it down one day and say you can't operate anymore. And at best, this will get legalized and regulated and the lodge will be one of them to get a license and all of a sudden his investment will uh, be a lot more lucrative. So it could go either way or it could just be stuck this way for a while. Anyway, why did Doug do this? Does Doug really need the money entering a partnership like this? Probably not. This isn't something that's going to make him big money. But I think he's enjoying it. I think this is just something new he wants to do. And when I describe what's going on, you're going to see that he's very dedicated to this already. Like He's really, really putting a lot of time and energy into this. This isn't like, oh, you know what? Let me just buy a piece of a poker room. That'll seem cool. Like He did that, and then he's really, really putting a lot of effort into making this work. So I will give him that. This is definitely a guy who is dedicated at the moment to the whole thing. Whether this lasts is a good question because Doug does tend to get bored with things, but at the moment, he's really 
doing a lot. So I'm going to play you his announcement, then we'll also talk about the other two guys. But this is from Doug's channel. The video is called We Bought a Poker Room. This just in, breaking news, our top and only story tonight. I have a huge announcement that I'm going to make. And the announcement is this. I am finally, after all of these years, going to get a reasonable haircut. I'm just kidding. At this point, I'm pot committed. I do have some big news though. As of today, I have officially bought part of the largest card room here in Austin, Texas, The Lodge. Other part owners include Brad Owen, Andrew Nimi, and Jacob Dalla. Anyway, we're kicking things off with a bang with Monster Meetup Week from January 24th to January 30th. We have a phenomenal schedule of events for you lined up, including streams that you can watch, tons of games you can show up and play, the world's largest monthly live poker tournament's going to be running, and then much, much more going on as well. If you want to see the whole schedule, I'll put a link in the description below to a video over on The Lodge where I break down exactly what we're going to be going through. Before we talk about some of the specifics here of what's going to be happening at The Lodge, I want to talk about Texas poker in general. For a lot of you guys, you might be thinking, wow, I didn't really realize how big Texas poker was. And that's pretty stupid because it's right there in the name. I'll admit I was one of those people. In fact, I didn't know poker was here at all until I got a coffee and looked over and there was a card room next door. From there, I went to all the different card rooms in Austin and realized that this is actually a very large business here in the city. And it's also going on across the state in places like Dallas, Houston, and San Antonio. At this point, it became clear with over 60 rooms in the state and seemingly endless growth, it was time to make a move. So I got in contact with two people that I knew would be absolutely essential for the long-term success of any room, Brad Owen and Andrew Nimi. Over the last four years, poker vlogging has absolutely exploded, and these guys are the OGs. I think a lot of people got into poker vlogging because of Andrew, and Brad's audience size today is frankly massive. I still can't believe how many people watch these vlogs. If Andrew, Brad, and I could work together, we would be an unstoppable force here in the Texas market. I wasn't sure if this is something that Andrew would be interested in, but I knew for a fact I could get Brad because I've appeared in not one, but two different raps about his cat. Too soon? Might be too soon. As luck would have it, this is something that Brad and Andrew had already been looking for, so it was a perfect time for us to band together and create a unit. We also, at that point, brought in lots of other people that we thought were useful, and we set out to potentially open our own room. As we started to look around town to open up shop, one thing became abundantly clear. We had no idea how to open a poker room. Okay, it probably wouldn't be impossible to open our room, but... It would certainly take some time. We're talking about something like 6, 12, 18 months. And of course, we'd have to bring in someone that knew what they were doing. And while a lot of people... Hey, let me stop right here. He shows a tweet there from September 6th saying, Considering the idea of opening a poker room in Austin, have plenty of support on the finance and marketing side, but would like to talk to someone who's familiar with operational logistics. If you're interested, you can email me and give an email address. So I remember seeing this tweet back in early September and I was like, hmm, I wonder if he's really going to do this, but I could kind of see it because I could see like Polk is bored and looking to do something new there in Texas. That's where he lives, by the way. He lives in the Austin area. So I could totally see this happening back then, but I didn't think that much about it. And here it is did apply uh, over on Twitter, and I definitely appreciate everyone submitting their applications. We realized that it might be a better avenue to look and talk to some of the bigger rooms here in the market already and possibly try to work out uh, some kind of partnership. 
After a few conversations with people around town, I ended up talking to Jason over at the lodge and I absolutely love the job that Jason and his family have done to build the lodge to what it is today. Currently, the lodge is the largest room in Austin. It has 60 poker tables and I'll show you guys a few images of the room. This is what the room looks like from the outside. This is what the room looks like from the inside. As you can see, it is quite large. And this is the sign that's on the wall. The Lodge Mahal. I'm pretty sure it's because the lodge rhymes with Taj. The lodge just upgraded units. They actually moved over from a different place in the same shopping center, but this is a pretty serious upgrade and the room is quite nice on the inside. Very clean, very open, a lot of space. Yeah, so let me comment on that because you can't see that obviously. I mean, you can go to his channel, Doug Polk Videos, and it's called We Bought a Poker Room in all caps. This is around the five minute mark, actually five minute, uh, 15 second mark in the 10 minute video. But I will say it looks clean but it has a warehouse look to it. It's not very attractive. It just looks big and clean. It really looks like a warehouse. It's like a warehouse, and it's got these cameras hanging down over each table, and there are a lot of tables there. He says there's 60. I believe that. Now, the good thing is it's not super cramped, and it can be stressful playing in a super cramped room, as I'm sure some of you have experienced at times. I know I kind of just feel... When there's just wall-to-wall -wall people around me, it just feels unpleasant. It just doesn't feel relaxing. So you definitely won't get that feeling there. But at the same time, it feels like you're in a warehouse. And I don't like the feeling of playing in a warehouse. I, I played in a warehouse at the World Series. If you remember the Big 50 event, they had to open up the former bowling alley, which was turned into a warehouse, which is across from the Rio Buffet. And... Not only was the AC not working in the summer, so it was boiling hot. This is back in 2019. But it was just really unpleasant in there. It felt like I'm in a freaking warehouse. And it just didn't have the same feel as the rest of the convention rooms they use for the World Series of Poker. Which, of course, are not normally poker rooms. But at least they're made to kind of look like poker rooms. But the warehouse looked and felt like a warehouse. So this also looks and feels like a warehouse, but whatever. You know, it's Texas poker. Beggars can't be choosers. And the room is a good size. I'll give them that. I love the room. Now, you might be asking yourself, how can places like this exist? Is gambling legal in Texas? Well, the answer is kind of. Basically, you can't have an establishment where the house profits off the players. Basically, the house can't be taking bets or have any stake in the result of the players. However, what is allowed are social clubs where people sign up and pay a membership fee, and then people pay by the hour to sit in a seat and play poker. So you can't take a rake, you can't take money off the table, the house can have no incentive in how the action goes. However, people can pay to be a part of a private club. This model has proven quite popular, but I'm afraid it's gonna be pretty bad for the players. By the way, I don't think that uh, he's correct on that. Maybe I'm the one who's wrong. Maybe someone can correct me if I'm wrong. But I believe that they can't charge you by the hour to actually sit and play. I believe they can only charge you by the hour to be in there. Otherwise, again, it, it resembles a rake. I don't believe any kind of seat fee is legal. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's the way I've been made to understand it. Mainly because there's no rake, and we all know... Don't you fucking dare, Thomas. If the rake is too high, it's actually better. I've never said that in my life. On the other hand, I've played in these games a few times and they are beautiful. 
Poker strategy went back in time 10 years here in Texas. We have a few different goals with The Lodge. Our first goal is to continue to make The Lodge the place to play poker in Austin, Texas. It's already the biggest place, and it's already, in my opinion, the best place to play poker, but we're gonna do our best to continue to make that a reality. Why am I advertising this for free? I, d I just realized this. I'm sitting here, it's 12.49 in the morning, and I'm realizing I'm running an infomercial for Doug Polk for which I'm not getting paid. It's really what I'm doing here. <sighs> With planned trips from both Andrew and Brad, and two times a week, I'm going to be driving down there on Wednesdays and Fridays to play some poker. That's right. I'm going to be playing poker two times a week. So I guess, I guess the retirement is officially on at this point. What are you going to do, you know? What are you going to do? Step two is going to be question mark, question mark, que no, I'm just kidding. Step two is going to be to open up new branches of the room around the country. I don't want to over promise and under deliver here because I'm already doing that on all 27 of my YouTube channels. But I do think there's space for a room to grow in underserved markets around the country where the laws of the state allow for those rooms to exist. Probably only those states. One of the issues with poker in some of these areas is it can get kind of dicey, and the best example most recently is the one that happened in Houston with Johnny Chan's 88 Social, where players couldn't get paid out their own money at the room. That simply cannot happen in a poker room. You can't close your doors and not pay out players. Players have enough problems going on to have to worry about the room itself stealing their money like that. Now, I think there's a new owner that bought them out and they're changing the brand and whatever else, so maybe it works out for the players, I don't know. But one thing I can absolutely guarantee you of, we're gonna do things right at the Lodge. For people that already play at the Lodge, you might be worried we're gonna come in and make a ton of changes, and, and that's not the game plan at all. I wanna preserve what's been built here in Austin because I think it really is something special. I want to make it better in certain ways, maybe some small changes here and there, but the core of what the Lodge is, the brand that's been built, I want to keep that intact. I want to bring that to other cities around the country. I mentioned this a little bit in the video linked before that talks about the upcoming schedule, but really the most important thing for players is to have games running. A lot of the rooms here in Texas are small and they suffer from game selection. You can't get games in a lot of them and they don't have games running overnight. The Lodge is 24-7 with games running around the clock, so you should always be able to get some action. Also, by having tournament series and these different streams and hosted cash games, there should be more and more options for you as a player to get to play and choose what you want to play. And that's really what it's about at the end of the day, servicing the members and making sure that people have an opportunity to play what they want when they want it. I also want to say that I believe in the Lodge so much that I've put my money where my mouth is. I've made a substantial investment into the room to be a, become a part of it, and so have Brad Owen and Andrew Nemi. I'm extremely excited for what we got coming up on Monster Meetup Week with the biggest ever meetup game in Texas history, and then also the monthly Monster Tournament. By the way, some people have questioned how Brad and Andrew have come up with the money for this, and are they putting in what Doug is putting in? And my answer is, I don't know. I don't know. What they each put in, obviously Doug has substantial funds to be able to put into this, but the other two, who knows? Uh, they might be making more from their vlogging than you think. Some of these YouTube creators do quite well, but they definitely don't have the type of money Doug does, unless there's something about them I don't know. But you know, maybe they scrape money together for it, and maybe Doug bought a bigger piece than they did, but they bought a big enough piece for them to care about it and want to be part of the project as well. We've also got lots of streams and games going on. I mentioned it earlier, but again, the link is in the description below. You can check out the full schedule from January 24th to January 30th at The Lodge. 
I want to say one last thing before I go. It's really important to me to get feedback from the community. I've always prided myself on listening to what you guys have to say, and I want to make sure that we do right by you. So if you've played at the Lodge, what are the, some of the things you really like? What are some of the things you don't like? All right, I've heard enough. Okay, I've, I've, I've given him enough free time to advertise the Lodge now with Doug Polk on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. And I want to be clear, I'm not endorsing this, and I'm not anti-endorsing this. I'm just covering it as news. I did not receive a penny for this. I wish I did. If, if Doug would like to send me money for this, I'll take it, though. So, Doug, if you hear about me doing this on this show, you'd like to send me a few bucks for helping you get the word out about your room, I'll take it. Now, do I believe him that he's not going to tear apart what everybody loves about the Lodge and turn it into something that people hate? Yeah, I, I don't think that's what he's looking to do. You can hear what his plans are. He doesn't want to stop at one room that looks like a warehouse like 20 miles north of Austin, which is where it is. It's not in Austin. It's in something called Round Rock, which is about 20 miles north, but it is a suburb of Austin, so it's serving the greater Austin area. But I think what he's looking to do is create a network of these rooms in other states and maybe even other rooms in Texas. So he wants to look at whatever states are not going to give a hard time to a room like this that starts up with the same model and get it going in those places as well. And he's kind of starting with an investment in the lodge, so maybe the lodge can exist in many places. There could be many lodges, and he's hoping this will become a brand that is known for poker in several states around the country, and then maybe the legal landscape will change and then it can become really huge. So that's probably his grand plan. His dream is that he can have an empire of these lodge poker rooms, many of which are operating in a legalized market. And at that point, then they can charge a rake and then they can make way more. The problem is that I don't see anything changing anytime soon with Texas. It might, but it's been kind of stuck this way for quite some time. Because I just don't think in Texas that they're looking to piss off either contingent. Because both contingents are pretty sizable and both contingents feel pretty strongly. And both of them have kind of gotten used to the status quo, even if neither contingent is very happy about it. So the anti-card room contingent would be furious if Texas decided to say, you know what, we, we don't allow casinos here, but yeah, sure, let's just do it. Let's have gambling in Texas. That, that would piss people off if they actually have full regulated gambling in Texas, even if it is just poker. Once they really have actual card rooms that are operating as card rooms, regulated as card rooms, that's, that's a big difference from these quasi-legal social clubs. That's the first thing. But then on the other hand, if they completely ban them, there's a lot of people in Texas who are very freedom-loving, who are very pro-rights of the individual. And those people will get very angry if there's this type of clapdown. Even people who don't play poker, people will see this as government overreach. So the safest thing for Texas legislators to do here is nothing. Just leave it the way it is and just kind of look the other way. Because as long as everybody looks the other way, it's not a big issue. So I think this is going to be stuck for a while. Maybe I'm feeling this out wrong because I'm not in Texas. I've never lived in Texas, and I've only been to Texas a few times in my life. But I think 
I'm right about this. I think it's not really going to be changing. And as far as other markets, I don't know. Like, I don't know how many other markets there are where this sort of thing could be legal, or at least quasi-legal, and tolerated by the state and the locality, and yet doesn't already exist. Because it's not like poker is a new fad. Poker has been a fad since the early 2000s. And people have liked poker all over the country. And it's not exactly a brainstorm to think, oh, you know what? Maybe I should start a poker room. A lot of people would want to start a poker room if they could. So I have to imagine that in most markets that could get any kind of real traffic, it's already been attempted or it can't be attempted because it would be shut down. Maybe Doug knows more about this than me, but I think maybe he went into this without really researching the other markets and really seeing the realism of those plans. But whatever, it's not like he needs this to survive. This is something he's doing. It's just a another phase, another experiment, another little thing he's getting into. And I wouldn't even be surprised if in a year or so Doug gets bored and says, you know what, I'm just not into this Lodge thing, so who wants to buy me out? Or if he becomes more like a silent partner who just puts other people in charge and, and really has not much to do with it anymore. Now, with that said, he's definitely getting into it right now. This is what he tweeted also on January 3rd. Playing a one two five PLO game at the Lodge Poker Club right now, and with a $10 straddle on, I just lost a 10K pot on an Ace-7-5-3-2 heart board with Ace-King-6-4-2 hearts against a bare pocket aces. Just your standard thousand pig blind pot. So he's showing here that way too much money went in on the other side when he had this monster draw and the other side just had uh, aces and nothing. And somehow those aces held up. He pretty much had uh, everything. He already had the the straight. He had a heart draw, and somehow he lost against the aces. I, I wonder what happened. How did he lose to the ace there? The, bo- the board pair, he lost to a full house. He didn't say that, but that's what happened. So anyway, he's been playing a lot lately. In fact, they streamed some of the play today. He's been there a whole lot. He's really trying to drum up interest in this room. I can't see this lasting. Just knowing Doug, I can't see him going there even two times a week for like a year. Could I see him for a few months? Oh, yeah. But for a year to go there, especially if it's not really making moves as far as becoming way bigger or expanding elsewhere, I think he's going to get bored, and we'll see. Maybe he won't. Maybe I haven't pegged wrong here. But from everything I've seen of Doug, I mean, remember that political channel he was going to run? Remember he was leaving poker and his big new plans were to run a political channel. And in fact, he changed his Twitter screen name, which still remains to this day, to Doug Polk Vids. It used to be Doug Polk Poker. Now it's Doug Polk Vids. And that was changed a while ago when he thought he's going to be transitioning away from poker and into political videos. I don't even know what kind of political videos because it seems like he's kind of like middle of the road politically. I couldn't see him running a left wing or a right wing channel, to be honest. But maybe that would be the point. I I don't know what he was thinking he was going to do, but it it went nowhere. And I said at the time, it's not going to go anywhere. I said no one is going to want to watch Doug Polk talking about politics. Maybe some of his existing poker fans would, but he's not going to get nearly the views that he would where he would talk about poker. So why bother? I don't think he's going to get 
many general viewers who aren't familiar with him from poker watching his views on politics. And it looks like I was right because that didn't go anywhere. And it looked like he didn't even put all that much effort into it. So he gets into these phases. He goes through these ideas of things he wants to do. And then he gets bored. Now, this one is not quite so easy to walk away from since he actually bought a piece of the room. But as I said, he doesn't have to actively be part of it. And he could even sell his part to somebody else. We'll see. I just don't see him doing this for the long term. Now, I admit, at the beginning, it could be fun. Because I put myself in Polk's shoes here. And obviously, Polk and I, there's many differences. I'm a lot older than he is. I don't have the same poker success that he does. I don't have the same social media reach that he does. So, yeah, there's some differences here. He's much better known in poker than I am. But still, we are pro poker players who like to also do broadcasting. And I can understand the appeal in wanting to run your own room or at least own part of a room where you have some substantial power. That would be kind of fun for me, too. And if I bought a piece of a room around here, I probably would go down there and play in some games at the beginning and enjoy it, especially if I were a bigger name in poker and people were to be excited to be playing with me there. Yeah, that would be fun. But you know what we would get? boring after a while. It would get tedious after a while. It would become a burden, something I wouldn't want to do anymore. I'd see it as a task. I'd see it as a chore. And I'd say, oh, I don't feel like going down today. I just want to stay home. I, I, I don't want to go play 125 PLO at the room. I mean, it, was, it was fun a few months ago. Now it's just, ah, oh, twice a week. I'm so sick of this. I, I just don't really want to. That's what I think. I think that's what he's going to think too. So we'll see. I don't think the Lodge Poker Club is going to become a household name in poker. I don't think we're going to have 50 lodges around the country. I don't think this is going to be the beginning of an era. Do I think that the room might improve some under Polk's ownership or partial ownership? Yeah. Do I think they might get more players there because of the following that these three guys have? Yes. Do I think it's probably overall a positive for the Lodge? Yes. Do I think it's probably a big positive for the Lodge? Yes, I actually do. I think that the Lodge is going to be better. I think the games will be better. I think there'll be more games. I think that this will become more of a place to play in Austin than it already is. And as he mentioned, it's already the biggest room in the area. So I don't want to say that this is a bad thing or it's going to screw up the Lodge or that this is going to be something that has no impact. I don't want you to come away believing that because I don't believe that. I just don't think Doug is going to have the zeal that he presently has for this if we fast forward six or 12 months. Maybe I'll be wrong, but from everything I've seen of Doug Polk, that is my prediction. We will see if it comes true. And by the way, let me know if if they really can do a seat charge in Texas. I was under the impression they can't. They can only do an entry charge, but not a seat charge, which are two different things. But maybe I'm wrong. As I said, I'm not an expert on Texas poker, though I am learning more about it since it just seems to keep ending up in the news these days. In our chat room, either Sate or Sate, I'm not sure how he wants us to pronounce his name, S-A-T-E, he said, no wonder Texas poker is blowing up if the rake is very low. The lodge currently has nine tables going. Well... 
that doesn't sound good, but it is 3 a.m. in Texas, so I'll cut them some slack. Now, it is 3 a.m. Saturday, Saturday night, so you would think if any time it's going to be jumping at 3 a.m., it would be Saturday night, but I, I don't like judging a poker room on 3 a.m. on any night. I would be interested to know how many average tables they have running. I mean, they may have 60 in the room, but how often is even half of that running? I don't know. So if you know that, you can let me know too. Okay, let's take a little break from Poker Talk. Time for another edition of Druffy Time Theater. Hello, Colonel Nigel Fabersham here. It's been a while. For some reason, I'm not on this show quite so much anymore. I always have quite a popular segment, but for some reason, Dandruff can't find a few moments to squeeze me in. I guess um, eight hours of him rambling by himself is not quite enough for him. He has to hog the mic and not give me a chance to speak. So, all right, uh, I get this 42 seconds during this uh, theme for whatever reason to introduce him, to ramble on about himself and all that rot. So here we go. On with it. All right, thank you, Colonel Fabersham. This is Druffy Time Theater, and I am going to tell you another story from my past, this one about 20 years ago. And I had a mystery on my hands, and it was a mystery that was disturbing me and scaring me. In 2001, I received a mysterious email, and it didn't seem to make a lot of sense. It did call me Todd, but it wasn't even clear if the person knew me or just got my name somehow from some email list. I thought maybe it was a scam or some kind of spam. I didn't know if this was something meant for just me or fired out to thousands of people where it substitutes the name that they have on file in their database. So I actually thought it was probably the latter because the email was so weird and didn't make a lot of sense. So I responded saying something like, nice try spammer, but I doubt you know me. Something like, I I was encouraged enough to respond because I wasn't 100% sure that this was spam, but I thought it was more likely spam than not spam. But I decided to respond and accuse them of being spam to see what they'd say back. Well, they answered pretty quickly and told me that they're not spam, that this email was just for me, and they do know me. And so I wrote back to them, okay, prove it then. If you know me, tell me some things about me. And they came back with a very creepy list of a whole lot of things they knew about me, including things that I wouldn't expect really people to think about or know including things I wouldn't expect them to know or even think about, like what type of shoes I wear. I'm thinking, who even notices that? They knew a lot. They knew how tall I was. They knew approximately what I weighed. And uh, they told me my hair color and my eye color. And they told me what kind of shoes I wear. And they told me a lot of other stuff about myself that wasn't just physical stuff either. They told me a lot of things. It was clear this was not a spammer. This was someone who knew a lot about me. Now, they weren't threatening in any way. They weren't hostile in any way. But why were they emailing me? What what was the point of this? And why were they using some sort of burner Yahoo email account to email me? Like, what was the point? So I asked them. I said, why are you emailing me? What What's... What do you want here? And they responded in a way I didn't expect. 
They wrote a long essay about all the things they like about me. And from reading this essay, it was very clear that this wasn't just somebody who thought highly of me. It was somebody who had a pretty intense crush on me. They wrote things like that I have beautiful eye- I have beautiful eyes and a smile that lights up the entire room whenever I'm happy. On and on and on they went with a lot of stuff. Nothing but praise though. Nothing but wonderful things about me that they had noticed and that they wanted me to know about myself. In fact, some of it was starting to verge into creepy territory about how they don't think people understand how wonderful I really am, but they see in me what others don't. And I'm like, okay, uh, <laughs> what are they doing this for? Why are they telling me all this? It's nice they think so highly of me, but what are they hoping to happen from this point? And of course, I started to think this is probably someone who wants to have some sort of romantic relationship with me and this is the way they're trying to tell me but who is it i couldn't figure it out then they were writing another detail they kept showing up in the emails they were writing me several emails but there was another detail that kept showing up a theme of these emails shall i say they kept saying You don't know anything about me. You don't even know which gender I am. Uh Uh-oh. That wasn't just said once. That was said in several emails. They kept bringing up the gender thing. Now, keep in mind, this is an 01, so there weren't 100 genders back at that point. It was just male and female. But which one? Was it a female? Or was it a dude with a big crush on me? Now, the big problem with it being a dude having a crush on me would be that this was someone who knew a lot about me. And I thought, oh, no. This is probably one of my male friends who is gay and in the closet and has fallen in love with me. And this is the way he's telling me. Maybe he's hoping that there's some chance that I feel the same way about him, yet he's afraid to say anything in case... I respond in a very negative way. So he's putting out feelers by sending me these emails and then seeing if I might be open to a relationship with a man. And if I say no, then he won't say who he is. And if I seem warm to it, then maybe he'll reveal who he is. So I'm thinking, oh, crap. Now, sure, I could say, hey, look, I'm totally straight. Whoever you are, uh, I'm not interested in dudes no matter what. So you might as well drop the whole thing. Remember, the person hadn't been threatening in any way, but I wanted to know who it was. Like, I was getting worried at that point that somehow I was uh, doing something to cause one of my male friends to fall in love with me. And I, I didn't want that. I didn't want that to continue. Now, if I had a male friend then or now come to me and say, you know what? I haven't told you this before, but I'm gay. I'd say, okay, no problem. I'm not going to hold it against anyone for being gay. And uh, I can easily be friends with someone who's gay. I do have some friends who are gay, and I don't 
judge them for that. That's just what they are, and that's what their preference is. And I don't even believe it's a choice. I believe that's just the way they were born. So fine. But the difference is none of these people ever tried to hit on me or show any interest in me. These people were all aware the entire time that I'm completely straight, and they respected that. Well, whoever this was back in 01 writing me these emails definitely had very strong romantic feelings for me. And if it was a good male friend of mine and they developed those feelings, then I wanted to know who it was. And unfortunately, that would affect the friendship because it would be very uncomfortable being around someone like that who would be having these feelings for me as we're together where I'm just seeing them as as another dude who's friends with me. Like, it's just very tough. Again, I would have no problem being friends with a gay person, but I wouldn't want to be friends with a gay male who has a big thing for me. I'm sure you can understand that. So I was getting uncomfortable about this, but I didn't want to drive them away. I wanted to figure out who it was. Now, if I figured out who it was, and it was a male friend, as I suspected, then I wasn't sure how I was going to approach it. I thought what I'd probably just do is uh, discourage the person without telling them I know who they are and just kind of keeping it in my back pocket and be careful how I interact without, uh, around them and try to quietly do whatever I can to discourage this without indicating that I know. That was kind of the way I was thinking I'd approach this. I wasn't going to just abandon the person upon figuring it out, but I was going to be watching more carefully the way I act around them because that was the last thing I wanted to encourage. Anyway, I wasn't 100%. It was a dude, but it was really looking like that because they kept bringing up the gender thing. And and why would a girl be doing this? Why would a girl make this a common theme of what they were bringing up? Well, I was wondering how I should bring this topic. Like, should I even mention that I noticed this? And might it scare them away if I mentioned I noticed this? And so I finally decided I just got to say something. So I wrote back to them and I said, you know, I notice in a lot of your emails to me that you keep mentioning the gender thing. You keep saying, I don't know what gender you are, and I don't understand why you keep saying that. So is that what you're trying to tell me? Are you a guy, and you're trying to get my reaction to that? I'm just I'm just curious why this keeps coming up. Why is that being mentioned? If, if you're a guy, then please just say so. And I said it in a friendly way. I didn't say it in a way that would scare them off or that would be judgmental. So I got an email back, and I was a little bit nervous to open it. I was a little nervous that I might read the answer, and the answer might be exactly what I was suspecting. So I opened up the email, and the person wrote, I have not told you my gender, and I'm mentioning that I'm not telling you my gender because I'm not ready to tell you who I am, and I want to leave everything a mystery, including my gender, because I don't want to give you any hints, not even that. However, as it seems you are a bit uncomfortable about this whole thing, I will tell you this much. I'm only attracted to members of the opposite sex. Uh, okay. Well, that makes it look like it's a girl again, right? I mean, whoever it was seemed to have a big attraction to me, and I'm a dude, And yet this person says they're only attracted to the opposite sex, which should mean that I'm the opposite sex and that would make them female. So I wrote back and said, so it looks like you're saying to me that you're female. And they still didn't want to say, but 
I started to push away at that point from the belief that it was a guy. Then I started to think, you know what? Maybe this actually is a girl. But who? I was having a hard time figuring out who it was. So I induced the person into something where I was able to get their IP address. I got them to do a certain thing. I, I, I won't get into how I pulled it off, but I got their IP address because I wanted to figure out from the IP address where they were located. I figured that would give me a clue. Maybe not that good of a clue if it was a location where I knew a lot of different girls, but if it was a location where I only knew one girl, then it would give me a very strong clue. So I got the IP address. They had no idea I got the IP address. And then I looked up where it was, and from the city, I realized who it had to be. Was it a guy? No, it was a girl. It was a girl that I knew from party lines. Remember, I used to call party lines. And it was a girl that I had met from party lines and actually had met in person. And we missed around a little bit, but I don't know. I just, I didn't want to continue any further. We, we didn't have sex or anything. It just, I just didn't want to take it any further for reasons I won't bother getting into. So after that, you know, I didn't really see her and, uh, we talked sometimes. It just, you know, I just went out there and met her. We weren't going on a date or anything. It's not, it wasn't built up like we were having some big potential romantic relationship and this was the big date. We, we just met just one day because we were both bored. And it went, well, we had fun. You know, we messed around a little bit and that was it. And as I said, I, I wasn't really into her that much. So I didn't want to encourage anything further. And it seemed like she was fine with that. But apparently... Whatever went on that night, it gave her encouragement. <laughs> she somehow a, a a much bigger crush developed, and she wanted to tell me, but was too shy to come forward and say the way she was really feeling. So I figured all this out by seeing who it was, and then I'm like, okay, well, I'm not threatened by this at all, because I'll say that I'll say something for this girl. She wasn't psycho. She wasn't a stalker. Like, I, I knew her somewhat by this point, and there was nothing threatening about her. She was just being shy. She just wanted to express her feelings and wasn't quite ready to do it as herself, because I, I hadn't really pursued anything after we messed around on that one night when we met. So that that's where it ended. The, there was nothing that I was worried about at this point. So... I thought, do I say that I know or do I not say? So at first my plan was to just not say, but they kept writing to me and kept just going on and on and on about how I don't know who they are. And finally, just one day something snapped and I'm like, you know what? I wasn't going to say this before, but I know who you are. So you might as well not waste the time with a whole charade about, I don't know. And, I'm not mad at all. In fact, I'm very flattered you think these things about me, and that's very nice. And I'm, yeah, I, I appreciate very much all the stuff you wrote about me and made me feel really good to read this stuff. And you know, so thank you for writing that. And I, you know, please don't be embarrassed. I didn't want to write anything to encourage it. Like I, I didn't write to her. Oh, I feel the same way about you. Let's let's go out again. I just, I made sure she understood that I wasn't looking down on her for this. wasn't mad and wasn't worried. But she responded back like very angrily going, what? No, I'm not that person. What would give you that idea? Why would you possibly think I'm that person? (laughs) 
And then she calmed down about a day later. She wrote an email to me saying, yes, you're right. I, that's who you got me. You figure, I don't know how you figured it out, but yes. And I'm sorry for bothering you. And so I, I wrote her back saying, you know, no harm, no foul. Again, I'm, I'm flattered. The things you wrote about me is very nice. And, uh, you know, we can just forget this whole thing if you like. So we did, we actually just forgot this whole thing. And we actually continued contact and, we just pretended it all never happened. So we actually remained friends after this, <laughs> but that was a weird situation. I did tell her though, that what was worrying me here so much was that I, I thought that it was a close male friend of mine who had fallen in love with me and it was going to be very uncomfortable, but no, it was, it was just a girl I had met and actually a girl I had messed around with before. So I, I, I can't even completely blame her for thinking there was a chance that we could be together because there was someone someone I had shown some interest in for, for a night when we met. It was the whole thing about the gender thing that was really throwing me off. Otherwise, I wouldn't even think about it ever. I don't think about it very often, but I forgot what even reminded me about it, which made me tell it on this show tonight. But if that element wasn't there, I, I would like never think about it. And this whole thing occurred over a period of a few weeks. So it wasn't even a matter of like days where I had to be concerned about this. There was a period of weeks where I really thought that there was a fairly high chance that a close male friend had fallen in love with me. And I really didn't like that idea. And I remember going through my mind, like, what am I going to do? Like, if I find out it's a male friend that I really like his friendship, but that he feels that he's developed a these strong romantic feelings for me like how can we continue the same way and then what do I do like do I push away and just kind of slowly degrade the friendship to we don't see each other anymore and then is he he's gonna know it's because of that like I the whole thing was very uncomfortable as I was so happy when I figured out that wasn't the case anyway that was my uh, secret admirer story from 2001 I'm gonna tell little stories like this by the way that's a, a new thing you know, I've been doing on this show, just dropping little stories from my past. Last week, it was about me causing Fidelity Investments to change their phone number. This one didn't quite have the same long-term impact, but just little amusing things I think you guys might find funny or interesting from my life. Okay, let's talk about something that's much less pleasant. PayPal, Venmo, and... Other apps that deal with payment online are going to be making a major change, and it's not even their fault. For once, PayPal's not at fault. They're making this change because it's required by the federal government. This is very disturbing, to say the least. Very much government overreach. This is something I'm very against. And this is an example of intruding upon people's private lives under the guise of fair tax collection. And there's always a balance between what is best for the government and is what is best for its citizens. For example, there could be a monitor or a camera shot, I say not a monitor, but a camera in everybody's house 
where they're being watched by the government 24-7. And there could be a camera in your car where they're watching you 24-7. And where every move is watched by the government. Now, if they had that, there would be very little law-breaking. But at the same time, this would be incredibly intrusive. It would be like in the book 1984. This would be so intrusive that whatever reduction in law-breaking would occur as a result of this constantly being watched wouldn't be worth the trade-off of giving up so much privacy. So really, everything the government does is a trade-off between privacy and what is best for the government and what is best for society being able to keep a watch on people for wrongdoing. Now, you can't have the complete opposite where there there is no power to investigate people who are thought to be committing wrongdoing. And you can't have it where the government has no visibility into anything without having to jump through major hoops. Or again, there's too much incentive for people to do bad things. You have to find a happy medium. And unfortunately, the happy medium is being broken here and in the direction of government overreach. And this has already taken place. This is not planned. This is not proposed. This is right now, as of January 1st, 2022. And this is January 9th right now. So we are eight days in. So as of January 1st, 2022, any mobile payment app, this includes Venmo, PayPal, Cash App, Zelle, or any other like that, they're now required to report any kind of transactions that are considered, quote, commercial transactions totaling more than $600 to the IRS. That is really bad. And we'll get into the commercial transactions part of it in a second, because that is a little bit where there might be something that's not as bad as it appears, but it's still pretty bad. This was signed into law by Joe Biden as part of the American Rescue Plan Act. And this was actually passed back in March of 2020, but uh, it hasn't gotten that much attention But now that this has actually gone into effect on January 1st, now, I'm sorry, it was was March of uh, 2021, not March of 2020. But now that this has gone into effect, this is getting a lot more attention. So prior to 2022, these apps only needed to report to the IRS if the person had 200 or more commercial transactions per year that exceeded $20,000 in total value. So you could have more than 200 transactions as long as they didn't add up to more than 20K, or you could be above 20K and have fewer than 200, and either way, they would not report anything to the IRS. It was only if you had 200 or more transactions and that when you add them all up, it was 20K or more. Now, that sounds more reasonable. That sounds more like taking a look at business transactions to where the IRS doesn't want to get cheated out of their piece of the pie. That was before. That was then. This is now. Now, starting January 1st, 22, if a person accrues more than $600 in a year of commercial payments on any app, 
And that's all commercial payments total, not from one person. Not at one time, not from one person. All of them combined. So if you had uh, 60 people sending you $10, then you're going to get reported if it's considered, quote, commercial payments. If you got six payments of $100, same thing. If you got 600 payments of $1, same thing. This is being done so the IRS can properly tax people, so they say, who run small internet businesses. See, the fear on the part of the IRS is that people are running small businesses where most or all of their sales are through the internet, such as people who have eBay shops or whatever, and then they're just not reporting to the IRS what they're really making. So the IRS is saying, we want to see it, not from the business owner, but from the apps furnishing these transactions. So all of these payment apps have to report all commercial transactions to the IRS. And then the IRS will determine if they feel that these businesses or these individuals have reported their income properly. And they'll probably get a notice, probably be told to explain it, and probably be told to pay additional taxes if they can't explain it, or if they explain it, which would leave them liable for taxes. PayPal said that PayPal and Venmo, remember they own both of them, offer a way for customers to tag their peer-to-peer transactions as personal or goods and services by choosing the appropriate category for each transaction. That's related to whether it'll be considered commercial or personal, which we'll get to shortly. They said users should select goods and services whenever they're sending money to another user to purchase an item or paying for a service. So here's what you need to know. For people who are sending money on these apps to where there is just no payment protection and you're just sending it to somebody you know, this supposedly is not going to change anything. But who knows? It might in the future. But if you are sending it to a friend, you're trading money with another poker player, buying crypto from somebody, and they're sending you the money on Cash App or PayPal, this is not going to change the IRS reporting. What's going to change here is anybody who does it through the system where goods or services are being paid for, and usually there's a fee with that. I'm not familiar with every single one of these apps, but for example, on PayPal, when you're sent money on PayPal, if it's marked as friends and family or personal, then there's no fee, but you also don't have any kind of protection. If it's marked goods and services, then the seller pays a fee. They don't get every penny you send them, but at the same time, there's protection provided on both ends, at least by PayPal. So basically, you're paying for that protection. Now, it's against the terms of service on PayPal to do commercial transactions and mark them as friends or family. Now, if you do this here and there, they're never going to know. But if you're getting a lot of transactions and they're all friends and family and they appear to be purchases, or if people who bought things from you complain and PayPal believes the complaint, uh, then they could close your account. And as we've talked about before, PayPal closes accounts super easily, and then they confiscate your money. That's why Eric Benzamokin actually is uh, currently an 
one of the attorneys who is filing a lawsuit against PayPal over that exact practice. But we're not talking about that here today. What we're talking about is this uh, reporting requirement. Now, you may say from all this, okay, so what's the problem? It sounds like the gamblers will be able to send each other money pretty easily without this IRS auto report, and that this is only aimed at small businesses that uh, may not have been honest on their taxes. Well, that's a naive way of looking at it. Here's what's really going on. First of all, it is not hard at all to accumulate $600 or more in sales through one of these apps. I'll give you an example. Let's say you have tickets to a sporting event. Let's even say it's tickets where you're uh, not making money or not making very much money. So let's say you buy tickets to go see the World Series. I'm talking about the Baseball World Series. And let's say you can't go. So then you go on StubHub and list them for sale. Of course, World Series tickets aren't cheap. Let's say you have even pretty good seats. So let's say each seat is going to go for $500. Well, you've just made a $1,000 sale if you sell two seats for 500 each. Well, guess what? Now that's going to be reported to the IRS because this is a commercial transaction. It has to be a commercial transaction through StubHub. They, they force it as a commercial transaction. So then this would be reported to the IRS. That single sale, I'm not talking about people who are ticket brokers who are using StubHub to sell, which a lot of them do. I'm talking about you who bought World Series tickets and can't go and now are selling the two tickets for $1,000 total. Now that's being reported to the IRS. Is it the end of the world? No, but it's a pain in the ass to have to deal with. This is the type of thing which really shouldn't figure into taxes. In fact, let's say you bought those tickets for 700 each and you're taking a loss. Well, now you've got to show this on your taxes. So this induces a needless tax burden. Look at how low the threshold is. 600 bucks per account per year. Not per month, not per week, per year. Not per person that you've received it from. Per year. So if your entire account has transacted 600 or more dollars through goods and services, again, not ones you're sending directly to friends, but uh, through the sale of goods and services, now it's going to be reported to the IRS. I'll give you another example, eBay. There are people who do a lot of sales on eBay, and then there's people who sell occasionally on eBay. It's not hard if you use eBay a few times a year to rack up $600 in sales. You don't have to be an eBay power user to have sold $600 worth of stuff on there. In fact, you, you sell a used iPhone on there and you sell some other item, some other electronic item later that year, you've broken through the 600 right there. In fact, some used iPhones are more than 600 depending on how old they are and what model they are. So you can bust through it right there. And now you've got a report to the IRS. It's ridiculous. What would be the purpose of this? What is the practical purpose of this? Why should the IRS see transactions that total more than 600 for an entire year? Why 600? What was wrong with the old rule? The old rule was the person had to have 200 or more transactions that totaled more than 20K in value. Why? Because they were trying to target the big sellers. 
Fine. I can understand that. I can understand from the IRS's point of view that they don't want the eBay power sellers screwing them out of tax revenue. Fine. The eBay power sellers should have to pay income tax like the rest of us. But you sell an iPhone and now now you've got to deal with the tax implications of this shit? You've got to be kidding me. $600 for the entire year? But that's the law. So that's going to be a tremendous pain in the ass. Not only that, but now the IRS has incredible visibility into your small transactions, which they shouldn't have. That's not the point of why the IRS collects data. The IRS is not supposed to be a body that spies on your every move. The IRS is supposed to be looking for income sources that you may not have paid proper taxes on and then ask you to pay the proper taxes on that. But that doesn't mean that uh, without any suspicion of prior wrongdoing, that they should have a magnifying glass upon your life. And that's what this is. So this is ridiculous. So while you don't have to worry about sending money to people through a service like PayPal at the moment, if you're just sending it to a friend, you do have to worry anything you sell now online. Furthermore, you may wonder, why don't I just sell things through that friends and family thing? Well, first of all, you can't do that on eBay. It doesn't give you an option to pay that way. But let's say you get the idea, you know what? I'm not going to sell on eBay anymore. I'm going to sell through other platforms where I can manage the way the payment has, and I'll just tell people to send it to me friends and family mode, and then this way it won't get reported. Yeah, well, good luck with that for a few reasons. But one of the big problems that might occur is that PayPal may say, whoa, 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 we don't believe that these are non-commercial transactions. We're thinking these might be commercial transactions and you're trying to hide it. So we're going to shut down your account and we're going to inform the IRS because they can inform the IRS at any time. They're not prohibited from informing the IRS if it hasn't hit this threshold or if it hasn't been marked commercial transactions. They're just not required to, but they can. So it is very possible that these companies, in an effort to appear compliant, will also try to find people that they suspect are trying to circumvent the rule. And when they try to find that, you're not going to have human accountants doing it. You're going to have bots doing it. And what do bots do? They catch a lot of false positives. So you might be making small transactions from your PayPal account, sending money to friends and family and you're thinking nothing of it and then the IRS is going to get a report that it's suspected that you're really doing sales and not marking them that way. That could easily happen. It might happen. Isn't that messed up? Isn't that messed up? So just because you think, oh, it's not marked goods and services, I'm fine. No, no, no. You can easily get reported anyway. Now, the consequence of being reported isn't the end of the world. You'll just have to explain to the IRS. They're, they're not going to send agents down to arrest you. They're, they're going to send you a letter, and they're going to say, we see that you've received this income. You've received these payments on PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, whatever. And 
can you please explain these to us? Even if they weren't marked goods and services, can you explain these? These appear to be income, and we feel you, we owe. We feel that you owe this much tax on this undeclared income, and then you have to explain it. Then you'd have to write them a letter back and explain it and hope they believe it. Do you want all that? That sound fun? That might be your future if you use these services. Now, am I recommending you just never use these services again? Well, I could. I could be a hard ass and say, yeah, never touch these services again. Fuck the IRS. Fuck PayPal. Fuck Venmo. Fuck Cash App. I could say that. But that wouldn't be realistic. Because this is 2022. People aren't using physical checks much anymore. People pay each other online all the time. People send each other money online all the time. So if you refuse to use these services, and this includes Zelle, by the way, if you refuse to use these services, then you're greatly handicapping yourself in modern society. That's why I also reject the similar arguments of, oh, Facebook should be able to do whatever they want. They're a private company. If you don't like it, get off. Oh, Twitter should be able to do whatever it wants. If you don't like it, get off. I hear those arguments and I say, no, because these have become such a major part of modern society that staying off them separates you from a lot of people who mainly use those to communicate. So it's not just so easy to say, oh, I'm not going to do that anymore. It's not like saying, well, I'm not going to go to Denny's anymore because I didn't like the experience I had there last time. That you can easily do without. But Twitter and Facebook, I mean, yes, some people aren't part of them, but you are giving a lot up as far as interaction, electronic interaction with people if you boycott huge services like that. So same with these payment services. It's very hard to not have any of these payment services without running into a lot of hassle. And this is in many ways. This can be paying for things you buy online. This can be sending or receiving money to and from friends and family. I've, I've had it a lot of times where, for whatever reason, I need to send someone money or they need to send me money and use one of these services. And if that couldn't be used, it would be a pain in the butt. And you can say, well, well, how did you get along without these 20 plus years ago? Well, it was not as easy, but because nobody had them, there was no expectation that you did. And therefore, they made other ways to send and receive money a little bit easier. And again, there wasn't an expectation that you could do it. So it's different. It's different when everybody else can and you can't or when nobody can this is crap. I mean, why, why is the IRS doing this? Why, why such a low threshold of 600? The reason that this is happening is because of this belief, this recent obsession that IRS has with small businesses. The IRS put out a report that they believed that they're getting stiffed out of 50% of tax revenue from small businesses that are underreporting their income. So that includes small businesses that do sales online and ones that don't do sales online. So they've also put the same requirement on banks as far as uh, transactions from accounts. We've discussed this before. So they're really, really trying to watch these small businesses closely to see if they can find that they are getting stiffed at a tax revenue. But 
you see the trade-off. You see the visibility that they don't deserve to have. And you see the potential burden where innocent people have to prove themselves when they haven't done anything wrong. And that's what you don't want. You don't want any IRS action to cause a lot of individual people have to defend themselves. And I don't even mean criminally. I don't mean they're going to get uh, dragged out of their homes and put in federal prison. I'm talking about just getting letters and having to explain to the IRS why you don't owe them more money when you've done nothing wrong and you shouldn't. Now, am I saying that everybody's honest on their taxes? No. Am I saying that everybody follows the letter of the law when it comes to selling things on eBay or StubHub or wherever? No. Technically, this is income. Technically, if you sell tickets, for example, on StubHub and you make a profit, then you are expected to report this profit and uh, especially if it's more than $600, then you're expected to report it and pay taxes on it. And a lot of people don't. And it's rarely ever looked at. So I can understand how the IRS is irritated that this happens and that a lot of people are not paying taxes that are technically required by the letter of the law. But this is not the solution. The solution is not to create this situation where they're looking at just about every transaction that's marked goods and services on these electronic payment portals. Otherwise, they have an unfair look into everybody's lives who are not suspected of any wrongdoing. And there's a big difference between getting a warrant to look into somebody's finances. There's a big difference between someone who's being investigated by the IRS for suspected wrongdoing and someone who is not under any suspicion that there's just data collection on them to try to find a problem. Big difference there. So I'm very much against this. I think the old rule was totally fine and there's no need to change it. This is one of these cases, if it works, don't fix it. And when I say it works, I don't mean that it's working 100%. I don't mean that they're catching all people who are underpaying taxes. I mean that it was catching the bigger fish. It was catching the bigger or even medium-sized operations that were doing a lot of e-sales and not reporting their real income. So they already had that mechanism there in place. They don't need to catch the guy who sells a few tickets a year for games they can't go to or buys a few tickets and then sells a few for a profit because they feel they can make a few hundred bucks. Like that's, that's not who it should be aimed at. The IRS should get their hands off with things like that. But be aware, it's already started. Okay, so I want to talk about an interesting situation that happened 15 years ago. Actually, now getting closer to 16 years ago. This occurred in 2006. And I'm someone who likes to talk about interesting stories and not necessarily current stories. I I try to keep current because who wants to hear about ancient stuff that isn't relevant anymore? But sometimes old stories can still be told and be interesting. Like I just told you about that weird secret admirer series of emails I got in 2001, which could have just as easily happened in 2022. Except probably nobody would admire me now because I'm old, but you know, you, you get what I'm saying. I've told stories of things that have happened in poker and gambling in the 2000s, and 
I especially like telling them if they have some relevance to today, and this one definitely does. This was actually meant to be a segment in December, but then because we missed an episode, I ended up not doing another show till Christmas, and I had so much to talk about, I could not squeeze this into the schedule. And last week I had a lot to talk about as well, so this is the first opportunity I felt I had to talk about it. And since this is a story from 2006, it's definitely not going anywhere. So here's what happened. This is pretty amazing that it didn't get more coverage and that more poker players and gamblers don't know this story because it involves the U.S. Supreme Court from something that sprung from our little community. So in 2006, there were two players who were both poker players and casino advantage players. One of them I know is still active in casino advantage play. The other I'm not sure. But you may have heard of both. Neither is a huge name, but you may have heard of both. One's male, one's female. The female's name is Gina Fiore. Gina Fiore is and was one of the rare female casino advantage players, and she also played poker. She's still active in the scene today. I I haven't really seen her in poker much recently, but she is uh, still a casino advantage player. You can find her on Twitter at rxgamble, rxgamble, exactly as it sounds. She is in her 40s. She's a little bit younger than me, but not that much younger. Obviously, back in 06, she was a good deal younger. She was probably around 30 at the time, I'm guessing. The other was Keith Gibson, G-I-P-S-O-N. He was also a Casino Advantage player and also in the poker community. Now, you may say, Keith Gibson, I could have sworn I've heard that name before. Well, you might have, but... Maybe not in the context of his poker play or even his casino advantage play. Keith Gibson, I think, is probably best known for being the boyfriend of former 2000s poker media hot chick, Lacey Jones. (laughs) And I believe he's still married to her. He married Lacey Jones. You, You can Google Lacey Jones if you want. She's very pretty. She's uh, She was very much in the poker media in the 2000s, and everybody wanted her back then. And Keith Gibson ended up with her and married her, and I think they're still married. Now, back in 06, he was not with Lacey Jones. I believe he was with Gina Fiore. I believe they were dating. But the whether or not they were dating is not really relevant to the story. They were traveling together and they were doing Casino Advantage play together. So this could easily have been a platonic relationship. I don't think it was, but uh, these were basically two people doing Casino Advantage play together. Now, in 2006, civil forfeiture was not getting the mainstream attention that it is today. There wasn't that much talk about it. I mean, yeah, some people had heard of it. I'm not saying that nobody talked about it, but it just wasn't getting that much attention in 06. It's only been in recent years, maybe the last uh, five or six years, that there's been a lot of mainstream coverage of these really bad civil forfeiture stories. And I've covered them on this show, and I hate civil forfeiture, and the whole thing has been perverted to be legalized stealing for the government. Basically, they just find you with cash or other valuables and just take it and say, prove you got it legally. And it's not just a matter of showing them paperwork. You would have to prove in court you got it legally. 
which of course costs money. So if they take like 10,000 bucks for you, good luck proving you got it legally for less than $10,000 in legal fees. And they know that. And there's a lot of other shady ways that they get you to sign over the money to them, making you fear that they're going to prosecute you for drug crimes that you didn't do. And you're, you're basically forfeiting the money and agreeing not to challenge it in return for them not prosecuting you. I've seen that before too. That doesn't always stand up in court, but uh, they sometimes will attempt that as well. It's, it's really, really shady. It is legalized stealing. We've talked about it many times. Anyway, a civil forfeiture occurred against Gibson and Fiore in 2006. I'm really surprised I didn't hear about this because of how big the story got and the implications it had. But I didn't hear about it. And in fact, most people I know who were in the poker and gambling scene in 2006 had not heard of it. I'm not saying nobody knew, but it didn't get the attention it deserved. So I'm giving it some now more than 15 years later. So Gibson and Fiore in 2006 traveled from Las Vegas, where they both lived, to Atlantic City and then to Puerto Rico. They were presumably on some kind of Casino Advantage play trip. On the way back, TSA, the Transportation Safety Administration, found $97,000 in their bags, presumably their carry-on bags, and they were questioned about where the money came from, and they explained it. They said, we're Casino Advantage players, and this is our bankroll. This is what we're taking around to play with. We, we play high stakes, and that's what we've been doing. Totally legal. So TSA said, all right, fine. Go ahead. And they didn't seize the money. Now, that was actually kind of surprising because usually when you get pulled aside by TSA and they ask you where the money came from, that's about to be a civil forfeiture. It's very rare you walk away with the money. You will often walk away with no arrest, but you will be interrogated for a long time, and then they're going to take the money and say, sue us if you want it back. So this was surprising that the money wasn't seized, and they thought they dodged a bullet there. So they continued on their way to Atlanta. So this this happened in Puerto Rico first, and they were flying from Puerto Rico to Atlanta. So they breathed a sigh of relief. However, once they got to Atlanta, federal agent Anthony Walden had been informed what was going on, and he was waiting for them. Anthony Walden had a DEA drug dog with him, and the drug dog sniffed drug residue in Keith Gibson's bag. So it was assumed to be drug money, and it was confiscated. Now, was Keith Gibson secretly a drug dealer? No. Most money has drug residue on it. Drug residue remains on cash after it's been in the presence of drugs. It just sticks to the cash, and it, it uh, there's always a trace amount. There's been studies on this. It's hard to find cash without drug residue, especially hundreds. So any cash that is typically used for drug transactions, like $100 bills are, will eventually, in enough circulation, get drug residue on them. So this is a trick they use to steal people's money. They know they're not drug dealers, but they say, oh, drug residue in your cash, we're taking it. That's exactly what they did, by the way, to that U.S. Marine, the former U.S. Marine, who they confiscated money from on I-80 that we talked about recently. So this is a trick they use all the time. So don't suspect that they were carrying drugs or that Gibson was dealing drugs. That, it, that wasn't happening. 
these were two advantage players, and there's very frequently drug residue on $100 bills. If you're holding $100 bills now, there's probably drug residue on your bills. So they confiscated the money, and they were accused of acquiring this money through dealing drugs. Now, they were not interested in prosecuting Fiore or Gibson for this. This is just a ruse to take the money. This is a money grab. It's a literal money grab. So nobody was arrested. Nobody was planned to be arrested. Gibson and Fiore got back to Las Vegas, and of course they were looking to get the money back. This was 97K, a lot of money they lost there. They sent Agent Walden their gambling records proving where this money came from. So they were able to show how much they brought, how much they won, how much they lost, and it all added up to the proper amount. So this is where we got our 97K from. So they sent that to Agent Walden, hoping that, I guess naively hoping, that this would be returned once they understood this wasn't uh, any kind of drug money. Well, of course, they knew it wasn't drug money there at the DEA, and this was just civil forfeiture, legalized stealing. So Walden, who didn't want to let this go, he wasn't thrilled that they sent such a detailed record of where they got the money. So he then allegedly submitted a false probable cause affidavit in response. Well, the U.S. attorney in Georgia didn't buy it. So the the U.S. attorney in Georgia was the one who'd ultimately decide whether the money gets kept or not kept. The U.S. attorney in Georgia called bullshit and said, I don't believe this probable cause affidavit. There was no probable cause here. I think that the affidavit is, uh, may even be false. And uh, this is not a good reason to have seized these people's money. So Gibson, Fiore, here it is. 97K back. Took seven months. Took some legal fees. But the 97K was kicked back. Okay, happy ending. Not so much. Gibson and Fiore decided they're furious about this because it's one thing to have the money stolen via this uh, civil forfeiture BS, but they were especially offended by the false affidavit. They thought that's one step too far to actually go as far (laughs) to to file a false affidavit, making it look like there was probable cause to search here. Usually that doesn't happen, by the way. So they filed a lawsuit in the federal court in the District of Nevada against Walden himself, not against the U.S. government, but against Agent Anthony Walden himself for the false affidavit. Walden, called, he countered that this wasn't the right jurisdiction. So without even answering to the charges, he said, you shouldn't be suing me in Nevada even if it's federal court, that this does not belong in the federal court district of Nevada. It's just the wrong jurisdiction since everything occurred in Puerto Rico and in Georgia. So the district court actually dismissed it, and that seemed to be the end of it. However, it was then appealed, and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit reversed it, saying that even though the harm to them was caused in Georgia, it had a foreseeable effect back in Nevada where these two lived. So therefore, they could file this in Las Vegas. Now that is interesting. That's an interesting argument because nothing happened in Nevada. They agreed, but 
the U.S. Court of Appeals said, yeah, this makes sense. They live in Nevada. This is money they used to live in Nevada. This is money they used to work in Nevada. And you guys took it in Georgia. So since it affects them in Nevada where they live, they should be able to file this case in their home jurisdiction in Nevada in federal court. That was what the U.S. Court of Appeals said in the Ninth Circuit. Well, Anthony Walden was not very happy about this, and he actually attempted to have this taken to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court gets so many cases submitted to it, and they accept a very small percentage of them. But surprisingly, the U.S. Supreme Court took the case. I believe this is the only case that has ever made it to the U.S. Supreme Court from the gambling community, at least the modern gambling community. So I'm surprised this never got more attention. The actual Supreme Court took this case. So Judge Clarence Thomas delivered a unanimous ruling that indeed the jurisdiction was improper and Walden was correct about the jurisdictional matter. So he said that because Walden had no contact at all with the state of Nevada and that the 14th Amendment of the Constitution demands that a defendant who is sued in a state of non-residence needs to have a substantial connection to that state where they're being sued. In this case, Walden didn't have a connection to Nevada. So the U.S. Supreme Court reversed the appeal and the case was over. Now you may say, why did the U.S. Supreme Court take this? By the way, I agree with that ruling. As, as much as I hate what this Walden guy did, I do believe that was the wrong jurisdiction. I don't know why this was not filed in Georgia, that's where it should have been filed. I know it's probably easier to file it where they live in Nevada, but this induced this issue you see here. And there was no need for that. There's no need to have to worry about a jurisdictional issue. States' rights make it to where someone should not be able to be sued in a different state's court when they had nothing to do with anything that happened in that state. Otherwise, it's not fair to them. So if all the harm occurred in uh, Georgia and there was no connection that Walden had with Nevada that he shouldn't be able to be sued in Georgia. However, the internet has made that a lot more complicated and that's why the U.S. Supreme Court took this case because every time you make an internet transaction, a financial transaction on the internet with someone who is in a different state, then it is an interstate transaction and it could always be argued that it's a transaction taking place in both states. So let's say you buy something from someone in Georgia and you're in Nevada and then something goes wrong and that person rips you off. You may feel that you should be able to sue them in your home state of Nevada because that's where you were when you made the purchase, even if that person doesn't live in Nevada and doesn't have any connection at all to the state. Simply because they made a transaction across state lines with you in Nevada should be enough, possibly, in your opinion, to sue them there. However, remember, states' rights do guarantee that someone being sued in a state where they don't live has to have a substantial connection to that state where they're being sued. So this had major implications for e-commerce, even though this was not an e-commerce matter. That's why the U.S. Supreme Court took it, because... They were looking to establish whether or not someone could be sued across state lines 
in the home jurisdiction of the plaintiff claiming that the actions harm them where they live if the person who is the defendant has no connection to that state. That had a huge implication on e-commerce. And the U.S. Supreme Court in 06 decided that, no, you can't. They had a pretty long technical discussion of this on a big legal website called Justia, J-U-S-T-I-A, and you can go find that. If you just Google Justia and Gina Fiore and Keith Gibson, you'll find it. This was actually a 2013 case, even though it occurred in 06, it didn't get to the Supreme Court until 13. You know, the court systems work very slowly. The attorney for Fiore and Gibson, his name is Thomas Goldstein, he argued that the reversal of that appeal by the Supreme Court would have a major impact on consumer rights of Americans who buy things on the internet. He said, in his argument on behalf of the plaintiffs, Thomas, or actually, sorry, in this, this was written on Justia. In his argument on behalf of the plaintiffs, Thomas Goldstein began not by emphasizing the facts of his case, but instead with the consequences of the court's decision for other cases. What Fiore and Gibson's case was about, Goldstein suggested, was internet commerce. If the court ruled that Nevada did not have personal jurisdiction over Walden, Goldstein argued that anyone who was a victim of a fraudulent scheme that was conducted over the internet would not be able to sue the perpetrator of the fraud in their home state, but instead would have to sue the perpetrator in that person's state. Well, that's a reasonable argument on his part, but unfortunately this was not about e-commerce, and I understand why the court took this approach, because otherwise uh, it probably would be a 14th Amendment violation. Now, you may wonder... What is the clear answer to the jurisdictional question between states when something happens between two people in different states? Unfortunately, there's no clear answer. State jurisdictions are very arbitrary. Different courts can have different views of them, as we see here. First, the district uh, court agreed with Walden, then the appeals uh, agreed with Fiore and Gibson, and then the Supreme Court agreed with Walden. So you have different interpretations right there just in this case. But because all the harm occurred to Fiore and Gibson physically in the state of Georgia, then Nevada jurisdiction couldn't be granted. And I think that was correct. It saddens me because I really wanted to see this Walden guy get comeuppance for that slimy behavior, but uh, it makes sense. It just wasn't the right jurisdiction. Even though I'm not an attorney, to me that seems right. It also would have been a possibly successful lawsuit against an individual agent rather than the government. So had Fiore and Gibson won a judgment against Walden for this false affidavit, this might have scared all federal agents away from abusing civil forfeiture going forward, fearing that they could be sued like this and have to pay money out of their own pocket. It's one thing for the government to lose. It's another thing for the agent personally to lose. But here, they were trying to hold this Walden guy responsible for his own behavior. They were trying to reach into his pocket for it. And they might have been successful, but this was dismissed, and that was that. Now, I got some discussion going on this in December of 2021, that is. Andy Block, yes, that Andy Block from poker, he read this and uh, he said, It's perplexing to me that a lawyer would file in Nevada and not in Georgia from the beginning. I thought the same thing. So Fiore actually responded to this. Remember, she's active on Twitter as RxGamble. 
She wrote, It was filed in Nevada because the damages affected Nevada. We were purposely stopped in Georgia to make it hard for us to fight. One argument at the Supreme Court was if someone takes your identity and credit card and steals from you, shouldn't you be able to sue in your home state? We tried to make the same argument here. Well, you know, I I see what she's saying, but honestly, they should have just filed in Georgia. She's saying that they purposely did this over there thinking that she's not going to want to take this to court all the way in Georgia across the country. So this is a way they can exploit the situation to make it less likely that a lawsuit will take place for any wrongdoing. And I understand that. But at the same time, that's the way it goes. If I'm in Georgia, let's say say I'm a tourist in Georgia and some dude uh, punches me in the face and I sue him for punching me in the face, I need to sue him in Georgia. I can't go back home and then sue him in my state. And say, well, you know, I was punched in the face and it still hurt when I got home and I still had damages and I still had to go to the doctor when I went home. The damage occurred in Georgia. So my options at that point, if I want to sue him civilly, are to start a case in Georgia and just deal with the inconvenience of it or not sue him at all. To report him to the police and hope something gets done and that's it. Like uh, You have to make these judgment calls all the time with matters that occur out of state where you were harmed in some way and you want to engage in a civil case. So this is the same thing. They were harmed in some way. I know she's saying it was intentional they did it in Georgia, but maybe not. Maybe maybe this is where Walden is based out of and he was the one who took interest. He had no connection with Nevada. It's not like he was a Nevada agent who specifically went to Georgia to do it there to make it tougher. He It looks like he was based out of there. He took the interest in the case. And as soon as they landed somewhere that was stateside, that uh, Puerto Rico is technically in the U.S., but it's not a U.S. state. So, you know, as soon as someone landed in the the continental U.S., uh, that office got jurisdiction. It happened to be Atlanta. So it's very possible if they had some kind of direct flight from Puerto Rico to Las Vegas, it would have been a totally different agent and it would have occurred in Nevada. So it, I don't even think this was done on purpose. I think they just did it because it was the first place they landed that wasn't Puerto Rico. So I don't even know if I buy that argument. As much as I'm sympathetic for Gina and Keith in this situation, because believe me, I'm not defending any of this. I think it was awful. I think it was theft. I think they were victims. And I think this Walden guy was really slimy. I would have loved to see him get comeuppance for what he did. However... From the legal standpoint, it looks like that this was a correct ruling. And I don't believe this was done on purpose there in Atlanta. That is, I don't believe it was on purpose that they did it there as opposed to Vegas. I believe that was just the first opportunity to do it in the continental U.S. And they were ready. They probably got a call from Puerto Rico. Hey, be ready for these people landing. And they assigned an agent to it who was this Walden guy. And it went from there. So, this case can be cited whenever there is a jurisdictional issue involving e-commerce. Because remember that substantial connection part. What is a substantial connection? If someone sells something to you who lives in a different state and they rip you off, is that a substantial connection to your state? I don't know. Substantial connection is very subjective. You can say that someone who is selling on eBay has a substantial connection to all 50 states because they are offering their services to all 50 states. 
You could also say that's not substantial. That's just a small connection. So that's the problem when legal language is about something subjective. Substantial is hard to define unless they carefully define it, which I don't believe it is carefully defined. So when it comes to jurisdiction over interstate matters, it's a coin flip. (laughs) You don't know which way it's going to go. And it can be tough. It can be tough to determine jurisdiction. Now, if someone harms you financially and you want to sue them and they're in a different state, if you sue them in their state, then that'll never get thrown out. It'll be a pain in the ass for you. But if you sue them where they live when they committed this harm against you, then that's always the right jurisdiction. But can it also be proper jurisdiction where you live? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. And I've wondered that myself, like if such and such goes wrong, can I sue this person in a different state? And I've always wondered, would I have to go to their state to do it or or would I be able to do it in my state? And this is actually a big deal because if someone can sue you from a different state and force you to go to that state to defend yourself, then that is a huge burden on you. So that's where these jurisdictional issues come in. Otherwise, people can just sue you for whatever they want frivolously from other states and force you to come answer it in their courts and at at great personal expense in both time and money. And even if you end up winning as the defendant, it's already been a huge burden on you and, and often a big cost to you. So that's why there has to be some defense against that. There has to be a good reason why they are suing you in their home state when you don't live in that state. So this can be complicated. Sometimes it's allowed, sometimes it's not. And the internet has really complicated that. Prior to the internet and e-commerce, this was not a big deal because it was pretty clear when harm occurs if it's uh, in one state or the other. Yeah, there were mail order related things where this would come up, but usually it was pretty clear where the jurisdiction was. Now it's become very blurred. So I thought it was interesting that one of the big cases having to do with that jurisdictional issue about the internet, even though this wasn't about the internet itself, was involving these two gamblers, one of whom is still very active on Twitter and talks about her advantage play all the time. You may wonder, would Gina Fiore ever come on this show? The answer is maybe. We have a good relationship. We're not close friends or anything, but we have a good relationship. And she has said before that she would come on. And, uh, well, then some drama happened that didn't have to do with me, and it ended up falling through. But you know what? I might invite her on here anyway. She has kind of an interesting story. And I'd like her to tell it on here, so maybe she'll come on. Maybe I'll propose that. We can even ask about this. I once thought that she and I had an issue at the Bellagio, but I think it was somebody else. It was someone who looked like her, but I don't think it was her. But for a while, I thought it was her. And I'm like, ah, I don't like that girl. She she was such a bitch to me at the table of the Bellagio. Because whoever that was really was a bitch to me at the table. It was someone who tried a a move and they didn't want to show their cards. They had to show first. They did a check raise on the turn. I called. They bet the river. I called. And then they didn't want to show their cards, which they have to. But then they didn't want to muck their cards either because they thought there was a possibility they beat my hand. So they're trying to get me to show first, which isn't how it works. And when I wouldn't, she just went off on me. And 
I thought it was Gina because it was someone who kind of looked like Gina. But then I posted it was Gina, and Gina insisted that was not her. And she seemed pretty sincere about it. And I said, you know what? I, I think I believe you. And in fact, you know, thinking back to this girl, she kind of looks like you, but not exactly. So I think it's just kind of someone who has a similar look, but was a different person. So probably wasn't you. Okay. So I, I removed that claim and I even posted, you know what? I, I don't believe it was Gina anymore. So anyway, we'll see if we can get her on here. I think she'd be an interesting guest. All right. So moving on to our next topic. This was a disturbing story. I guess a combination of disturbing and funny. You know, in Las Vegas, a lot of stuff is not what it seems to be. There's a lot of people out there to take advantage of you, the tourist, who's just there to have a good time. And among those people trying to take advantage are women, often hookers, who hang around in strip casinos and also on the strip outside the casinos, looking to snag guys who might have a little extra cash, might be lonely, and might want some entertainment for the evening. Now, you may say, what's wrong with that? If the guy wants it, if the hooker wants to sell her services, then who's being harmed? Well, the problem is, number one, often these guys who don't want it get harassed anyway by these hookers who are trying to make a sale. And number two, a lot of times it's a scam or the hookers find the opportunity to steal from these guys or drug them and steal them or steal from them. And they do. Sometimes even violence ends up being involved if they bring in their uh, boyfriends to commit the crimes with them. So in general, if you are being stalked or approached or even glanced at by a hooker when you're in Vegas, it's better to keep walking. Even if you want a hooker, it's probably best not to be with the ones that are in the casino looking to go up to your room. Those are more likely to do something you don't want or rip you off in some way or let dudes into the room to rob you at gunpoint. Now, I have seen these women many times. I have been approached by them many times. I always try to make it clear I have no interest, and yet they persist. The reason this has happened to me a lot is because it is fairly often when I'm in Vegas that I'm walking around the casino late at night, sometimes after a long poker session, sometimes just because I'm staying up late and I'm down at the casino walking through it to get some food somewhere or just walking around and uh, looking at possible machines to play, whatever it might be. There's been many times that in the middle of the night, I'm walking around by myself, and they assume that being a middle-aged guy by myself in the casino, that I might have an interest. And it's ranged from them staring at me, hoping that I stare back and strike up a conversation, and then they propose going up to the room, which never happens because I know exactly what they are, and I don't engage in that conversation, even if I were to be single, even when I was single, I still didn't because I knew exactly what the deal was. But I've also had it where I'm just outright approached and 
where they try to strike up a conversation. And I, I know what it is. I know what it is. There's been times when I've been single. There's been times when I haven't been single. And all the times I behave the same way when these women approach me, even ones that don't look like hookers, when a woman who is attractive or semi-attractive just comes to me out of nowhere in the middle of the night and tries to talk to me and tries to strike up conversation, even when I don't show interest, I know that it's not just because they are impossibly attracted to me and they can't help themselves. It's not that. It's because they're looking to either make a sale or steal from me or both. So no matter what, no matter what my life situation at the time, the answer is a big no. So I always just practice avoidance, as a great man once said. But some more naive people in Vegas, men I'm talking about, they will sometimes fall for this. Sometimes they are aware these are hookers, but are fine with it. Sometimes they don't even realize it. Sometimes they are dumb enough to think that these chicks 20 or more years younger than them, who are also attractive, somehow want to go up to their room and have sex with them and chose them out of all the dudes in the casino, even though there's many dudes around who are younger and better looking than they are. Somehow they don't question that. So... There's been a lot of stories about guys who get approached by girls in casinos, take them up to their room, stuff gets stolen. As I said, the worst of these involve when they let a boyfriend in or a boyfriend and his buddies in and the guy is held up at gunpoint or sometimes we've had it where the guys get shot. Some pretty tragic stories like that. This is another one of those stories. The good news is there was no violence. The good news is nobody got hurt at least physically. Someone got hurt financially, but nobody got hurt physically. But there's a unique element to this story that has gotten it some attention and it's being shared around social media because there's an unusual aspect to the whole thing. Even though it uh, started off fairly mundane as far as the way these thefts go. So here's what happened. There was a man gambling at Caesar's Palace I don't know much about him, but he was gambling at Caesar's Palace, and two women, one named Nikki Grandel and the other Stacy Johnson, and Stacy spelled S-T-A-Y-C-E-E. Just in case you're wondering, I see pictures of them. Neither of them are very attractive. Nikki Grandel looks white and has... Uh, giant uh, eyelashes and kind of looks a little bit methy to me. Uh, Stacy Johnson is black. She's actually grinning in the mugshot, which when you hear the story, maybe you'll understand why she thinks this is kind of funny. But she was grinning in the mugshot. Uh, she's not very attractive either. So these aren't really hot chicks anyway. Uh, I wouldn't have been interested in either of these girls, even if they weren't hookers, and even if I were single, and even if I were younger. But anyway... Grandel and Johnson met this guy on the casino floor of Caesar's Palace, and they went up to his room. Now, I don't know if they identified them as if they identified as prostitutes to him. In fact, it doesn't even say if they are prostitutes, though looking at them, it kind of looks like they are. Or if they just feigned interest in him and he bought it. I will say... And in fact, this has happened to me at Caesar's Palace where women have approached me. 
and they come on very strong. They they come up to you, hey, what's going on? Hey, you want to hang out with us? Like, a, I can understand how a guy who isn't aware that at the very least these are hookers can get taken into the whole thing because it just kind of looks like these are fun-loving girls who just kind of see you by yourself and want to bring you in on some fun. So maybe that's what they did. It doesn't uh, detail that. Anyway, they both went to his room. Then, presuming that sex was going to happen, the eventual victim went and took a bath. (laughs) Now, I can understand being taken in by two younger women who act like they want to party with you in Vegas and go up to your room. Maybe they even claim they're going to have a threesome with you, whatever. So I can understand in the moment being tricked by this if you don't know better. But you're in the room with these two shady-looking chicks, and they really are shady-looking. Like these, these women don't look like the type of girls you'd want to bring home to mom. Let's just say that, okay? So they're in your room. You don't know them. They've just met you on the casino floor and are showing inexplicable interest in you. May or may not have said they're hookers. doesn't really matter. Do you actually go into the bathroom and take a bath by yourself and leave them in the room with your valuables and not worry? Like, how stupid can you be? Maybe the guy was drunk. I don't know. But how can he be that dumb? Because he had valuables there. Of course, you're going to hear the next part, and obviously they're going to steal things. But how do you leave stuff of value with these girls there while you're in the bathtub? It's not like they went and took a bath with him. He went into the bathroom to go take a bath of all things. <laughs> and they stayed in the room while he's in the freaking bathtub. So, of course, while he's uh, splish-splashing in the bath, the girls went through his stuff and found $6,500 in cash and a Rolex. These were inside of a duffel bag. And they booked it out of there. Now, these women took some precautions. They realized that uh, maybe he'll hear something. Maybe he'll notice the door closed of the room after he, you know, he's in the bathroom. They hear a door closing and wonder what's going on. Maybe he will call out to them and they won't answer. And very quickly, he will realize they stole. Because so, if they're gone from the room, it doesn't take a genius at that point, even someone as gullible as him, to realize that there's a good chance he got stolen from. So they realize that there is some chance that he's going to call the police and call casino security, and they will be detained before they can get out of there. So, he did realize that they had stolen from him. I don't know what made him realize this, but he did call police, and they did catch both of these women. So, they did a body search of Stacy Johnson and uh, found the money bulging in her pants, the police report said. And they asked, why is that money in your pants? It wasn't in her pocket. It was in her pants. So she actually admitted to them that she didn't initially put the money in her pants, but she put the $6,500 in her vagina and it fell out. (laughs) So first of all, she somehow fit $6,500 in her vagina. (laughs) Gross. Trying to picture that. Well, looking at her, I don't really want to picture that, but I'm trying to picture that. And, uh, yeah, that kind of makes it more likely she's a prostitute. 
<laughs> kind of makes it more likely that uh, a lot has been up there in her lifetime. Especially if if it wasn't even snug in there, if it if it fell out in her pants, so she put it in her vagina and it actually fell out, and that's when the police found her. Now, but what about the other girl? What about uh, Nikki Grandel? Nikki Grandel did not have any bulge in her pants. The looking at her, I kind of could picture a different type of bulge in her pants, but I guess that wasn't that either. When you hear the next part, Nikki Grandel denied taking anything from the room. She said, no, I didn't take anything. Go ahead. Search me. Look. And they uh, searched her. And indeed, in her clothes, there was no money stolen from the guy. You know, all $6,500 had been stolen by the other girl, Stacey Johnson. And the Rolex was nowhere to be found, nor was it on Stacey Johnson. So upon booking her into the Clark County Detention Center, police officers conducted an x-ray on her. And in that x-ray, they found the Rolex watch in her vagina. <laughs> Gross. You think the guy wants his Rolex back? What is the secondary market value of that Rolex now? Like, if you were that dude, would you put on that watch again? Knowing it was in that nasty place? If you see this girl, too, especially, like, if you see this girl, this Nikki Grandel, who looks like she's on meth, would you want to wear that watch again? Even if you disinfected it, like, ten times, would you still want to wear that watch again? And if you sold this watch, would you disclose this to the new buyer? Would you tell the buyer he's getting a discount because this was inside of Nikki Grandel's vagina? I wouldn't want to wear that watch. In fact, I, I wonder if you can get the stench off that watch. The whole thing is is a very unappealing thought. But I guess Nikki Grandel was able to keep it up there. Unlike uh, Stacey Johnson, where the $6,500 came rolling out and was in her pants, uh, Nikki Grandel was able to hold that Rolex in her vagina enough to where the police could not find it searching her and had to x-ray her. (laughs) I would love to see that x-ray, too. (laughs) Can you imagine that x-ray? There's an x-ray. There's a freaking watch in her vagina. So at that point, uh, she was further charged for the theft. Both women, however, are out on bail, and they will appear in court in Clark County on February 1st, 2022. As I said in the mugshot, while Nikki Grandel has a typical serious mugshot face, uh, Stacy Johnson looks like she's about to bust up. Looks like she thinks this whole thing's funny. Now, I have a feeling both of these women have been arrested before. I'd be shocked if these two don't have some kind of police record. And I'd be pretty surprised if they also weren't prostitutes. Now, I know people don't look their best in mugshots, but still, you look at these girls and you see them on the casino floor, you have to have an idea that these chicks are not ones you can trust. You don't want them in your room. Like, like, seriously, go go look at this article. It's all over the news. You look at these women, and I'm sure none of you would trust them for a second in your hotel room with or without valuables around when you're not there to watch them. I mean, this guy is lucky that it wasn't worse. They, they could have, while he was in the bath, they could have called up uh, their boyfriends or their pimps or whatever the hell and have them come in, just let them stroll right in, and the guy would come out of the bath and 
get the bad news with a gun to his head to give up everything he's got. I guess that wasn't necessary since he was just in the bathtub and they just stole it right there. Now, it is a much lesser criminal charge to just steal like this, which is the reason why if they can just steal and run off, then it's much better to do it that way than involve dudes where some kind of violence exists or even to drug the guys. The least criminal penalty will come from simply stealing from them and running away because there's no sort of uh, violence or drugging involved. And that's usually the way these go when there is a theft. Usually the women will wait till you go to the bathroom and then steal from you and then just run off. And in fact, this this happens with hookers that tourists get as well, not ones that find them on the casino floor, but even ones they call up that come there. Now, I will say that the services which send you over some girl where you don't know what you're going to get till they show up, while those have a problem in that you just don't know who's going to come and it's never the girl in the ad, at least those services are not going to involve themselves with habitual scammers. So it's less likely to happen with one of those, but the downside is you don't know what you're getting. And also it tends to be very expensive because the service is taking a, a part of it too. I'm talking about things like that 696969696 number that you see being advertised all over the strip on that driving billboard. It's pretty crazy in Vegas that while prostitution is illegal in Clark County, that a giant billboard can be driven up and down the strip, up and down the strip with that phone number 702-6969696 and like that just goes on. It's it's obvious hookers. They advertise it as escorts, but you know what it is. And somehow that just never gets busted. I don't know how they've managed that. But the ones that just kind of hang out on the strip, they are the ones who are most likely to rob you in some way. And it really is pretty much impossible to avoid interaction with girls like this if you hang out in casinos late at night and you're a dude, especially a middle-aged or older dude. I think, in fact, middle-aged is where they'll approach you the most. If you're really old, they'll assume that you're probably not that interested in sex or maybe can't even get it up, so you're not as likely to want to pay for it. And if you're younger, they're going to assume that uh, you either feel you don't need it or you don't have the money to pay for it. So what they're really looking for is uh, middle-aged guys who they think are still young enough to want to have sex and old enough to have money and also old enough to like the idea of getting to have sex with a much younger girl. Because if, you, if you're 25, if you're a dude who's 25 and a girl who's in her 20s approaches you, I mean, if she's attractive, you'll like her, but it's not going to be a big thrill to be with a girl who's in her 20s if you're in your 20s. If you're 45, if you're 50, and you're with a girl in her 20s, that's a bigger thrill. So they love to approach the middle-aged dudes by themselves. Now, if you're walking around with your wife, your girlfriend, you're never going to get approached because they, they know that they're not going to make a sale there. But I'm alone enough in casinos, even sometimes on trips when I am with Benjamin's mom, she goes to sleep earlier than I do, so I am alone at night. So they they don't know that she's back in the room. All they see is just I'm a middle-aged guy walking around by myself. I was once uh, walking around Caesars, and I was approached by a prostitute, and I was walking around with a younger guy. And the younger guy thought it was strange that they didn't try to talk to him. And I said, oh, 100%, it's because of the age difference. It's because they... Uh, 
they figured I was the potential customer, not you. Now, I'm interested to get information about the hearing and the trial when this eventually happens. I heard that what's going to be entered as evidence, I, I don't know why the guy did this, but the victim, maybe suspecting something might occur, actually turned on his phone when he was in the bathroom and uh, recorded himself in there, I guess maybe in case something happened while he was in the bathroom and you know someone came in, whatever it was, uh, it was recorded only the part of him uh, taking the bath. So th- this was what he recorded. This was uh, posted up on YouTube, and I assume it's going to be entered as evidence in the trial. Splish, splash, I was taking a bath. The tub, I put my feet on the floor. I wrapped the towel around me and I opened the door. And in a splish splash, I jumped back in the bath. What? 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 Where, where, where'd you go? There you go. Be interesting to hear when that's played in court, how the jury reacts. Okay, so time to talk about other Vegas things that don't involve anyone's vagina. And talk about something a bit more boring but still something you should know. And that is a major change that has come in 2022 to both Caesars Rewards and MGM M-Life, which is soon going to be called MGM Rewards. And whenever I talk about big changes to these programs, do you think they're going to be good or bad? What has been the trend in recent years? Are they giving more or less to people as far as comps, as far as rewards, as far as benefits in Vegas. I think we all know. Yeah, less. Of course less, because all these casinos are consolidating, there's much less competition, and they figure, hey, we are going to give less and less, and you're going to take it, and you're going to enjoy it. But what's interesting is this is happening with both MGM M-Life and Caesars, Almost simultaneously, a month apart, one has already happened, the other is going to happen soon, and neither is good for the consumer. So let me tell you what's going on here. So something you may or may not know is that you can earn tier credits at both MGM properties and Caesars properties by spending money on property. Now, before I go on, it's important to give you some definitions just in case you're unaware. A tier credit goes toward your status with the program. So you can't redeem a tier credit. You can't spend a tier credit. A tier credit will help you earn status and go up the ladder. A reward credit is a comp unit, which you can spend on something. You can spend, it's like money you can spend on property. So at Caesars Rewards, which used to be called Total Rewards, a reward credit is also known as an RC and is worth one cent on property, one RC. And a tier credit is, of course, not worth anything, but that defines your status from gold all the way up to seven stars. And then MGM M-Life has a very similar system that goes from... uh, The bottom tier card, I think, is bronze or something all the way up to Noir, and that's done the same way, except it's not called reward credits. It's called, uh, 
I think Express Comps, I, I forget the name of their points, but whatever. They both use tier credits to determine your status. So this is only about tier credits. This is not about reward credits or any kind of uh, other comps. So something that was good at both properties is if you spent real money on hotels, I'm not talking about redeeming offers, but spending real cash on hotels, that you would earn tier credits and fairly quickly, especially at Caesars. At Caesars properties, up until now, for every dollar you spent on hotel rooms, you would get five tier credits. There were some tricks people used, such as they would charge things to their room. So sometimes when it got settled, you would end up getting five tier credits for that as well. So let's say you went to breakfast and you spent $50. Instead of paying the $50 right there, you charge the 50 to your room. And some properties were dumb enough to count that as a hotel charge and you'd get the five tier credits per dollar spent there. Didn't always work, but at some properties it did. So even without that trick, spending $3,000 on hotel rooms at Caesars Properties, which sounds like a lot, but if you think about it, it isn't. Like if you spent 30 nights there at $100 each on average, that would be 15,000 tier credits. And what do you get for 15,000 tier credits? Oh, yes, diamond. So just for spending $3,000 on hotel rooms, you could earn diamond without ever gambling there. And even if you don't want to spend 3000 on hotel rooms, you could get part of the way there. So let's say you spend 1500 on hotel rooms. Well, that would be five tier credits per dollar spent. So you're already halfway to diamond. So as you can see, a lot of people like this because they were going to be spending the money anyway. They didn't have comp rooms and uh, they were happy that at least they were earning tiers pretty quickly on these hotel expenditures. So a lot of people were getting to be diamond that way, or at least partly that way, at Caesars Properties. MGM M-Life, they have a different system as far as how many tiers you need. So their equivalent of diamond, which is the second tier card at uh, Caesars, second highest tier. The second highest tier at MGM M-Life is platinum. And platinum requires 200,000 tier credits, as opposed to 15,000 for diamond at Caesars. Now... It's not as bad as it seems because it's much easier to earn tier credits at MGM properties. They come much faster. So their rate they were giving you tiers was 25 tier credits for every dollar spent on property no matter what. So it wasn't just on hotels. It was anything you spent at MGM properties, you would get 25 tier credits. Well, people like that too. Because now if you went to an expensive meal, if you went to a show, whatever it was, any money you spent, and I'm talking about real money, again, not redeemed comps, not using points. I'm talking about actual real money you spend on MGM properties, no matter what the expenditure, except for gambling, of course, 25 tier credits per dollar. Now, you had to get 200,000 if you want to get all the way to platinum, but you could also get to gold, which is one below that. But even if you're going for platinum, still, if you think about it, that is $8,000 worth of expenditures. And again, that's not just hotel. So that was pretty good too. So there were people who were platinum at MGM properties who also didn't have to gamble. 
just by spending $8,000 on property, which again, isn't that hard with all the money you spend when you're on property if you go a lot of times. And you can get part of the way there. You can gamble some and get it that way. So people like this in both programs. Well, I think you know what's coming next. Guess what? This has been not just reduced, but tremendously reduced for 2022. So in 2022, it has already happened at Caesars Properties to where they have reduced it. How much has it been reduced, you may wonder? Well, effective January 1st, meaning this already happened eight days ago, at Caesars Properties, it has gone down from five tier credits per dollar spent on hotel rooms to one tier credit per dollar spent. Yes, an 80% reduction went from five to one. Ouch. What about MGM? They went from 25 tiers per dollar to four tier credits per dollar, which is a similar reduction. In fact, it's even worse. I believe it's 83%. So good luck earning any kind of status at this rate. Now you would have to spend 15000 on hotel rooms only to make diamond that way at Caesars Properties. And you have to spend $50,000 in this way to earn platinum at MGM Properties. Isn't that nice? That's a tremendous difference. You can picture yourself if you're an active visitor at MGM Properties spending 8K in a year, right? Through everything on property. You could picture yourself spending 3K on hotel rooms at Caesars if you actively visit, right? I mean, at the World Series alone, you could spend that. Could you picture spending 15,000 on hotel rooms at Caesars or 50,000? on property at MGM? I bet you can't. And that's the whole point. So what are they trying to do? You may wonder, why would they ever do this? Aren't they trying to get people to spend money on property? Hasn't the model for Vegas changed? This isn't 1985 anymore when they had everything as a loss leader in order to get you in to gamble. The new model, which has been around now for a while, it's not even that new anymore, is to make money in all ways, from the hotel, from the shows, from dining, from gambling, from attractions. They have a multi-tiered approach, which hurt them, of course, during COVID when a lot of that had to close. But that aside, why are they trying to discourage this sort of spending? Because what are they really giving up? If they give you platinum, if they give you diamond, yeah, there's a few benefits you get, but the hard benefits you get don't really save you that much money. They'll give you special lines you can get into, and you'll get a $100 dinner you can use for the year, and there's some marketing partnerships with cruises and things like that. But I'm not saying you don't want to have these statuses. I'm saying the hard cost to them is pretty low. So why wouldn't they want to encourage you to keep spending on property? when all they're doing is basically giving you a status with very little hard cost? Well, I can answer that. There are too many diamonds, and there are too many platinums, and there's even too many golds at MGM, which is, again, the tier below platinum, which doesn't really have an equivalent at Caesars. 
they don't like these middle and upper tier cards being earned by non-gamblers because what ends up happening is with too many of them, there's too many people who are special. And if you have too many people who are special, then these special lines aren't so special anymore. And then when they ask for perks, such as upgraded rooms or whatever else they might want, maybe uh, getting a table when a restaurant is otherwise full, well, they stop being able to do this for people if there's too many asking for it at once. So they can't have too many people who are part of these programs. So a way to reduce this without running off the gamblers is by degrading the benefit of people who are spending on property but aren't spending so much to where they're really, really happy to have them. So they've decided that they're going to do away with this benefit. Now, has anything changed for the better? Well, a little bit. Remember, I mentioned that MGM M-Life is going to become MGM Rewards. And while this is the biggest change, there is something new. Something MGM didn't have before that Caesars has had for a long time is the removal of the resort fees for people who were diamond and above. Now, at one point, it was actually platinum and above at Caesars. And the way Caesars worked, it was uh, gold's the bottom, platinum is next, and that's now a crap card that's worth only for parking, then diamond, and then seven star. So you really needed to be diamond to get anything decent. And at MGM, uh, the bottom, I think, is bronze, then it goes pearl, gold, platinum, and noir. Noir is invitation only. So... As I said, the gold equivalent doesn't really, the gold of MGM, it doesn't really have an equivalent to Caesars. But what was annoying to people at MGM properties is that they still had to pay resort fees, even if they were platinum. Now, if they had a completely comp room, they didn't. But if they didn't, let's say they had a cheap room offered to them, then they'd have to pay these resort fees, which have gotten very high, like 45, 50 bucks each per night. And people hated that. They're looking and saying, hey, I'm platinum, the second highest tier card here. Why am I paying resorts fees when at Caesars Properties, if I'm diamond, which is easier to earn than platinum, I don't have to pay resort fees. So finally, MGM got on board. So in the conversion of their MGM M-Life program to MGM Rewards, gold status and higher will have waived resort fees going forward. That means gold, platinum, and noir will no longer pay resort fees. So that's one thing that's gotten better. That's a big thing if you're gold, platinum, or noir. Now, presumably, if you're noir, you're getting comp rooms anyway, and there's a decent chance of platinum you are getting comp rooms. But there's people who are gold that are not getting comp rooms. And in fact, MGM matches status to gold a lot from other properties. So this will help those people who have gold status that they got through a match where they're not going to be getting any comp rooms, but now they're going to be able to get rooms with no resort fees. So that is one nice thing, but boy, have they ever uh, screwed the people who are earning status via the tier credits that they are earning from the expenditures on property. So if that's the way you've been earning tier credits at either MGM or Caesars properties, uh, it's not going to happen anymore at anywhere near the same rate.
uh, over 80% reduction at MGM and an 80% reduction at Caesars. This is not going to really affect me. I'm not a big spender on property, as you might imagine. I'm someone who earns my status usually through gambling. So to me, it's not going to make much of a difference. You know, I'm not someone who goes on property and gets expensive rooms or goes to really expensive meals, goes to expensive shows, goes to the gift shop, goes to attractions. I mean, I do these things occasionally, but I'm not the guy who's going to be spending $8,000 at MGM Properties. But it will affect some people, and there's already people in some Facebook groups that I'm part of that are grumbling about this. So I just wanted to make you guys aware of this and also make you aware that if you're gold or higher at MGM that's starting February 1st, which is when all these changes take place for the MGM, that you will get your resource fees waived. And you may wonder, what if I am not gold right now, but I will be gold by the time I go to MGM? Can I book now? And then when I stay after February 1st, can I get them waived if I've made gold by that point? Answer, yes. You just have to inform them at the front desk that the status has changed and they can look that up right away. And when they see that, they will waive the resort fee. So as long as, for sure, when you check in, as long as your gold are higher and it's after February 1st, they will waive the resort fees regardless of when you booked. And it's possible if you earn gold while you're there, they will retroactively go back and remove them. You can probably get that done by, again, going to the front desk. But make sure to check their work because there's been a lot of fail at MGM properties as well. They're, they're taking a lot of pages out of Caesar's book, both in rewards program and in fail. I can tell you that. There's been a lot of fail at MGM properties lately, and this has been attributed to the worker shortage, which, of course, is a problem throughout the entire country and not just in the hotel industry. I'm sure you've noticed that service has gone in the toilet pretty much everywhere with everything, especially in industries where they have to hire a lot of uh, lower-wage workers. It's just very hard to get people to take those jobs right now because they've been getting free money from the government. So why would you want to take one of those jobs? I understand. I'm not even criticizing these people for not taking the jobs. If I were in their spot, I'd be doing the same thing. Okay, so now I want to tell you a story about RCs, rewards credits at Caesars, that involves me personally. I have, at the moment, about $400 worth of missing rewards credits. This happened in December. You may wonder, why was I not shouting from the mountaintops about this, if 400 bucks worth of RCs was stolen from me in December. Why would I wait until January to tell you guys about it? Well, number one, I don't believe they were stolen. Now, if you recall on this show in, I believe, December of 2020, we talked about Eric Sonstegard, who previously was on this show because he got screwed in a different way by Caesars at the Rio when they double-checked someone into his room and the guy stole from him. Of course, that was no fault of his own and they didn't want to reimburse him for what the guy stole. He eventually got the money back, but uh, they resisted at first. But he had some more 
fail and some more bad luck at Caesar's properties when uh, $700 worth of RCs disappeared from his account and it was quickly determined that it was stolen by insiders who must have duplicated his card and knew where to use it where they didn't check IDs. So definitely $700 was used at various outlets like uh, food places and, and other stuff around Caesar's properties that uh, charged up uh, $700 worth of RCs cumulatively. So there was no question that's what happened to him, but he was having a very hard time getting reimbursed because of a bunch of uh, bureaucratic nonsense. They, they believed him. They were never questioning that this happened, and they agreed he was probably stolen from. So instead of just snap refunding the $700 to him, they put him through hell. And uh, I even asked him recently. He said he never got all of it back and just gave up. He got like 70% back and gave up, which is awful. Anyway, this is not about him, though. This is about me. I had about $400 worth of RCs disappear, but they were not stolen. How do I know that? Because when Eric checked, there was a list of the expenditures, and they were at a bunch of places he didn't go, and he knew what happened, and they knew what happened. That is not my case. My RCs disappeared in December of 2021. I had about $400 worth. I didn't have the exact amount, but I had about $400 worth at the beginning of December. I went to Vegas once and only once in December. I told you guys about that trip. That was where I got sick in Barstow and had to stay the night in Barstow. While in Vegas, I spent a whopping $19 worth of RCs at a food court, and that was it. Indeed, their records show, both at the Caesars Reward Desk, which I physically walk up to when, it, when I learned as I was checking out that my RCs were gone. That's when I discovered it. I went to the Caesars Reward Desk before leaving town, and they told me that all they see was that $19 that I really did charge. And then when I emailed customer service, who you're supposed to email about things like this, they told me the same thing, that all they could see was that $19 was charged. So, of course, my question was, if I only charge $19, and if that's the only transaction you see for the month of December, which is correct, then where did my $400 worth of RCs go? And they said, we don't know. That's all we can see. <laughs> so I'm like, well, that's not an answer. I need a full accounting of where my RCs went. So we can figure out what happened here. Now, I believe this is some kind of error. I don't think anyone stole them. I don't think this is malicious. I believe this is some sort of system error. In fact, I've heard about system errors like this occurring. So I don't even believe that this was anything aimed at me or even anything that was done to uh, steal from me. I think this was just some kind of mistake. But figuring out what this mistake was is a different story. But it is so frustrating because you can't call anyone about this. You have to do this through email, and they email you once every few days. So on December 21st, I emailed them, Hello, I had approximately 40,000 RCs as of December 1st. During a visit in December, I used about 1900 meaning $19, on food. So I should have about 38,000 left. Instead, I only have one. Yes, I had one RC left. Can you please see where the other 40,000 RCs went? Please examine my point balance in October and November and compare it to now and explain where they all went. So it's very simple what I'm asking. Look at my end balance 
for November, then look at what my balance is today, which is one RC worth a penny, and explain how that could have all disappeared if I only spent $19, right? Simple mathematics. So here's the response I got back. Hello, Todd. Thank you for contacting Caesar's Palace. It's my pleasure to assist you with your reward credits inquiry. A review of your account shows 32,200 reward credits redeemed towards comping your hotel stay at the Rio in November and 1,900 reward credits redeemed at Caesar's Palace on December 19th. Additionally, 1,300 reward credits have been deducted since October for your visa earnings. Generally, these deductions happen when you, a purchase you've made is returned or voided on the banking side. Now, that's true. That was fine. I have no argument with that. I, I did actually uh, cancel a reservation, which caused me to lose the RCs I had earned from that reservation. Totally fine. Please let me know if I can be of further assistance. Thank you for choosing Caesar's Palace. Have an amazing day, Wanda. That doesn't answer anything. That's just listing my transactions. Now, I was aware of the 32,000 RCs I used, $320, back in November. But we're talking about December here. On December 1st, I had 400 RCs, $400 worth of RCs. So this is what I wrote back to her. Hello, thanks for writing back. Please see my November 2021 reward statement. Now, unfortunately, the reward statement doesn't give you a running balance. It just shows you what was spent. While you're correct that I spent about 32,000 RCs on a hotel room, you'll see that I earned about 32,000 RCs in that month, which essentially cancels that out, which the statement does show that. So I basically earned in November through various ways I earned RCs on property. I earned basically what I spent. So I said, indeed, prior to my trip, I had about 40,000 RCs total, referring to uh, this trip I took in December, and now I have none despite only spending about 1,900 of them, as you said. Can you please give me a better accounting of what happened here? Again, please look at my reward statements from 2021. I would like a list of how many RCs I had on November 1st, how many I earned, how many I spent, and how much I have left. It doesn't add up. She wrote back, We don't have a detailed breakdown to offer other than a monthly reward statement. (laughs) What? They don't have it? They don't have a detailed breakdown of their own system? We encourage members to keep a personal record of their activity. (laughs) So they're saying, we don't have a balance for you on November 1st. We, We don't keep that information. You need to keep your own balance. You need to keep a pen and paper by your computer and write down what your balance was on each date. So if our your RCs disappear, you know they've disappeared. They, they can't provide you with that information. You need to keep it yourself. Which begs the question, okay, let's say I had done that. Because I kind of did. I noticed that I didn't have the exact total, but I noticed I had around $40,400 worth early December. So I did keep that record, kind of. And they're denying it. So... If they don't have that record, it, it doesn't help me. What I keep? So then she wrote, in a review of your account from October 1st through today, December 24th, I am showing 33,800 RCs earned and 34,100 RCs redeemed. Warm wishes. I love how that's, how that's how she ends it. Warm wishes. Wanda. Maybe because it was Christmas Eve, except she was like the Christmas Grinch. 
I was getting tired of this. I said, Wanda, can I please have a supervisor either email or call me? I'm afraid I can't accept that you, quote, don't have a detailed breakdown to offer. It's your system. You need to be able to look into it and tell me where my RCs went. In fact, your own findings from October 1st, 21 through December 24th, 21 shows that I only had a net loss of about 100 RCs, which is $1, which proves my point. If I only have a net loss of a dollar during the last three months, then where did my 40,000 or so RCs go in that time? I need to correspond with someone at Caesar who has access to these transactions and can justify where they all went. Please put me in contact with that person. So this is the email I got back three days later. Every three days I'm getting an email on this. So that shows you the speediness in this whole thing. Hello, Todd. You asked us to review your RCs beginning from October, and there weren't 40,000 reward credits in your account. In review of your RC activity from January 1st, I show for the entire year you've earned 70,432 reward credits and have redeemed uh, uh, 76,000 reward credits. Prior to October, the last time you used reward credit was July. I can suggest stopping by the Caesars Reward Center on your next trip or speak with a host on duty for another breakdown of your earnings if you want additional information than what we've provided. That still doesn't tell me anything. She just goes back further. So all she can do is compare earnings to expenditures, which is part of the equation, but unless we have an existing balance, that doesn't help me. Now, had I just created my total rewards account on January 1st, 2021, that would be great. Then that would tell everything. But just going on this year doesn't tell me anything because it fails to account for what I had coming into the year. And I didn't come into the year with zero. I came into the year with, you know, 400 something dollars, I believe. And I I earned and spent about the same amount. And she's admitting that here. So unless she's saying I came into the year with only about 60 bucks worth of RCs, this wouldn't explain why I have zero. But somehow, given that information she can give me, Without any running balance or without what I had coming into the year, I'm supposed to be okay with the fact that I have zero point zero. And somehow the 1900 I spent at that food place happened to be exactly what I had left. Minus one. I think I had one RC. So somehow what I bought there just happened to fall within one cent of what I really had. That's some coincidence, right? So obviously my RC just disappeared somehow. The system just took him. I don't know what happened, but the system just took him. And all I want is someone to break this down for me. All I want is someone to say, you came in with this much, you spent this much here, you earned this much here, here's how it all adds up, this is why you have one. This is why you have one penny now. That's all I want. And if they can't show that, then to... Restore my account to the amount it should be. And this shouldn't be difficult. They should be able to look at a snapshot of my account on October 1st, for example, and see what I had then. And then use basic mathematics to figure out what I should really have now. But they have not done that. They can't do that, they say. They have no capability to see my running balance, which is crazy. And they say, you have to maintain your own running balance? Well, apparently not, because if you do, they deny that that was your balance. That was my point. I came to them and said I had about $400 worth. No, you didn't. Well, what did I have? We don't know. I mean, can you believe this? So I asked, can you please refer this to a supervisor? And what do you think my next email? Remember, I asked already, but 
she still didn't get me one. So I asked again if they can please refer this this matter to a manager or a supervisor. Well, this was the response I got. Crickets. No response. I sent another email. Hello, can you please refer this to a supervisor or manager? Because again, I need a full accounting of where this went. Response? So Wanda's done with me. Wanda's like, what? Look, I told this guy what he earned and spent in 2021. Isn't that enough? You know, I would love to take all of Wanda's money and then when she complains about it, say, well, Wanda, my records show here that you earned $35,000 a year. You earned $35,000 in 2021 working customer service very poorly for Caesars Palace. And you spent $36,000 in 2021. So I don't know why you're concerned that your savings of $20,000, your life savings are gone because you actually spent a little more than you earned in 2021. So what's your problem here? I'm giving you all the records you need, right, Wanda? Doesn't matter that you have no money left. Doesn't matter that the 19,000 of remaining savings should still be there because you had that coming into the year. Doesn't matter what you had coming into the year because we don't keep these records. So it only matters what you earned and spent in 2021. Everything else is immaterial. So Wanda, you're broke. Have fun. Like that's, that's what I'd like to do. This is insane that they can't tell me what I had coming into the year or even into October. Why can't they? This is information that needs to be known. Now, you may say, well, these are comps technically, so it may suck, but they can take them if they want. No, actually, they can't. This is the one thing they can't take. By Nevada state law, comps like this, banked comps, which RCs are, are considered to be something of value. And even if you are banned, which of course I'm not, but even if you are banned, that they are required to pay them out to you. And if they don't, you can go to gaming and compel them to do so. Now, I'm not going to go to gaming over this, but I do want to get an answer here. And Wanda's not giving it to me. So I am going to pursue this further. Of course, I'm not done with this. I'm going to try to find someone with a bit more of a brain Maybe I'll do it this upcoming week and report back to you guys. I'm going to try to reach somebody and get them to look into this for me so I can figure out what's going on here. Because this is insane. I just want an accounting. I'm not even saying right now that they're 100% wrong, though I can't figure out where it would have gone. But maybe there was some kind of delayed charge that didn't hit from before. I just I just need to see it. I just need to see a real accounting of where my RCs went. And then if it turns out it adds up, okay, then it adds up. All I know is I came into December with about 400 worth of RCs, which made sense for my running total I've been seeing for years now. And it's gone. And I spent $19, so it doesn't matter. It doesn't make sense where the rest went. It's that simple. And I can't get an answer. When I went to the total rewards desk right before I left, right before I left town, they told me that this needs to be investigated. This is before I had my interaction with Wanda. They said it needs to be investigated and they're going to have somebody call me back. And of course, nobody called. 
So that's why I started emailing Wanda. But I'm going to have to call back there, see if I can reach anyone, which is not an easy task. But see if I can reach somebody and see if I can get someone to look into this and give me an answer. That's all I want is an answer. That's insane. It's insane they don't have a running balance they can give me. How many RCs did I have on October 1st? Uh, I don't know. It's up to you to keep it. Okay, but I did. And you're not accepting it. Duh. But I see what you've spent this year. It is unbelievable. All right. I'll give you an update if I ever solve this matter. Final topic before we go to the COVID stuff. Four online sports books have launched in the state of New York. And surprise, surprise, one of them is having major fail. This was in New York State. People are very excited in this very populous state. I believe it's virtually tied for second population-wise with Florida. This is a big deal for sports betting to exist there in New York State. The New York Gaming Commission announced on January 6th that they approved four online sports books to offer mobile sports gaming. The four are Caesars Sportsbook, DraftKings, FanDuel, and Rush Street Interactive. The Gaming Commission said that all four satisfied all regulatory requirements and that they are allowed to launch on January 8th anytime after 9 a.m. Eastern Time, which, of course, has already happened. They've now been open for about uh, 19 hours as we speak right now. The commission said in a statement, after that effective date, each licensee will determine when to accept wagers based upon its business capabilities and readiness. The remaining five conditionally licensed mobile sports wagering operators continue to work towards satisfying regulatory requirements necessary to launch and will be approved on a rolling basis when those requirements are met. There has been in-person sports wagering in New York for almost nine years now. But the online sports book are the first allowed legally in the state of New York. Nine licenses were granted, but they are not able to offer bets until they satisfy these requirements, of which four have, and that's why they were able to launch on January 8th, 2022. It is believed that uh, this is probably the second biggest sports betting market in the country, potentially, and now is the biggest one because the potential biggest one, California, does not have any legalized sports books online or otherwise. So let's talk about, again, the four that are launching. Caesars, DraftKings, FanDuel, and Rush Street Interactive. Now, which one do you think had problems upon launch. Which one? Hmm. 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 I can't imagine of those four, which would have the problem? Hmm. Could it be Caesars? Yep. 
It was Caesar's. So Caesar's had all kinds of fail, all kinds of problems with their first day in the New York market, and customers were none too pleased. Caesar's Sportsbook posted a tweet at 8.11 p.m. Eastern Time. It says, New York, comma, we are aware of the current service interruption and we're working to get everything back up and running quickly. We appreciate your patience and the support all day. (laughs) At one point, they actually put up a tweet that they had returned and that they were back up. And then when that turned out not to be true and it crashed again, they took the tweet down. (laughs) People were very unhappy with this. A lot of people got all ready to bet through Caesars online. And this was, of course, a weekend. And they were quite unhappy to see that they couldn't get through. Nobody was worried about their money, but that was pretty big fail on the part of Caesar Sportsbook. I'm not sure what the reason was for the outage. They probably couldn't handle the capacity. And now they were paying for it. I'm not sure if it is back up yet. CBS New York reported Caesar's Sportsbook app down on first day of betting. That was on a major TV station in New York City. That's not the best... <laughs> That's not the best publicity. Yahoo News reported the same thing. And it was down for several hours. So I I assume it's back up at this point. But what a mess this is. I mean, only Caesars. The message that was up there for a while said, Our app and site are currently offline, but Caesar himself is working to get everything back up and running. Yeah, that's an inspiring message that a dead guy, that Julius Caesar, who hasn't been alive for a very long time is the one who is tasked with getting it back online. That's par for the course there. (laughs) Maybe they have Wanda working on it. Maybe Wanda's saying, well, you could place bets earlier today. So isn't that what's important? Isn't that what matters? Ridiculous. All right. So not much more to say about that. You can bet legally in New York. They do have some promotions, I believe, if you uh, sign up new to Caesars. I I believe they have a match bet for your first bet on there for up to $3,000, so you may want to look into that. It's not clear if you can take advantage of this if you've previously had a Caesars Sportsbook account in another state. I wasn't able to get clarity on that. But if you are in New York State and you haven't had a sportsbook account yet, you may want to take advantage of this promotion before it expires. It, I, I think it's throughout January, but you may want to check on this. The way they would give you this is if you bet on something and win, then you just win and you don't get anything extra. But if you bet and lose, then they give you free play, which you have to roll over one time. So you can't just cash out the free play. You have to bet that free play at least once and roll that amount through. And then at that point, you can withdraw. So the promotion isn't exactly worth 3000 because you do have to roll it over once. But especially if you're an active sports better, that's a really good promo. It's, it's also not uh, worth 3000 because if you win, you don't get anything. But still, that's it, definitely a nice thing to get if you're going to be doing active sports betting anyway. So you may want to do that. 
provided the app doesn't keep crashing. Though I will say that some people aren't happy with Caesars Sports. An individual named Sean Alvarez tweeted, and I I believe he's not even in uh, New York. I believe he's in Vegas. But uh, William Hill apparently manages the Caesars Sports app there in uh, Nevada. And this is the exchange that Sean Alvarez, who I don't know, had with William Hill regarding his Caesar Sports account. He says, here's my account number, and gave it to them. This is in uh, Twitter DMs. He's DMing with William Hill US regarding his Caesar Sportsbook account. He said, uh, this is my account number. I was told that my account was suspended due to inactivity and then was initiated again only to be suspended less than 48 hours later. So basically it suspended him because he wasn't using it. Then he asked them, can you reinstate it? They did. And then it got resuspended. So he said, not sure what's happening. I have no issue not betting within William Hill and Caesars, but really confused with your verbiage. Oddly, I reached out regarding a derby future and was suspended within minutes. If you don't want my derby action, please let me know. So basically what this Sean Alvarez is saying is, hey, if you don't want me on your site, you don't want me betting with you guys, then say so, and I'll be cool with it and leave. But uh, I don't understand what's going on, why you would restore my account after it got suspended for inactivity just to suspend it again less than two days later, and and you suspended it minutes after I asked about the derby betting. So then someone from William Hill responded, when your account is suspended due to inactivity, once it is reactivated, you will have to place a bet before midnight. I have notified customer support, this person writes. Your account is now open. You must place at least a $2 bet by midnight tonight. (laughs) What? What? Your account has been reopened and you have to place a $2 bet by midnight tonight. What the hell? So he was obviously unhappy about this and he didn't understand why why they were demanding that he has to place a $2 bet. Now it doesn't have to be a $2, it has to be $2 or more by midnight that same night. They wrote this at uh, 2.40 p.m. So he wrote back, I'm not going to do that. I want to place a $500 derby bet, but it's not going to be at the kiosk by then. I'm not going to be at the kiosk by then. I am sorry that I do not meet the requirements, and if needed, you're welcome to close my account. I will bet accordingly without a logged account. So what did they do in response? Did they say, okay, well, then we're going to reclose your account? Did they say, okay, never mind, we'll leave your account open, and you can place the $500 Derby bet when you get to the kiosk, no problem? That should have been the answer to just make an exception to whatever this weird policy is that he has to immediately place a bet before midnight once they reopen it? No. What did they do? That was the last message he sent them. What did they do? They blocked him on Twitter. (laughs) He could not respond to them further. They just blocked him. (laughs) They just, they blocked him. So he wrote, is this my first ban? Love the lack of response from William Hill and Caesars. What a joke of an operation. And shockingly, Vital Vegas actually took William Hill's side on this. 
Vital Vegas said, I don't know enough about this service to address the specifics, but my suggestion is to be less high maintenance and follow the rules. I suspect they've spelled out the terms of service. I also suspect there's other similar services. I, I See, I hate responses like that. Don't be a terms of service monkey. That's what Vital Vegas is being here, a terms of service monkey. He's really got this one wrong. I believe somewhere in the terms of service there probably is something about when they reinstate your account that you have to bet that same day, which is dumb, but somehow it must be in their terms that once they reinstate your account that you must place the bet that same day as the reinstatement or otherwise they resuspend you, which is weird. You think they'd give you a lot more than a day or less than a day in this case, but maybe that's in their terms, but it's a dumb term. And they need to use common sense. What if you don't even know you've been unsuspended before the day is over? What if, as is the case with him, you don't have anything to bet that day? You say, hey, can you unsuspend my account? Oh, sure, here it is. You've got to place a bet now before midnight. Well, but I wasn't looking to bet today. No, you must bet before midnight. Yeah, but I wasn't really thinking. No, no. You bet today or you're out of here. You are out of here. And you go, but I, I don't understand. Why can't I bet tomorrow? No, 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 no. No, 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 no. You wanted to be unsuspended, right? Well, yeah, but uh, you wanted to be unsuspended, right? Why would you want to be unsuspended if you're not going to bet? Why would you want your account restored after it was inactive if you're going to continue being inactive? You tell me that. Well, but I'm not going to be inactive. I'm going to bet just not exactly today. Not today. Then why are you asking today? Why don't you ask tomorrow? Why don't you ask the next day, huh? 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 That's it. You're blocked on Twitter. Like somehow Vital Vegas thought that was reasonable. That's an insane rule. And then to block him? It's not like he wrote back, yeah, well, fuck you, and they blocked him. Like, he wrote back a very cordial response. He wrote back a response saying, okay, if these are your terms and you want to ban me, fine. I'll take my business elsewhere. That's cool. And they block him. Like they couldn't even have the courtesy to say, okay, we've closed your account. Let us know if you've changed your mind. They block him. He wasn't even rude to them. He didn't insult them. He, he wasn't nasty. He didn't even tell them their policy was stupid, which it is. He should have told them, your policy sucks. It's stupid. It makes no sense. But he didn't say that. He's like, okay, well, you know, if, if this is your rule, and since I'm not really compatible with that rule, I, I have nothing to place today then uh, you can close my account. He was very polite about it. And they blocked him. They actually blocked him. (laughs) Come on. You've got to be kidding me. So unless there's more to this, which I don't think there is, the guy posted screenshots. That's a horrendous customer service interaction. A company like William Hill should never block anybody unless he's harassing them. So here's some reasons you could block the customer. If the customer is repeatedly using obscenities, if the customer is being threatening, if the customer isn't accepting no for an answer and keeps just hammering you with messages about a closed matter, okay, then you can block them. But not in this exchange where he basically just said, well, I don't understand this rule, so close my account because I'm not going to place the bet by midnight. Why would you block him for that reason? So that's not directly Caesar, that's William Hill who is operating the book for Caesars. But boy, is that horrendous customer service. Wow. I can't believe Vital Vegas comes back with, 
oh, but you know, what about the terms of service? You know, you're, you, you should stop being high maintenance and follow the terms of service. See, I hate when people take that line. When I say people, I don't mean the ones at the company. I mean, I hate when third parties observing things like this say, but, but them's the rules. Them's the rules. Follow the rules next time, buddy. No, I hate that. You got to use common sense. And this guy wasn't even demanding they bend the rules. He was saying, okay, it doesn't make sense to me, but okay, close my account then. Crazy. Okay, let's go on and talk about the coronavirus here. Then we'll shut this down. I got two COVID topics here. Of course, they're both about Omicron. The first one is about cloth masks. And I've been saying something for quite some time. I have been saying that I don't believe that cloth masks are useful. I've been saying for a long time that I think that masks are mostly performative. Now, I'm not talking about N95 masks or KN95 masks, and I'm even willing to concede that some medical-grade masks, the ones that aren't KN95 or N95, but ones like that they wear in hospitals, that they have some use, but not nearly as much as N95 and KN95, but at least they completely cover your nose and mouth and have a snug fit. But cloth masks, which is basically just a piece of cloth blocking your nose nose and mouth, but have a lot of openings on the side, are not useful. That they feel safe. They feel like you are somehow blocking out the virus, but you're really not. Dr. Anthony Fauci said this in February of 2020 before taking it back and saying that, oh, I only said that because I didn't want N95s grabbed before medical personnel could get them. That already was a bad start. That was admitting you were lying because you thought it was for a good reason. That's not a good look from a public official, as I've talked about before. And we've never seen any conclusive proof that cloth masks are useful. And when I say that is whenever they've tried to study it, that any time they study cloth masks being used in real-world settings, they have never been able to conclusively show that this causes any kind of noticeable decline in COVID cases. And the few studies that are out there that seem to demonstrate the cloth masks do work are very flawed, and holes have been poked in them. In fact, even the University of Minnesota put out a study about the mask studies and bashed them and said that they're unreliable and that they felt that these are being published from a place of bias. And this was from a center at the University of Minnesota, which is left-leaning. So this was not uh, anything right-wing trying to bash masks. This was from a university in Minnesota, of all places. So I have said for a long time that I didn't believe that cloth masks were very useful. I didn't say they had zero use. I thought maybe they were helping a little bit, but not enough to justify mandating them and that they should be honest that it's just not very useful and we should focus on the big things which really do help like vaccination and also just staying out of situations which are COVID dangerous and I've been preaching that now for almost the entire time you've heard that on this show well things are starting to change as far as what is being owned up to by government officials and the mainstream media 
And the reason we are seeing a difference now is because of Omicron. Omicron is much more transmissible than any previous form of COVID. Now, that is well acknowledged by pretty much everyone. All across the political spectrum, everybody admits that Omicron is more transmissible, that our case rates of Omicron being transmitted throughout the country are way higher per day than anything we've seen before with COVID. It's like a million a day minimum and probably more because it's hard to get tested right now. So a lot of Omicron going around, as we talked about in the last show. No doubt it is super, super contagious and is going around very, very fast. So what would that have to do with the masks? Well, finally, the left and the media had to give up on their cloth mask fantasy that masking was very, very important. Because remember, they weren't saying everybody wear an N95 mask. They weren't even saying everybody wear a medical-grade surgical mask. They were just saying, wear a mask. If you wear a mask, you are being responsible. If you don't wear one, you're being irresponsible. Well, that's why it was surprising when a lot of those same officials came out and started saying, once Omicron was fast spreading in the U.S., that cloth masks are nothing more than a decoration, that cloth masks aren't very useful, that you need to wear a better mask or otherwise you're probably going to get Omicron. Hmm. So this leaves one of two possibilities. Either cloth masks are just not very useful to stop the spread of Omicron because Omicron is somewhat different than Delta and other strains of COVID and maybe cloth masks were effective against the other strains and not Omicron, or they have never been very effective and that they're finally admitting this because the rate of transmission is so high that they can't mess around anymore. They can't continue to push this lie about the cloth masks being effective if they're really not, and then have the infection rates get out of control to where a lot of extra people die because of this or get hospitalized, or the hospitals get overwhelmed, or other things that are being feared. So now they've got to be honest and say, yeah, well, actually, you know those cloth masks? Uh, maybe you shouldn't be wearing them. Maybe you should be upgrading to a surgical mask or an N95. Really? Really? Now, something that's always been perplexing to me has been that since they acknowledged almost two years ago that N95s were far superior, not just superior, but far superior to cloth masks. It's not like they just discovered this. They've admitted since early 2020 that was the case. How come there has not been much of an effort to manufacture N95 and KN95 masks for the U.S. population and distribute it to them? How come that hasn't happened? Obviously, in early 2020, they can't just snap their fingers and come up with billions of N95 and KN95 masks that would be required to mask the population. You can't just make that happen in a short period of time. But in two years, you can. Why hasn't that happened? Seriously, why hasn't it happened? I've never heard an answer to this one. If these are the best masks, if these are the masks you need to really stave off infection, to really, really be effective, why are these not being rapidly manufactured and distributed for free to the population? 
Again, this couldn't happen right away, but in the time frame we've had now, about two years, they definitely could have. But there's been no effort to do this. There's been zero effort to do this. So why do you think that is? What could possibly be the reason if they've known the whole time, and you can go back to articles from early 2020 when they talk about the N95s being the best by a wide margin. If that was the best mask by a wide margin, why has there been no effort to manufacture and distribute them if they care about you staying safe from COVID? Why? Because that is, it requires a big effort. It's not impossible. It could have easily been done, but it requires a big effort that they did not want to undertake. They should have, but they didn't. So instead, they preferred that people did something performative. Why would they want someone to do something performative? Because they want people to not panic and feel like they have some control over the situation. And furthermore, it became political very fast because the right said, "Uh uh-uh, masks are, uh, mask mandates are a violation of our freedom. We're not doing it. And they pushed back. And while Trump himself didn't do that, he also would not endorse the mask wearing. So he was trying to avoid ever saying you should wear a mask. And they picked up on that. And they portrayed Trump and his supporters as being anti-mask, of which uh, many of them were. So the Democrats pushed that being pro-mask meant you were responsible and sciency, and being anti-mask meant you were an idiot who was just uh, too concerned over your, quote, freedom that you shouldn't have of this sort during a pandemic. And in order to push that message, they must make it look like that they are the responsible ones. So... If they admit the cloth masks don't do very much, then that message kind of goes out the window. The message only works when you believe that masking is very important. And that's why after the initial round of vaccination, when COVID was really waning, when it looked like uh, the situation was largely under control and everything was uh, reopening and death numbers were going way down and Death numbers for vaccinated people was going really, really, really low. And this is before we started seeing breakthrough cases and all that stuff, even before Delta showed up. Talking around uh, May of 2021, there were still some instructions that you should be wearing masks, even if vaccinated. And there was a lot of criticism regarding those instructions. And there were some people on the left who were defending this, saying, well, the only reason we have to do this is because of selfish assholes on the right who won't get vaccinated. So because some people won't get vaccinated and are still transmitting it, now us vaccinated people have to wear masks, which they really didn't at the time. But that was the justification given. So it it was always tied to the masks in some way. I had so many arguments with people on the left who were insisting that the reason the U.S. had as many cases as it did was because people on the right wouldn't wear their masks. And then later because they wouldn't get vaccinated. The mask was always a very, very big part of the whole thing. In fact, for a while, Joe Biden was saying, remember his 100-day eliminate COVID plan? Yeah, that worked real well. Remember he said that uh, when he takes office, we will bring COVID down to about zero within 100 days? And people asked, well, how are you going to do that? Then he said, well, wear a mask. Wear a mask and and also get vaccinated. But wear a mask was a big part of it. (laughs) We're going to bring it down to just about zero, but everybody got to wear that mask. So it's not that cloth masks don't stop Omicron, but stopped other variants. They never worked very well. 
And that's why you can't find any studies that shows that they worked well. Any study that exists is flawed. This has never been proven. The reason it hasn't been proven is because it's probably not true. It probably has had a negligible effect. So let me tell you about what's being released now. The Wall Street Journal put out a graphic that says why cloth masks may not be enough as Omicron spreads. And it was this graphic uh, graphic showing a chart with 16 boxes on a 4x4 grid. And on one side, it says person not infected is wearing, and then there's four categories, nothing, cloth mask, surgical mask, or N95. And then the other side says person infected is wearing in the same four. So this way you can look, well, if both people are wearing nothing, it takes this long to get infected. If one is wearing a cloth mask and the other is wearing nothing, then it takes this long. So listen to these numbers. If both are wearing nothing, it says 15 minutes together you will get Omicron if if the person who is infected is together with the uninfected person and they're both not wearing anything. If the person infected is wearing a cloth mask and the person not infected is wearing nothing, then it will be 20 minutes and vice versa. If the one not infected is wearing the mask and the one infected is wearing nothing, either way it's going to be 20 minutes versus 15. Well, that's not very much of a difference. Usually if you're somewhere for 15 minutes, you're also there for 20 minutes. I mean, yeah, there's sometimes where you'll leave in between 15 and 20 minutes. And I realize these are averages and these are approximate, but you get my point. There's a difference between running in somewhere for two minutes to grab something and run out or somewhere that you're going to be for some time, like 15, 20, 30 minutes. So if the cloth mask is making it so you're getting infected on average after 20 minutes instead of 15, that's not doing very much for you. Now, what if both are wearing cloth masks? What if both people are following that science and wearing cloth masks? Then it's a whopping 27 minutes. Better than 15, but that's not the protection I bet you thought you had, huh? Surgical mask, if one is wearing nothing and the other's wearing a surgical mask, it's 30 minutes. And if one's wearing a surgical mask and the other's wearing a cloth mask, it's 40 minutes. If both are wearing a surgical mask, it's one hour. Now listen to what N95s are doing according to this chart. N95 mask, if either person has it, either the person infected or the person not infected has an N95 on, it would take 2.5 hours to get infected by that person. If either has an N95 on and if they both have an N95 on, it would take 25 hours together for, for one to get COVID. Now, again, this is an approximation and this isn't for every person. But still, that that is telling a lot of the story right there. Now, you may say, well, but that's about Omicron. That is uh, about this new variant. I mean, the game has changed now. But that doesn't invalidate the mask information from before when we had Delta and we had other variants, right? Well, what about when you look at the very bottom of this graphic? It says, note, results published in spring of 2021. What? Uh, I don't recall 
Omicron being around in spring of 2021. In fact, there wasn't even Delta yet. So what the hell? So it says results were published in spring 2021. The CDC expects the Omicron variant to spread more easily. So this isn't about Omicron. This is about the previous variants. <laughs> ah, so that's the protection you thought you were getting was actually this. By wearing that cloth mask, you were getting 20 minutes instead of 15 before getting COVID. And even with both of you having masks on, 27 instead of 15. And you may say, oh, well, that's almost double. No, that doesn't help very much. Usually somewhere you're going to be 15, you'll often be there for 27. It's not like the difference between like 15 and 2. So this is before. This was in spring of 2021. Can you imagine now with Omicron being so much more transmissible? how little the cloth mask is doing for you. So that's why they're coming forward. They knew this all along. And now they're like, oh shit, if this is the minor protection you're getting from cloth masks, and now Omicron is spreading way more easily, wow, that's going to give you not very much protection at all. So you better stop counting on that cloth mask. I've been saying this for so long. I've never said that masks, cloth masks, that is, are completely useless. But I said they were a small, a very small piece of the puzzle, and the left was promoting it as a major piece of the puzzle. And people on the right knew it. They knew it didn't make any sense for a virus that doesn't mainly transmit through droplets. This uh, transmits through the air. It didn't make any sense why a cloth mask would be very helpful. It didn't add up. The right wasn't buying it. And then the right just started tuning out everything the left was saying, including the correct things the left was saying, like get vaccinated. So we have a big mess here where people can't trust advice given by the CDC or public officials or the mainstream media. And this is how we get there. Now, the right is not without fault. There's been a lot of anti-science talk from the right that just completely ignores the data. And I've said that many times. Before Omicron, when just about every person who was dying of COVID was unvaccinated, it didn't take a genius to say, hey, if almost everybody dying of COVID is unvaccinated, maybe I should get vaccinated if I'm in a risk group that would die from COVID. Like that isn't a big leap. That's not very hard to conclude. And if you conclude otherwise, you're not looking at it honestly or logically. So it irritated me when people on the right who were over 45, were refusing to take the vaccine because it made no logical sense based upon the data. So I'm not saying the right was perfect with this, but I'm saying that the right wasn't being stupid when they were questioning the mask wearing, when they were questioning the cult of the mask. This this is why. We're, we're finding out the truth now. So now, now that Omicron is so contagious, oh my God, now we've got to tell the truth that the cloth mask was never very helpful in the first place. Except they're not framing it that way. It's like, oh, well, it was helpful before, but now it's not because, you know, Omicron. No, it it wasn't helpful before and it's even less helpful now. That's the truth. Now, I do want to say that Omicron is spreading very quickly. If you are unvaccinated, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. COVID, the Omicron variant, that is, is going to get you very soon, if it hasn't already. And if you've dodged it for these two years, then you were lucky 
but your luck's about to run out. You're about to lose. Now, when I say lose, I don't mean lose your life. I don't even mean it's going to cause major damage to you. There's a good chance you will get what feels like a very bad cold. And then when you get over it, you'll be fine. If you get unlucky, it could be worse than that. If you already have existing major health issues, it could be much worse. If you're old and you have major health issues, it could still kill you. If you're old, even without major health issues, it could still kill you. We're, we're still not totally clear on that data, and I'll get to why in a second. But you should still take it seriously. But it is coming for you. You're not going to luck into not getting it unless you're just absolutely staying at home and avoiding everybody. But soon enough, it's going to get you. So your luck of avoiding COVID is going to end. Even if you are vaxxed but not boosted, your luck is likely going to come to an end. A lot of people who listen to this show have texted me and told me they have COVID. They have Omicron. These are people who haven't had it before. A lot of them had the vaccine but no booster. And now they have Omicron. Fortunately, nobody has a case which has hospitalized them. But some have told me it's very, very unpleasant and they hate it. And I think it's pretty safe to say that even if you were vaccinated but not boosted, it is also coming for you. And it's going to be very hard to avoid that happening this month. Sorry, that's that's the bad news here. If you are boosted, you have more of a chance to avoid it. But the news isn't great there either. It is breaking through boosters as well. So it may be coming for you then as well. And if it doesn't disappear, if it doesn't burn itself out or morph to something else, if it sticks around for a few months, like think of Delta. Delta hung around for a long time. If it hangs around like Delta did, then it's going to come for the boosted people too because the booster wears off. Actually, one person did tell me that they got... uh, COVID through a booster, someone I know personally, but they got the booster two weeks ago, so that's not really enough time. You really have to give it about a month. I mean, two weeks is something, but really, you get the full protection after about a month after the booster. But then after that, it starts declining. So I'm even thinking about myself. It's getting close to three months, and I'm wondering how much that has degraded, and it might be coming for me. This show could easily be canceled at some point in January. I don't mean permanently canceled. Hopefully not. If, I, if it's permanently canceled, I'm probably going to die. But uh, temporarily canceled. I could easily see me missing an episode because of catching COVID, catching Omicron. Even though I have the booster, it's been almost three months. I could easily see it breaking through. Maybe I'll get lucky. Maybe I'll get enough protection. Definitely, I had a pretty strong reaction to those vaccines. So my body definitely had an immune response. So maybe I have a strong response that got built and maybe it's been smacking down Omicron and that's why I haven't felt it yet. Maybe that's why there's been no Omicron for me or maybe I even got Omicron at some point and I didn't feel it. It's possible too. But I think I just haven't have it. And I, I think at some point Omicron could easily come for me this month. I've resigned myself that I will I wouldn't say probably, but there's a fair chance that sometime in January of 2022 that I will have Omicron. 
And that's the first month that I've really resigned myself to it. That I, that COVID kind of seemed like a reality that I could get. I always thought could, but most of the time I thought I probably wouldn't, either by practicing avoidance or by being vaccinated or being boosted. Now, I'm thinking it can happen. You should also know that if you travel somewhere and you have not had Omicron yet, especially if you're not boosted, there is a decent chance you will get it while traveling. And if you think that is going to be a major inconvenience for you, and it probably will, maybe you shouldn't travel. Because it's a real pain in the ass to get really sick when you're traveling. Because then you can't move on. You can't go home. You can't move to the next destination. You just want to lie down in the hotel room and not move, but you know, maybe you don't have that many nights. Maybe they're full. Maybe you're going to get kicked out because they got to give your room to somebody else. I mean, you, you don't want it. You want to be at home when you get sick. So you may want to consider that if you're thinking of traveling this month. That's the reason I didn't go to Tahoe for New Year's. I did not want to be 500 miles away and get Omicron. So just keep that in mind. It's probably coming for you unless you have the booster and it might be coming for you anyway. But let me get to the final topic And that is the death numbers. If you take a look at the COVID death numbers for the U.S. in recent days, it does not look good. Before Omicron really, really took hold and before a few weeks passed, because remember, the deaths tend to lag behind cases by a few weeks because most people don't die instantly or near instantly. It usually takes a a few weeks to die once you've gotten COVID, if it is destined to kill you. We were seeing numbers of like 700 a day that were dying. And almost all those deaths were people who had gotten Delta a few weeks prior and were just passing away now. So I was saying before, including last week's show, we just got to wait till those uh, Delta cases end. And when it's all Omicron and when everybody in the hospital has Omicron and not Delta, I'm talking about people hospitalized for COVID, that we'll probably see a tremendous drop in deaths, even with the vastly increased caseload. Far, far more cases now than ever before per day, but it seems to be far, far less deadly. So I thought, okay, get the Delta ones out of the system. Eventually, people hospitalized with Delta are either going to pass away or they're going to recover. Either way, they're going to be out of the hospital. Either way, we're not going to have more Delta deaths at that point. Every day, Omicron is taking more and more of Delta's share. I know as of January 1st, 95% of the cases were Omicron in the U.S. Now that we're eight days later, it's probably getting close to 100. So wait a few more weeks. Delta's out of the system pretty much, except for a few people, I guess, holding on, especially long, who were on the verge of death. And we're going to probably see the death numbers job. But taking a look at the death numbers in the U.S. two days ago, we see that 2,056 people died. Uh Uh-oh, that's a far cry from 700. How'd it get so high? So are we looking at death numbers that are similar to the worst point, which was January last year, when most people weren't vaccinated yet because it had just come out, 
and it was also winter time, so people spent more time indoors, and we were having 3,000-something people dying a day from COVID. So are we headed back to that, where even if it's not deaths per case as high, because uh, there's far more cases, but just the sheer number of higher caseloads of just more and more people having it compared to how many people had it a year ago, that we're going to see the same death numbers per day or maybe worse. And maybe the hospitals really will be overwhelmed this time. So I started thinking, "Uh uh-oh, this is very bad. This is something we really have to watch out for. And this is not what I expected. I thought Omicron was less severe than this. I didn't think we'd be seeing 2,000 deaths a day during Omicron, even with the super fast spread. And then I realized something. Then I realized something. We can't trust these numbers. Why not? Well, remember, Omicron spreads much faster, and we're seeing far more cases per day than we ever saw before. And remember that the way of counting COVID deaths was that if somebody died and tested positive for COVID, it was counted as a COVID death. So, If you had COVID and you had a car accident totally unrelated to COVID, let's say you didn't even know you were sick. Let's say you were completely healthy. You felt normal. You had asymptomatic COVID. You didn't even know it. And then a drunk driver hit your car and you died. Obviously, that had nothing to do with COVID. But if they tested you after dying and found that you had COVID, that is counted as a COVID death, even if you were killed by a drunk driver. If you just happen to have COVID at the same time, it's a COVID death. Can you believe this? How about if you have a drug overdose? If you're a longtime drug addict and you're sitting at home during the lockdowns and you have nothing else to do and you do a bunch of drugs and you either mix drugs you shouldn't or took too much and you die. But lo and behold, you happen to have COVID. Didn't even know it, but you happen to have had COVID and they test it and they see you died even though it's very clear you died of a drug overdose. And even if the hospital is 100% sure, you died of a drug overdose. Guess what? It's a COVID death. In fact, that exact thing happened here right in my town, which is not a lot of people, but someone, I didn't know him, but a 37-year-old man with a long-time drug problem died of a drug OD and happened to have COVID. Not Omicron, this was in uh, 2020, but he happened to have COVID, When he died of a drug OD, it went into the system as a COVID death. This is not my guess. This was actually reported in the newspaper that this was listed as a COVID death, even though it was a drug overdose unrelated to COVID. Because that's the way they were told to count it. If someone tests positive for COVID, that's it. Discussion over. It is a COVID death in the stats, which is wrong. Because where does almost everybody die of COVID? In the hospital, right? Because when it starts getting bad, you go to the hospital, you see if they can save you. They'll sometimes put you on a ventilator, sometimes try other things. And unfortunately, some people, especially those who are elderly or have other major health problems to go along with COVID, succumb to it and die of COVID, right? So that is where most people who died of COVID actually died. And Who's at the hospital? Doctors. Now, wouldn't you think that doctors at the hospital are capable of 
listing a true cause of death, wouldn't you think that they can give their professional expert opinion on whether a death was caused by COVID or not caused by COVID? Now, I realize there's some situations where it's difficult to tell somebody who already had a number of problems and then maybe COVID pushed them over the top and that is what killed them. But in reality, they didn't have very long to live anyway. Okay, if you want to call that a COVID death, fine, because at least COVID did or may have had a hand in killing them. But what about this drug overdose example I just gave you, which really happened in my town? What about the car accident example? And you may say, well, that's not very many cases. That can't be very common. Well, yeah, maybe as far as accidents and drug overdoses and suicides, maybe that's not a large percentage of COVID numbers. But what about people, again, who already had other issues? Maybe someone who had a heart attack that had nothing to do with COVID, but they happened to test positive for COVID. There's a lot of different reasons that someone can die, especially someone very old, especially someone very old who has other problems where it actually had nothing to do with COVID. And there's no indications that had anything to do with COVID because the way COVID kills people tends to be fairly specific, not all the time, but usually it's fairly specific. And at the very least, if someone is going to the hospital and complaining about major COVID symptoms, like stopping them from breathing or anything else that's really, really distressing, and then they die, even if it isn't in the typical fashion, if you want to call that a COVID death, that's not the worst thing. But when people are in the hospital for a completely unrelated reason to COVID and they happen to have COVID, there's no reason they should ever be called a COVID death and doctors should be able to make that judgment call. They should be able to list an accurate cause of death. In fact, that's what doctors have to do when they, whenever someone dies of anything before COVID ever existed, they have had to list a cause of death. Sometimes it's unknown, but if they have evidence of something that would appear to be the cause of death, they list the cause of death. So why is this not being done here? Why are we just looking if the person tests positive for COVID and calling it a COVID death, even if it obviously isn't one, like one from an accident or a drug overdose? Well, there's some reasons for this. Number one, hospitals are getting reimbursed by the government for COVID care that is not being paid for by insurance companies. So hospitals have a financial incentive to list everything as a COVID death if they can justify it with a COVID diagnosis, even if that's not the actual cause of death, because that allows them to get paid. And furthermore, the government wasn't bothered by this because a lot of people in government want to see higher listed COVID death numbers because it allows them to push through agendas that they're attempting to push through based upon COVID panic. Now, I'm not saying that COVID isn't a big deal. I'm not saying that COVID didn't kill hundreds of thousands of people in the U.S. It did. But I am saying that by policy, forget in practice where it also occurred, by actual policy, we were counting COVID deaths, which weren't actual COVID deaths. That was the actual policy to do it. It's not like doctors are doing this just to make extra money for the hospital. I mean, some of them are, but they're actually told to do this by the government. They're actually told to count a COVID death this way, and they do. 
That's the way state and other governments have told them to count COVID deaths, which is crazy, right? But that's the way it's been done for these two years of COVID. And I've complained about this. Now, I get the response from the other side saying, well, but what about the undercounted deaths? What about all these deaths in New York City where people just found dead in their apartment and it was clear it was COVID and they weren't listed as COVID deaths? And there's other deaths that occurred because of COVID that are wrongly blamed on on other causes and sometimes they don't test them after they die and they're listed as having a heart attack or something else. What about those? Huh? 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 And then those people reason that those undercounts cancel out the overcounts. So while they acknowledge that there are overcounts from things like the drug overdoses and the accidents, they say, look, the undercounts are greater than the overcounts. So the actual COVID death numbers are actually higher than what we're seeing, not lower. So therefore, we're fine with this. If anything, the numbers are too low. And my answer is, no, you're missing the point. I want them to be counted accurately. I don't want undercounts or overcounts, but I definitely don't want overcounts meant to compensate for the perceived undercounts because that's not the way you do things. That that just is begging for inaccuracy to do that. You don't do something inaccurate to counteract something else inaccurate you think is happening. I'll give you an example. Let's say you're trying to come up with a murder rate for a particular city. And then someone who's making policy says, wait a minute, you know, we have some people that just disappear and their bodies are never found and they can't be counted as a murder victim because there's no body and there's no proof that they didn't just get up and leave and choose not to be found. So there's a lot of people who are not listed as having been murdered when it's highly likely they were murdered. And that's true. So therefore, we're undercounting murders. So how about we do this? How about when uh, people die from accidents? We'll just start listing them as murders because, you know, we're undercounting murders of people who are just disappearing and never found again. So we can overcount the murders by calling all accidents murders, and then we'll have accurate murder numbers. Does that sound good? If someone proposed that to you, you'd say, you're insane. You can't count accidents as murders just because you think murders are being undercounted elsewhere. If you think they're being undercounted elsewhere, then address that. Don't miscount something else to make up for it. But that's what they're doing with COVID deaths. That's what they've done for two years. Look it up. This is really happening. It's insane to actually have a policy that if someone tests positive for COVID, when you know 100% the death had nothing to do with COVID, like from an accident or a drug overdose, that that gets counted by policy. It's insane. And there's no way to defend it. There's no way to defend that policy. I'm not talking about whether the number is accurate. I'm not talking about the overall number, whether it's accurate or not. I'm talking about that policy to overcount should not exist. It's wrong. So why am I talking about this now two years later? It's still happening, but why am I making a big deal right now in 2022? Omicron is far more contagious and less deadly. So what do we get from that? We get a lot more people who are in the hospital for other things or people who may die from other things that aren't even in the hospital, such as the drug overdose, the accidents, things like that, the suicides. A lot more people are going to test positive for COVID than before, even though their death had nothing to do with COVID. 
because there's way, way more COVID cases right now. There's way more people in the U.S. today testing positive for COVID. If we could test every single person in the U.S. right now and instantly have 100% accurate results, we would see a far, far higher positivity rate today than we ever have before by a wide margin, which means that when you test people for COVID who die from other causes, we're going to have more people testing COVID, testing positive for COVID who are dead, who didn't die from COVID than ever before. Simple mathematics, simple logic. So now this is really, really corrupting the death numbers because the case rate is so high. The higher the case rate, the more BS deaths we're going to have in the system. I mean, they're real deaths, but BS death causes in the system listed as COVID, which actually aren't. So it's become a huge problem and it's made the death numbers unreliable, super unreliable. I don't mean the past death numbers. I'm talking about the present ones, the present deaths per day are very unreliable because Omicron has spread so much. It's not just me who thinks this. Finally, this is getting addressed. So the state of New York has decided that they're going to separate deaths from COVID versus deaths with COVID. Well, welcome to 2020. They finally decided to address this in New York. I don't know if uh, this has happened yet, but they've claimed that uh, these are the plans in New York to actually separate that out, to have two different stats, people who were listed as having COVID-19, but it's not believed it was the cause of death, and people who were uh, believed to have actually died from COVID. Why wasn't this always done? I don't even know if they've started that in New York yet, but I know that that's being planned in New York and in other states as well. Even Dr. Fauci has said that we're going to have to start doing this. Why now? I mean, yeah, it's much more of a problem now, but why were we doing it wrong all this time? Why were we intentionally doing it wrong all this time? How can you trust what the government tells you if they're intentionally counting the deaths wrong? I don't want to hear about what's happening on the other side with the undercounts. The overcounts, they're intentionally doing wrong, and they have been for two years. And when anyone's objected, they were told to shut up. So why two years later are we still counting suicides, accidents, and drug overdoses as COVID deaths if the person happened to have COVID when they died? Or other people that have died clearly not from COVID that are COVID positive at their time of death why does that become a COVID death in the stats? Why? Why are we? Why is that being listed that way? So in case you think that the government has had your best interests in mind and has been honest with you and has been following the science and has been trying to provide accurate statistics and hasn't been exploiting this to try to push through legislation that would be easier to push through if the death numbers are higher – Because remember, with death numbers being higher, it doesn't mean that more people are dying. It just means that they're attributing more deaths to COVID, more real deaths that are occurring. They're attributing more to COVID than should be. So it makes the COVID death problem look worse. And as I said, if there's an undercounting problem, then they should fix that. Then go fix the undercounting problem to the 
best way you can. But don't shove overcounts in to try to counteract it. But that's not even why they're doing it. There are just interests in having the death numbers look higher. So this hasn't been corrected. It's been intentionally left the way it is. So why would they change it now? Why is there some motion to get this changed? It hasn't changed everywhere yet. That's, that's why we're still seeing these high death numbers. But there's some motion to get this changed because they're realizing now they've created a monster. And now we're going to have no idea what the real Omicron death numbers are if we use that metric. That's the problem. They realize it's getting out of control and they've got to fix it. But this shouldn't even be something that we've had to worry about right now. We should be able to see a real death toll from Omicron that is actually a death toll from Omicron so we can figure out what everybody's real risk is. Because that's the biggest question everybody's asking right now. How deadly is Omicron compared to the other variants? Omicron versus Delta. Most people believe it's milder and it probably is. But we really would like to see how many people are dying, who's dying, and how old are they and what condition were they in. So this way, everybody can make their own risk assessment for their own lives. So if we see that the only people dying of Omicron seem to be very old or already very sick, then if we're not very old or already being sick, we may say, okay, well, we'll take our chances with this one. We're going to go out and live life. And if we get it, we get it. In fact, it's spreading so fast, we probably will anyway. So F it. Let's just go out and live normally and just assume it's going to come to us. That's a reasonable approach. And maybe if you're very, very old or very, very sick, you can go, well, crap. Still a lot of people in my condition are dying. So I think I'm just going to stay home. I'm going to really avoid everybody because this is super contagious. And it's still killing people my age. So I'm going to stay home and avoid it. This is where each person assesses their own risk and then they say, okay, I'm going to live my life this way or that way based upon that risk. And that is a decision that each individual should make. And without the proper death data, we can't make an informed decision. And that's why you don't intentionally shove deaths in that are not COVID deaths and think, oh, ah, ha, 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 this is making up for undercounts. Ah, ha, 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 this is making it easier for us to push through legislation that uh, we wouldn't be able to. Ah, ha, ha. No, 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 you can't because it's going to bite you later with things like this. So now there's this panic. Oh, we got to fix this. Oh, we got we to gotta separate deaths with COVID from deaths from COVID. Yeah, two years ago, you should have done that. This is why I get frustrated. This is why I don't have faith in the way this is being handled by the government and with the information and stats being given to us and the way the media won't ask certain questions. Why wasn't the media hammering this for two years? Why wasn't this a front page thing on CNN every day about why are we counting clear non-COVID deaths as COVID deaths? Why are we not seeing those type of questions why weren't they the, in the mainstream media for two years? You ever wonder that? You ever wonder why one side of the aisle was especially not concerned about this? You ever wonder that? I'm not being conspiratorial here. I mean, these are good questions. It doesn't take a genius to know that someone who died in an accident who happened to have COVID shouldn't be a COVID death. It should be obvious. I tell people this, they sometimes don't believe me. And I say, no, 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 go look it up. And they say, oh, shit, you're right. Well, why, why would they do it this way? 
I said, well, <laughs> why would they do it this way? Let me tell you. So now we have a problem. Now we can't tell what the real Omicron death rate is. See the issue? But I think that when we finally get a real and true Omicron death rate, I think we'll be pleasantly surprised that it's not going to be that bad. And that's going to be mainly something that's killing those who were already getting close to death coming for them anyway, either from being very old or being in very bad health or especially both. I'm not saying there's going to be no deaths of people my age, but I think it's going to be a lot less than it was before. And I think the number of people hospitalized, I think the number of people with uh, lung damage who are middle-aged, I think that's all going to go way down. And these other long COVID problems, I think a lot of this is going to go way down and that you're going to hear a lot of people telling you about a flu-like or bad cold-like experience they had, which was pretty miserable for about uh, three to seven days, and then they get better and they're fine. I think that's what you're going to start hearing. And you're going to start hearing from just about everyone you know that they have Omicron within the next month or so. Maybe some of the boosted people won't get it, but it's coming. It is coming if it's not already there for you. So just keep all that in mind. Now, I want to say one more thing here unrelated to the death numbers. I think I've been pretty clear about my feelings about the death numbers. But I want to say about testing. COVID is being under-tested at the moment because tests just aren't easily available. It's very hard to get a COVID test now because of the vast number of Omicron cases. They just don't have enough tests to go around and enough testing facilities in operation, even the at-home tests, there just aren't enough. So it's very hard to get tested. I know people who think they may have COVID. They're not convinced, but they think they might have it. They'd love to take a test, and they just can't do it, and they're not going to go stand three hours online to do it. So I think there's a lot of people in that situation, especially if you're getting really sick already. If you're feeling like you have a very bad cold, the last thing you want to do is stand in a three-hour line to take a COVID test. You're just going to lie in bed and say, I think I have it. I'm just not going to take the damn test because it's too hard. So I think there's a lot of people not taking COVID tests. And that does kind of suck that it's not accessible. But I say that if it's too hard, just don't bother. Of course, you'd like to know, but it's not worth all the trouble. And you know what? If you don't have COVID and it's just a cold, the last thing you want to do is stand for a long period of time with a bunch of people who think they have Omicron because a lot of them probably do. Most of them probably do. And then you're going to be near them, even if it's outdoors. I mean, do you really want to congregate with a ton of people who have Omicron if you may not have it? Like if it's so bad, you're sure you have it, there's no point to get a test. And if it's to where you're kind of questioning it, is this a cold or Omicron? Do you want to hang out with a bunch of people with Omicron? To maybe give yourself Omicron? Wouldn't that be ironic? So don't stand online to get tests. If you can somehow get a rapid test easily, which, by the way, aren't that accurate. They're having a hard time with a lot of false negatives for the rapid tests. So if you get a rapid test that says negative, it doesn't tell you that much anyway. If it says positive, it's probably right. But if it says negative, then you still don't really know. 
So just don't bother. Just stay home, wait for the symptoms to go away, and assume you probably had it. Maybe you can take an antibody test later. I don't know if that's going to be useful if you've been vaccinated. Those antibody tests may be useless now because those who've been vaccinated have antibodies anyway. So maybe that's kind of like a 2020 thing. Haven't really looked into antibody tests lately, but you know, if you never know, you never know. In fact, there's a lot of people who were asymptomatic, especially younger people, who have had COVID and just don't know it because they never felt it. So it's not like you absolutely have to know, and it's not like you do know. It's possible you think you never had COVID and you actually did. I don't think I have because my exposure has been pretty low. But I think there's probably a number of people who are asymptomatic and had it who just don't realize they had it. Especially kids, especially young people. Not that we have a lot of young people listening to this show. But what I'm saying here is it's not the end of the world if you don't get tested. So just assume you have it. If it seems like you have symptoms that are similar to what Omicron is and... uh, If you can get a test easily, then by all means do it. And then just stay away from people as much as you can until the symptoms go away. Anyway, if you have Omicron or if you have any form of COVID and you'd like to text me and talk to me about it, even if you just like somebody to talk to when you're feeling like crap, you can feel free to do so. 775-372-8355 at any time, not just during this live show, but... Anytime you'd like to text me about it, I will talk to you. Speaking of texts, I'm going to read you a few texts before I shut down the show. From the 407, can you shout out to Lucky De Niro on the Fraud Show? Okay. Here is a shout out. Ah! There you go. There's your shout out. It's your Lucky De Niro. Thank you for listening. From the 559, didn't... Bogdanovich eventually marry Stratton's little sister. Yes, I forgot to mention that in our little opening segment about Bogdanovich and his recent passing and his whole situation with uh, Ms. Stratton, who was tragically murdered. But yeah, there was some controversy that he he did marry her younger sister, And there were even some suspicions that he got involved with her before she was 18, though both were insisting that they waited till she was 18 before they got involved. But yeah, there was uh, a lot of controversy about that, too. He definitely was uh, into much younger women, let's just say that. Oh, by the way, someone did text me about the blue hash marks. Let me read you what they said. They explained it. So there really are blue hash marks. Mickey wasn't crazy there, at least about that. He said... There are blue hash marks on the electronic signs. And he was showing me the patterns of whether banker or player wins. Basically, what uh, Mickey was talking about was that when they're showing what has happened so far in Baccarat over the last whatever number of hands, they're showing um, red or blue whether banker or player wins in Baccarat. And then I think what Mickey was saying is that it's not always the same color. So they were changing it around to to mess with him. 
So that those are the blue hash marks he's talking about. It's not actually on the table. That's where I was getting confused. He's talking about blue hash marks. It's, I thought he was talking about like the blue hash mark on the table. I'm like, what? I don't remember a blue hash mark on the table. But he meant on the electronic sign showing what's been happening, kind of like a electronic scorecard. Because some people who play Baccarat will keep a scorecard of the way it's been going for the banker and the player side. For those of you that don't really understand Baccarat, it's a game where you're not actually making decisions. You're just betting on an outcome. So there's the banker side and the player side, and you can bet on either one is going to win. And then it just deals out the cards to each side, and whoever comes up with a higher total wins. And then if you bet on that side, then you win the bet. And if you bet on a tie, and it happens to be a tie, then you win that bet at at higher odds. So that's the way Baccarat works. It's a very simple game. And the way Phil Ivey was able to beat it with his accomplice was that she was able to see these small defects on the cards and then they could see what cards were coming and then they could place bets on the proper side or they could differently size their bets based upon that information but aside from that information uh, there's there's no way to beat Baccarat because you you don't know what's coming there it's just uh, there, there's no decisions involved it's not like blackjack where there's decisions. Here, here the decision is only on what you're going to bet on, but once the hand starts, there's nothing further to do. Then it just plays out. From the 713, tested positive for COVID on January 5th, trying to go back to sleep, keep going for 30 more minutes. Wait a minute. So this guy who has COVID from the 713 is asking me to keep doing this show after all these hours. I've been on, what, like nine hours? I, I have to do 30 more minutes so he could fall back asleep? <laughs> I, I'd be more inclined to do this if this was keeping him awake and he wanted to stay awake. If he's like, you know, I'm so tired from COVID, I got to stay awake 30 more minutes. Can you keep me company here? Here he's saying, I've got to bore him to sleep. Can I keep talking for 30 more minutes so he falls asleep? I don't understand the sleeping thing. Why do so many people use this show to fall asleep? Why? So many people use the show to fall asleep, and then they go, no, 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 I don't mean it that way. I mean it's relaxing. And I go, I don't think I sound very relaxing. Like, I'm not someone who's always yelling and screaming, but I'm not talking like I'm on NPR. Today on Poker Fraud Alert, we're going to talk about Caesar's Palace. And why is there so much fail there? Why does Caesar's Palace always find a way to fail things? Actually, not just Caesar's Palace, but... Why do all Caesar's properties and why does the Caesar's organization find a way to continuously fail? Even their sports app in New York went down on a day when everyone was excited about using it for the first time. We will discuss that next on National Public Radio. Like If I talk like that, I would understand. But I don't talk that way. So I don't understand how this is relaxing. I, I could not fall asleep listening to myself. I could not fall asleep to this if I were not myself, if I were a different dude, but with the same personality and listening to this, I could not fall asleep. It would keep me awake. So I don't get that. But there's a lot of people who use this show to sleep and they insist not because it's boring. It's just it's something they can turn their mind off 
and relax and have someone else talk to them. It's almost like a bedtime story. I don't get it. But I have said that as long as you are listening, I don't care the reason. So if you must use it to sleep, then so be it. I'm looking at the ratings here. We, at, at one point, we had very high live ratings, but not when I expected. For some reason, we had our highest live ratings in a very long time, but not when we did the Mickey interview. I don't get that one. Why Why do we have all those people listening when... I, I, I don't get it. I would understand during the Mickey interview, but... This was after the Mickey interview. We got this surge of listeners who are now gone, by the way. I've driven them away. The new, the, the big surge of new listeners has left. They've left the building. That's okay. At least a lot of you still here. But you're not going to be for long because I'm leaving. I'm going away. At least for a week. Maybe longer if I get COVID. Remember last year in May when I got sick during the show. I was just discussing this with Benjamin the other day, how weird that was, that I was doing Poker Fraud Alert Radio, and I started getting cold, and then I started getting really cold. Then I got colder than I've ever felt in my life, other than when I'm outside in freezing weather. And I realized something had to be wrong, and yet I was so dedicated to this damn show, I finished it off. I stayed on for two hours like that, with my teeth chattering so much, I was actually hitting the mute button, so you couldn't hear my teeth chattering while Brandon was talking. I would use that opportunity to, to let my teeth chatter, because I was that cold. It turned out I had a uh, dental infection and a high fever. Fortunately, I was able to get antibiotics, and that put an end to that. But I actually sat here for two hours with the worst chills I've ever had in my life. I made the room like 85 degrees, and I was still freezing. That happened back in May. Nothing to do with COVID. It was a dental infection from a cleaning I had earlier that day. But no, I'm not going to do this show if, if I come down with Omicron. Unless it's very mild. If it's like a mild cold, maybe I will. Nah, I probably won't. Because if I talk for like nine hours with a cold, it always makes it worse. Anyway, if everything's normal, I'll be back next week. Maybe on Saturday again, maybe Friday. We'll figure it out. Check twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert for more information. And you know what? I wish I had more time to prepare for the Mickey interview, but he demanded we do it right then and... I grabbed him, and I'd do it again the same way. Thank you for listening. Good night, good morning, and shalom.